Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Dr. Harriet Freud joins us. She's a psychotherapist, hypnotherapist, who specializes in the intersection between mental illness and capitalism. She hosts Capitalism Hits Home, and you should all go to democracyatwork.info to read about what she's been up to and her latest Episode is entitled COVID-19, a psychological, political, and economic plague. Thank you for taking time to do this again. I'm delighted to. A lot to go over. I first want to ask you about these Zoom meetings. We've been having them every Friday night at 9. It's an opportunity for my guests and my listeners to talk to one another. Your name came up. I saw a lot of isolated people all over the world, including me. We're all isolated. We're all terrified of both the virus and the economic consequences. A lot of people asked about you, and one of the questions was asked, how much of this is the virus and how much of this is capitalism? We are told that feudalism was brought down by a plague. What little I know about Marx, I always thought capitalism would collapse upon the weight of itself. But will the spark of a virus like COVID-19 destroy capitalism? Well, that alone won't. I mean, one of the things that if we look at feudalism in the 13th and 14th century, it was already breaking down. It was breaking down because the wealth of the nobles was built by the labor of the serfs who worked a certain amount of time and effort, put in a certain amount of time and effort to develop their own subsistence farming. And all the surplus over that they gave to the lord of the manor, which buttressed his power in fighting with other lords. They also were there as soldiers in case he needed to war against his neighbors and they helped his lavish lifestyle at the palace with all sorts of courtiers and hangers-on. Okay, what happened was by the 13th and 14th centuries, the land was wearing out. They didn't know how to renew the land. They didn't have that kind of agricultural know-how. And so crops were thinning, plus in good times, People reproduced more. They had more children who had to share and live off this land. Only the first son was entitled to the primary responsibility and the primary position offered. But the others had to survive, too. And they were finding a lot of trouble rendering to the feudal lord his portion and having anything on which to subsist. Their diet was inadequate. They were not healthy they were not enabled. And so when the rats 
that were everywhere had fleas that were infected with bubonic plague. The plague spread everywhere throughout feudal Europe. One out of three people in feudal Europe died from the plague. Those most exposed, of course, were the poor, who had much more interaction with rats than those in the palace who had rat rat catchers and other protectors around them to ensure that they stayed safe. So you had a situation where people were vulnerable. They were not fed properly. They were not nurtured properly. They were worked beyond their own subsistence needs. And these are danger signals. Now, if you look at today, what's going on, with our current plague, coronavirus, you see quite a few parallels. It has to be understood that the United States has been deemed by the UN and the the World Health Organization and others as the worst nation in combating COVID virus. Many others have reopened their borders, have not suffered the kind of massive deaths that we We have, we have many more deaths than the others, and we don't even count the deaths of those younger people who suddenly die of a stroke or a heart attack, Mm -hmm. and only after they're dead are shown to be victims of coronavirus. So that the United States is the worst. Well, what else are we the worst in? Well, we are an unbridled, unregulated capitalism, largely. We don't have the powerful socialist forces that they do in all other nine countries that have most successfully dealt with the coronavirus. And that includes both China, which did an amazing job, probably the best ever in the history of the world, in combating the coronavirus in Wuhan, and um, also Cuba, which is used to being invaded and therefore could get organized and stop the coronavirus, as well as seven other nations, all headed by women, although I don't think it's some kind of um, female enzymes. Well, they're beginning to wonder if COVID-19 can be treated with estrogen. I'm not being... Yeah, although, look, women die too. They just don't die as readily as men, and that can be chalked up to the fact that men drink more. Right. They smoke more. They have a certain amount of macho. Right. Are you, I'm gonna, are you shuffling paper by any chance? I did for, for a moment. I was okay. trying to find this list Sorry. of countries that have combated it. Totally well, you have so South Korea doing a great job. You have New Zealand which is run by a female. Lucinda Ardern, right? And, and um, Australia is doing a great job, even though they're run by a conservative. You have right. Germany, Angela Merkel, who's a scientist. She's doing a great job. So, again, they are... I wasn't trying to be funny here. They do think that uh, estrogen helps men combat COVID-19. Uh, let me ask you about uh, feudalism. Yeah, let's go back to that so we can develop that idea. Yeah. 
was there a spark? Was there a revolution that overthrew feudalism, or did it fall the same way Rome fell, a thousand cuts? Yes. It, it did not fall because of some grand battle. Right. It fell through its own untenability. Right. And I think our capitalism, like Russia's um, state capitalism, imploded out of its own corruption. Right. And I think our capitalism may implode out of our corruption also. Russia fell, as, as I understand it, it was ripe, and then World War I kind of accelerated. Right. So they had the Bolshevik Revolution, which withstood cap- invasions by all the capitalist powers at once, the United States, Germany, France, Germany allied with the others, even though they had been enemies in World War I, to defeat socialism. And they didn't. And that was the birth of the Soviet Union, where people were decimated by war and hunger, and the inequality was outrageous. Um, Alexandra Kolontai, who was the first cabinet member, was a woman, the first in the world and was a cabinet minister of women, children, and health after the Russian Revolution, tells the story of what radicalized her, which I think is pretty good as an example of what was going on, which was that she had a little, she was from the aristocracy. There was a little girl that lived near her, probably the child of a servant, who died. And she asked her mother, why did she die? What happened to her? And she said, well, she didn't have a winter coat, so she froze to death. Right, right. So May 1st is coming up. What is the significance of May 1st? There's a big rent strike planned throughout this country. Is it conceivable that feudalism returns? We always think that we're moving forward, but we could return back to feudalism, where the I land... I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, the closest we had to feudalism in the United States was tenant farming, where you get to farm a plot of land owned by someone else, and you have to give a share of the proceeds, in fact, most of them, to the other person who holds you basically indentured for the rest of your life. I think that's over, but I, what I think is happening... Well, let me just push back there for one second. I, I do want to know what, what is happening. The idea of uh, a massive economic collapse, a lot of people have said to me, well, now homes and property will finally be affordable in this country. This will be a good thing. And I'm thinking, no, everybody will be out of work. And that land... Only those at the top. That's right. Private equity will buy up all the land if they're not doing it already, which would then mean we're a nation of renters. Wouldn't that at least rhyme with feudalism? Not exactly, because if you are looking at feudalism in a technical economic way, you're looking at who produces the surplus. Who produces the extra? Are they wage laborers? Are they people who are who come with the land and the feudal lord, and Americans are wage slaves. They're not feudal serfs. So that's a technicality. However, I do think what's happening is equivalent, because I think the American population 
before this um, coronavirus was in terrible shape. 22% of children had what they call food scarcity, which means went hungry. Incredible. And um, that's a lot. You know, it's incredible. A fifth and no, it's more than a fifth. It's almost a one in four. And um, those at the top, like Jeff Bezos, continues to get corporate favors. New York, before people rebelled under the leadership of AOC and others, was ready to give him billions of dollars to give 25,000 people jobs here. And uh, because the leaders are chosen from the corporate sector and within that ideology, and they're all competing with these wildly rich billionaires who could be giving to the coronavirus effort and making a huge difference and don't. But they don't because they have the power and they use it. And they can never get enough. The whole point of capitalism is accumulating more so that you can better compete against your capitalist competitors. And so, you know, the United States is the most unequal country in the developed world. Bear in mind that in 1970, we were the most egalitarian nation. Now we are the least in the developed world. So our people are struggling. We have the highest suicide rate, the highest overdose rate, the highest addiction rate, the sickest population. Yeah, I read that one-fifth of Americans are healthy, that four-fifths of Americans have some kind of comorbidity that makes them vulnerable to COVID-19. They're pre-diabetic, they're obese, they're suffering from hypertension. Yeah, that's because, in part, the food industry in the United States is hustling food that is full of salt and fat, canned goods. Fresh foods are expensive. Their People are eating huge bags of Doritos and Cheetos. The average American in a poor community has as much nutrition as a Nigerian child with his half a cup of lentils every day, because those foods that are hustled on television, which our capitalist system wants us to eat, are terrible for our health. So Americans are overworked, depressed, and in poor health. And what uh, have the leading obesity in the entire world, and the leading addiction rates. We were in bad shape before this. What I think conservatives don't understand or choose not to understand is that you can be morbidly obese and still suffer from malnutrition. That's right, because you're stuffing yourself with non-nutritious foods, with fatty, sugary, salty, non-nutritionally rich foods. And that's what Americans are doing. If you go into a Walmart parking lot, you see people with big bags full of Cheetos, Doritos, Fritos, all of these terrible, deep fat fried, salted, sugared snacks. So we have a population without proper nutrition, without proper health care, because we don't have public health care. Excuse me for one second. So what happens is, as I understand it, if you're living on Cheetos and Doritos and Diet Pepsi, 
your body is craving the minerals and the vitamins contained within that junk food. So you have to keep eating more of it. Whereas if you just had a scoop of farro, you're done. That's right. Especially if you had farro with lentils and, and some raw carrots or something like that. One of the reasons that Americans are obese and the more obese in the poorer states is if they're working, they leave their kids home. They don't want their kids to use a stove because they'll burn the house down. They just leave out junk food and they don't want them outside because that's dangerous. So they watch television or do video games, all sedentary. We're a sedentary nation. That's one of the reasons we're so fat. And because Americans are depressed, so they sit in days despair and look at the TV. Right. I am old enough to remember uh, TV being considered evil. I, my mother, who is still alive, used to just turn the... She'd walk in in the middle of the show and turn the television off and say, read a book. Now she's got the TV going 24 hours a day. Everybody thinks the TV is their friend. Let's turn, in my limited time with you, let's uh, turn to vices. I had wanted to ask you about COVID-19 and our vices. I'm reading about Las Vegas being shut down, and I'm amazed. Uh, I've, as a stand-up comedian, I've lived, if you look at my life, I've lived a year in Vegas, all the weeks that I played Las Vegas, and... It's God is not there. You go to Vegas and, and there's no God there. It's all vices. How do you shut down vices? You're a, a psychoanalyst. How do people go without gambling? I mean, Vegas is built on sickness. And all of a sudden to shut down the casinos, what happens? They talk about the workers, and of course, that's important, but... What about the people, the Americans who are addicted to the drinking, the prostitutes, the gambling, that they've been encouraged to to indulge? What happens when you can no longer indulge these vices? Well, what happens to you when you're used to having an outlet and it's taken away is that you get angry and often violent. Americans are not organized. They don't take out their anger by joining protests the way the French might. You know, they they are not, their anger is personal. And that's why there's a 30% increase in abuse of women and children across the United States. Right now, during the crisis. Right, because they're stuck at home. And child abuse goes way down at age six in the statistics because kids are away at school and then they can play outside. Well... They're not away at school. They can't play outside. Their parents are robbed of their other outlets and very angry and not trained to see their anger as a political and social phenomenon and take it out personally. Plus, men who used to to gamble or get control over over their lives through those outlets can try to control no one but the people in their own families, and that's a deadly venture. So looking back at the past 40 years where gambling has been turned into a sport, they call it gaming. 
instead of gambling. It needs to be a vice. It needs to be uh, shut down by the police. Now it pays for our police. What are the long-term damages to a society writ large when gambling is considered perfectly fine? I mean, there's the Excalibur in Las Vegas. It's the Disneyland of Vegas. People bring their, their kids with them to gamble. What What's wrong with that? What's wrong is that it reflects a population's chances to actually make it in their lives. You know, when you were little, and certainly when I was little, America was the most egalitarian nation in the Western world. And if you worked hard and were white and male, you could support a family and you could do well. Now it's a gamble. If you're the child of Donald Trump's father or of anyone else in his cabinet, or, you know, if it's a gamble, what you get depends on illegal things. It depends on connections. Life is not secure. And gambling is more alluring on that basis. And if you take away people's indulgences and outlets, they find other ones, and some of them are not healthy. It isn't like our population looks at this as a chance to read. Reading is almost non-existent. I have clients in their 20s who say, don't tell me what to read. People don't read. Right. Isn't there well, a podcast? Yeah, let, let, me, let me just return to you take away people's vices. Wouldn't it be better if we could have a conversation in this country about what is an acceptable vice and what isn't? People say, you know, why are you being such a prude? What's wrong with gambling? There's a lot wrong with gambling. And, and there we is. Should- there is. You can lose a lot of money and you give it over to big casinos like the one that Donald Trump had before he wrecked that one, as well as everything else. And you, uh, you're not in charge. And life is a gamble, and you indulge it that way. And one of the things, it's not inherently evil in some kind of religious way, but it's stacked against you, and it's sad that you take chances in a world that's stacked against you completely because you're desperate. Well, let me push back, if you don't mind. I think it is inherently evil. I think if you don't have enough money to give to a charity, but you have enough money to go to Las Vegas and play with that money and lose it or win it, that's the height of immorality to me. You don't have enough money to give to Meals on Wheels, but you have enough money to play blackjack. To me, that is the epitome of evil and immorality. We can look look at it. First of all, I don't believe in all good, all evil. That's a, you know, I think that you have to look at what are the social consequences. You decide what's good or evil at looking at the social consequences. The social consequences of gambling are sad. People fritter away their scarce money because they're buying a hope for a better life that they won't get. Right. I I didn't win the genetic lottery. In America, you have to win the genetic lottery to become a millionaire. So now I'll just play the regular lottery and hope for the best. I I think there should be a conversation about our vices during this pandemic. And Yes, there should be. But there also should be a conversation about what are 
efforts that would empower people. Because one of the things that we don't have is the kind of solidarity and collectivity of effort. There is no other country, for example, whose leader is encouraging people who demonstrate against shelter in place, even though the science shows that it will protect their lives. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Right. There isn't a sense of collectivity of organization. If you're French, when you retire, you're in the retirees of whatever neighborhood you're in, and you're active for retirement rights. Your child is in nursery school. You're in their child care system, which is universal and excellent starting at two years old. You get out there if that's threatened, if their monies are threatened, and you're there with tens and hundreds of thousands of people because you're organized. They have strong socialist and, and socialistic parties and some a small communist party. They have a strong fascist party. They have people seeing, these are my problems. The solution is addressing us, do, addressing it together. So what happened to this country? Because the Women's March in 2017, his inauguration, the women came out and it became, we were turning into the French where, as you just pointed out, protesting is a hobby. It's something you do on a Saturday and a Sunday. You know that there's going to be a protest. It's a social event. And I thought that the women in this country were going to, teach us how to make protesting uh, a picnic the way the French do. It's well, stopped. the French have a politically organized system, and so they don't just go out for fun. They go out to defend their child care. They go out, go out to, to extend their health care. They go out to stop Macron from taxing them to support his luxurious lifestyle and that of his buddies. The yellow vests go out there because they feel the system is stacked against them. But we, what happened to us is that for 150 years, from about 1820 to the 1970s, every generation that had families with white male wage earners did better than the generation before. They didn't have to join organizations. We were a country that was rich and that, and after World War II, every other developed economy was destroyed and not ours. So we were the great providers. Well, that stopped in the 1970s. Wages, white male wages flattened because their jobs were outsourced and we didn't have a communist and socialist parties to forbid that the way they do in many European countries. So they were disempowered, and that stopped. And so with it, stopped the idea of progress, but not the idea that it's all up to you. You can make it if you really try. No, you can try hard as you want. You need others with you. We were, in our exceptional prosperity, we didn't learn that valuable political lesson. And that's been to our detriment. So the Million Woman March, it was a million people, not just an entitled million. It was actually a million people, men and women and children, was not followed up because we didn't have the organization with which to follow it up. Well, you're one of the I don't mean to embarrass you, but you're one of the you're one of the founding members of Women's Liberation. 
Yes, founding mother. You're a founding mother. Of, you were there in the, I, I would call it the second iteration of, in the yes. 60s and the 70s, right? Right. It, it, it's actually, you know, we're celebrating the 100th and one anniversary of, anyway, of the women's vote. But that, so it seems to me, and I w- would like you to respond to this, that women's liberation in the 60s and in the 70s didn't break down into factionalism, although it did, but it was mostly about, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about. This is what I think, but I don't know. I'm pulling this out of my ass. That it was about equal rights, period. Equal money, equal let us into the into the economy and the women's movement now especially in 2017 i think her name is linda sarsour i think that there became this hiving off of women and special interests somebody waved an israeli flag and there was fractionalism and all of a sudden it wasn't a women's march it was Something out of a bad Patty Chayefsky knockoff where you had, you know, look at look how the, the left can't get along. They're all in, into it for their own special interests. Is that is that why we don't have uh, a solidarity movement, especially with the women, because they're they've become hived off into special interests when they should just be focusing on money. I mean, to me, I always say the Republicans know what they want. They want money. Why can't the left make it simple and say, we want money? You know why? Because we wanted, first of all, we wanted more than money. Second of all, the history of the women's movement is interesting because at the time of the women's movement, the sixties, there was also a civil rights movement. And, by the time Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were murdered, they were murdered shortly after they came out with statements saying it's not just race, it's class. Black and white together are the only ones who can defeat this and make this a safe nation for everyone. And they were both shot. Then in the women's movement, you had something that's covered by a book called The Great Wurlitzer, which was about a very successful FBI, CIA investment in hundreds of thousands of dollars to invade the civil rights and the women's movements to make them a race-only and gender-only movement. Gloria Steinem, who was the CIA operative in charge of invading the women's movement, was very clever, still is, and very successful. She really was with the CIA. That's not yes, she's a fact. She, she admits wow. Anyone who gets on Google can find that. There's even an article, I think it's in Bloomberg News, what do Kissinger and Gloria Stein have in common CIA pay? Okay, that's been documented, but never on TV, of course, since 1968. But what she successfully did, and did further with women's, with Ms. Magazine, with the naive women like myself, who was delighted. Oh, we have Ms. Magazine. It's so gorgeous and glossy and no ads. Well, who paid for it? <laughs> we didn't ask, right? Before that, the women's movement was started by leftists who branched off from the movement to end Vietnam. And we felt, because we were on the bottom, if we rose up, everyone would come with us. And then what we wanted 
was a kind and nurturing society for everyone. What Steinem and the CIA wanted was equality within a system of inequality. Right. And so that the mass character and also a lot of the race character, which was mixed at the beginning, the mass character changed. And what it devolved into was some useful but not politically powerful developments. One is now fighting for legal rights for women. Legal rights mean if you can afford a lawyer, you can get rights. Well, not too many people can afford a lawyer. So we know who that serves. And there's a few charities that could help. It also meant that those who were educated and qualified and also women, women at the top, could be recognized and included. So the Cheryl Sandbergs could be recognized and included. In her book, Lean In, she talks to the corporate women and says how we have to support one another. And it is all possible. You can be a mother. You can be a wife. You can be a corporate executive. You can work it out. She didn't even mention she had nine servants, which did help uh-huh. in working it all out. Right. But what it became was a gender-only movement, which was their intention. It didn't touch the gender and class are very different. It's a very different experience to be a woman who grows up with nothing and has an inferior education and lives in a dangerous place near an incinerator and doesn't speak standard English and can't go to college and gets pregnant. Right. And someone like Cheryl Sandberg or even someone like me, I had privileges. I got through college right. and then I got a fellowship to graduate school. So you know, but I got the fellowship because I'd already done well in college. And my parents sent me to a fancy college. And I can speak standard English. And I'm, I don't have all these strikes. I'm not brown. I don't have all these strikes against me. And so that the character of the movement changed. It is changing back again because the most militant labor union leaders around are Sarah Nelson from the flight attendants, she's the one who wanted a general strike when they wouldn't pay the airline personnel, even even though uh, they had to work. Right, and the nurse and the nurses, and the nurses are the other militant union. Right, that are women's unions. But what we don't have is a movement of men and women together who understand that we need each other to change the allocation of wealth and privilege in this society. Yeah, I mean, and, to me, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, we have to wrap it up. I'd love you to come back next week if you could. Sure. Uh, but to me, when I talk about Bernie and people accuse the false accusations that he was insensitive to uh, Black Lives Matters, not true, or that he was insensitive to... Or some kind of horrible stuff that wasn't true. Right. Or women. To me, uh, if you want to fight the 1%, you have to figure out what is it they have, what is it they want, and what are they controlling us with? It's money. Money Mm -hmm. equals power. It's the language that we use in this country. 
They don't care about equality. They don't, you know, a, a sexual equality or gender equality. They care. Oh. They care about money and power. And so you have to fight. You have what you have, their territory is money. So we have to fight them for their money. We have to come and take their money because if we take their money, we take their power. All the other stuff is important, but you can't defeat the the feudal lords unless you kick them out of the mansion. I'm sorry. Unless you take back the land. Take back the land. Then we can get to the other stuff. That's right. And so that we need a united class-based movement that recognizes differences, but is still recognizing that what we have is the power of the mass of the people who do the labor. What they have is the money. Right. And we have to take it from them and divide it between us and figure out a just way to operate this country. Well, this is uh, an honor. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home. She is a psychoanalyst and a hypnotherapist. And how can people contact you? They could send me an email at hfraud at gmail.com. And as long, I don't want to just hear people shit talk me, but other than that, you know, if you have an interesting idea or you thought I had a drawback, that you thought about, I want to hear it. And um, also, I am just starting a podcast with a colleague who's very young and on the opposite coast, Max Golding, and it's called It's Not Just In Your Head, and it's for the whole therapy community, showing them that your problems are not all mental. That's part of the perversion of what's happened to make people think you can do it if you really try. It's all in your head. No, it isn't. It's out there, too. Right. And go to democracyatwork.info. We or harrietfraud.com. Or harrietfraud.com. The, the thing that uh, you talked about last time you were on the show, and it's so important, they uh, they talk about the, the damage, the trauma inflicted by your mother, the trauma inflicted by your father. You also have to talk about the trauma inflicted by the economic system you're living under. And the trauma inflicted on your parents who have no one to take it out on but you in this isolated family system. Right. That's the conversation that needs to be had and will never be had in the system. It's an honor and a privilege to have you. Can you stay on the line for one quick second, doctor? Sure. Thank you. David Wallace joins us. His latest piece is in the Washington Post. It's entitled Portrait of the Victims with illustrations by Stephen Brodner. Of the 40,000 COVID-19 victims here in America, Stephen Brodner and David Wallace picked a few to draw and offer up a brief glimpse of their lives and their deaths. It was funded by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, where David is the managing editor, and he joins us today from upstate New York. Thank you for doing this. 
Thanks for, for having me on. It's, it's greatly appreciated. I just want to be clear. That piece was, uh, really, uh, drawn by the great illustrator, Steve Brodner. And I just provided the funding and some of the ideas of the people who, uh, who we memorialized sort of like a little bit like the portraits of grief, which was the famous New York Times, these New York Times little mini portraits done, uh, to memorialize as the victims, you know, really a paragraph or two or three, just short bursts of memorialization of people who weren't the most famous people. So John Prine, you know, I, I love, I'm a big John Prine fan, loved John Prine. And as I was watching the coverage of his loss, which, you know, really hits home, I just started thinking about the lesser known victims. You and know, they, would- they're heroes, you know, we always talk about the 3,000 people who died on 9-11, and we ring a bell for them every year, and rightfully so. The writing and the portraiture that you pulled off over at the Washington Post told me that the people who are dying from this virus are heroes and victims. There's Nancy Jo McKeon, 80. She was a... Uh, General Electric worker, daughter of the American Revolution. She passed away in a Louisville nursing home. She said she was going to fight this. You have Israel Izzy Talentino, 33 firefighter in Passaic, New Jersey. A lot of these people contracted the virus by doing heroic work, by being nurses and first responders. And if they weren't first responders... In recent memory, some of them were injured at Omaha Beach on wow. D-Day. I mean, uh, yeah, they're first responders, and they're but they're treated like schlubs. Let's be honest about it. Uh, they get uh, seven twenty-five an hour in some places, which is the federal minimum wage, which hasn't been. Well, but yeah, I'm going to stop you for one second. I, no. I want to talk about this piece in the Washington Post before we get angry. Do you mind? Sure, yeah. I, I want to you, talk about the. I, 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 we were talking before the segment started, and you and I come from the same place anger. <laughs> but before, what's that, the emoticon movie, or what's it called, the emoji movie? I guess I'm the Lewis Black character. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, and, I, and I wrap up a lot of my shows by saying stay angry. Anger yeah. is really important. Don't give in to this. That's great advice for people. Yes. But. In looking, I want to talk about the portraits for a second because they're haunting and beautiful and they're so simple. There's an elegance to these people and an elegance to the depictions of them. Tell me about Mr. Brodner and his process. How did he? Yeah, he's, uh, I've known Steve Brodner so uh, for many years. So I did a book called Killed Cartoons, Casualties from the War on Free Expression. And that was a collection of cartoons that were editorial cartoons and illustrations that had been spiked by newspapers and magazines because they, for the most part, some of them were in bad taste, but most of them were proved controversial or they offended advertisers. And Steve, this is uh, pre Charlie Hebdo. Oh yeah. Can you imagine that this, this, uh, book came out, um, right, uh, came out uh, in 2007, right after the Muhammad, um, big Muhammad controversy. And amazingly, I had a, a cartoon 
in that book, which um, was considered by my publisher. Now, this is a book on killed cartoons, remember? And they considered the book, um, um, the, this particular cartoon, too hot to publish in a book about uh, censorship, and they threatened to um, cancel the entire book. Wow. So uh, that's that was a book that I did, and I got to meet Steve Brodner uh, partly through that. So and how did he draw the the victims of COVID nineteen? He didn't get to them before they died. No, no. What happened was uh, after um, after I had seen John Prine's death and how the coverage, the massive coverage, uh, and, and several other you know well known folks. Uh, um, uh, people like uh, Floyd Carmuz, I, I think was his name, the, the famous Indian chef um, uh, from Tabla. I mean, there had been a n- number of folks who, uh, Winton Marcellus's father, Ellis Marcellus. So they, they, they got a tremendous amount of attention. And I felt like we better pay attention to the many, many people who are 54,000 people in a month, right? Something like that. Uh, we better pay attention to some of their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I got in touch with Steve, who has been doing beautiful portraits of some of the well-known folks who died on, on Facebook, and we're Facebook friends. And so I said to Steve, let's work together. Um, primarily it was Steve, though. I don't want to take credit for any of the drawings. He's just a beautiful artist, very, very talented, does covers, gorgeous covers. He's also a wonderful journalist. Like You can be a great illustrator and draw beautiful images, but Steve also puts them really amazingly in contact. It's, it's really amazing. I will move on because he's not here, so why praise yeah. him? But you you look at uh, uh, Leo de la Cruz, a geriatric psychiatrist who passed away, and the the minimal use of brushstrokes to e- mm-hmm. e- evoke a a face it's it's really haunting. And mm-hmm. how do you decide which victims of COVID nineteen? There's so many. How do you pick them? I notice you picked that most of them are people of color. A lot of women. It's actually more men than women. We actually thought we did this thoughtfully. So roughly, I think 60 percent of the victims are men. So we picked, I think, six out of the 10 are men. Yeah. Uh, But we we all decided. Uh, And in terms of the fact that it was many people of color is also, you know, consistent with the actual statistics and numbers, you know, yeah. tremendous. It's really hitting those communities, the, the uh, African-American and Hispanic communities, just, you know, savaging, savaging. It's one of the saddest things I've seen. Uh, it's very, in many ways cathartic. You look at these faces. These are people who worked at grocery stores, getting our food and nurses. There's one woman with Down syndrome who was in a group home. And it's the perfect combo of words and artistry. It's really great. And you can catch it over at the Washington Post or the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which... Yeah, that's economichardship.org is our website where you want, if you want to go and just take a look at them. And we've had Alyssa Quart on the show in the past, and this project was started by Barbara Ehrenreich, who wrote Nickel and Dimed, among other great works, and she is worried that 
the story of history is written from the top down, not the bottom up. And you guys are making sure over the Economic Hardship Reporting Project that history is being written from the bottom up. And there's just great, important work. You can see it over at economichardship.org, or you'll see it, it ends up in The Nation, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The American Prospect, uh, The Huffington Post. You've been seen Vogue. You've been in Teen Vogue. Yeah. Of course. Teen Vogue. They've been doing great coverage. The two and things I never thought I'd say in my life are don't drink bleach. And did you see what was in Teen Vogue this week about Donald Trump? Yeah. Well, Is that because got, of one reporter or did they make a conscious effort to? Teen Vogue's doing killing it. Why? Why? What, what happened with Teen Vogue? I guess Anna Wintour retired. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I have no idea. All I can tell you is that they are doing amazing coverage of uh, politics and, and really thoughtful. Uh, I, I'd say, our, you know, so what, just going back, what Barbara was thinking, um, she didn't want people like David Brooks or, you know, the very, very yeah, or the really wealthy child of another journalist, you know, who's got a trust fund to be the only ones reporting about poverty in America. Right. right. And so that is um, uh, partly why she did this. She also this this actually sprang this project sprang out of the last. Um, uh, can we curse or no? I, I rather no, I, I, yeah, well cluster F. How about that? Is that right? Yeah. Financial cluster F. Yeah. Is when, that, you, I, I, when you say F, the F word here is Friedman, as in Thomas Friedman. But go ahead. <laughs> well, it was from the 2008 Great Recession. She witnessed uh, a lot of her colleagues who were were not as fortunate as she was because she had this massive book in 2001 that helped her survive and thrive. And she was witnessing, and this is really only escalated uh, in the intervening years, but journalists are an endangered species. Yep. Uh, independent journalists especially are facing an existential threat. So we, we step in to give micro-grants, small grants of between uh, – I'd say a thousand to fifteen thousand dollars, depending on, on you know the story and the complexity of a story. And we we uh, help uh, we help reporters tell that story about inequality and poverty in America that is just growing. And then we also sorry about that. That's okay. You're, you're running the economic hardship, there's, and there's no shortage of hardship. Yeah. So uh, we. Um, what we do is uh, give these micro grants and uh, partner with the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Teen Vogue, etc., to to publish these stories. But we're now getting involved with actual emergency relief funds for individual journalists who find themselves facing hard times, and we're going to be giving small grants between $500 and $1,500 to uh, journalists who really are facing difficult, difficult times. And people can read about that, those grants. at They're not grants, really. They're, um, they're relief funds. And we're not asking Is this coming from the government or from private? No, we're doing it. You're we're, doing we're, it. We're, we're devoting some of our 
funds, our general, uh, our general funds to relief for individual journalists, independent journalists who are facing real economic struggle or are sick with COVID themselves. Right. And we've already given out some of the grants to, pe- to journalists who are uh, suffering from COVID. So are the strings different depending on what your situation is? If, I would assume if you're suffering from COVID, you're not obliga- obligated to write a story. But if you're just... There are actually no strings on those emergency relief grants. Uh, right. um, they are really for people to, who are facing incredible challenges like they're about to be evicted or they have uh, a health problem that is, you know, exacerbated by uh, COVID, you know, something like that. They're taking care they've lost their job and they, you know, behind on their rent, you know, like we have to rank it to some extent. We are not of course seeking uh, that people do work for in exchange for these funds. We're just trying to measure need and get, Small, I, look, here's what I, I call it. We put uh, Band-Aids on gushing wounds. That's what we did, right? right? Something like 24,000 journalists in the past month have been furloughed or asked to take a significant pay cut. They're laying off. Fired. I think it's 33,000. 33,000. That's what I heard. That's the last you know, number. Don't worry, it'll go up. Oh, yeah. Counting. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I talk to my listeners and observe but little I can in my bubble. And it seems to me that there's a, a huge swath of this country that's hit rock bottom. And they've been at rock bottom since the financial crisis of 2009. Or treading water. They were treading water. And, you know, we hear about the proverbial American who can't come up with $800 for an emergency. This And that yeah. just keeps growing. 400. I'm 400. Sorry. They couldn't come up with 400. Right. And it's more than a majority of Americans. So a lot of people are at rock bottom. Uh, I, I would say a vast majority of Americans have hit rock bottom and they've been there for a couple of years. And so they're not surprised by how quickly others are falling through the cracks. Within a month, they turn these, they turn this economy off. And within a month, 24 million people apply for unemployment and the lines for food are around the block. Yeah. There's no safety net here. I mean, how quickly how, yeah. and within one month, the whole system collapsed. Yeah, the wheels came off, but uh, they were already rickety. And so they were it was really it's it's actually. I, I hate to say this, it hasn't been that big a surprise because we saw being on the front lines of reporting about poverty and inequality, we saw every day people who were really uh, up against it. And I'll give you an example. Before COVID-19 hit, uh, adjunct uh, professors, uh, we knew of one who uh, had a master's degree and was forced to take a a, do- a $9 an hour job in a potato chip factory to survive because she, she really wasn't making it as an adjunct. We heard of sleeping teacher- in the car. I mean, in between teaching gigs, they're passing, they're, they're sleeping in their cars to teach. Yeah. Not only that, teachers are, um, 
putting together GoFundMe fundraisers, and this was before COVID-19, mm-hmm. for their students who couldn't afford books. I mean, there's been, I mean, whenever, you, and we're going to go into a lot of different areas, but whenever you have property taxes be the driver for uh, public education, uh, there's going to be vast inequity. And so uh, teachers were, you know, we knew that teachers were doing these GoFundMe sites for their, their broke students. And so uh, this is no surprise. We have, uh, it, it, there, we have, it's really been unmasked the, how the economy was never as robust as, as some politicians will let, lead you to believe. And it's been un- unmasked with the Paycheck Protection Act that this government works for the richest 1%, that small businesses just looted the Paycheck Protection Fund. And now they won't tell you who. The government has, will not reveal who got the loans, which is, there's a Yiddish word for it, Shonda, yeah. uh, which is a profound shame. Yeah. And this is a profound shame. This is a slow motion robbery going yeah. of American taxpayer. Um, I, I, I do want to talk about one Something story. I, in the New York Times, they say 200 publicly traded companies received a total of $750 million in bailout loans that were intended for small businesses. They, the, this money was used to pay dividends to the stockholders, pay bonuses. We've seen this movie before with the banks after the bailout of 2008 nothing changes and they use banks to disperse federal loans the small business administration gave the money to banks who collect enormous fees to lend money in a two-tiered system one for their private big money customers and then the the low rent retail Good luck to you. Uh, yeah. I will say that one of the things uh, we, I recently wrote another story for the Washington Post. Uh, I, I, I uh, wrote an, uh, an opinion piece for the, the, um, for, for the Washington Post just about two weeks ago, arguing that uh, the government should be giving out free hand sanitizer and soap to Americans because the supply chain had broken down. Right. And uh, they're, you know, we've shown that one of the only lines of defense that we have is washing our hands, right? So if you are a cheap way of providing people with a life-saving substance is that the federal government should be providing free soap and uh, free hand sanitizer, which is still absolutely unavailable, very hard to come yep. by. Yep. Uh, you, you, you know, I, I can't I, get Lysol. I can't. You know, Donald well, Trump's so busy talking about drinking bars, Lysol. Good luck getting it. Taking that up. That's why. I'm sorry. What? The bars. The bars that are left doing to go cocktails are probably buying it right, all. Right. So. So. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, the government should be providing hand sanitizers. To, to well, that, see, that's when we talk about safety net. To me, that's sort of a. I mean. It's just a no-brainer. Provide people, make it easier for people to avoid. They should be providing. You know, we shouldn't be knitting and crocheting and and hand cutting, having seamstresses do masks for for hospital workers. That again is a profound shame in America. 
And so uh, I think that some of this basic PPE and some of the basic hand-washing uh, supplies are critical for uh, the government to be producing and distributing for free. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it would actually save a lot of money because think of the number of infections that would go down. They did a study in Pakistan, okay, and they gave just – they didn't have hand sanitizer. They just gave free soap to poor citizens of one community in, in Karachi, I believe. And they give them a little bit of training about how to wash their hands as well. And it cut down in short order – uh, on uh, diarrhea and uh, and other uh, infections, uh, um, lung infections by fifty percent. So think about that. I mean, let's say let's say it it reduced uh, COVID transmission by twenty five percent. Let's let's get the the hand sanitizer and so and who stopped it? Purell. Purell said you can't. You're gonna we're gonna lose business if the government is making hand sanitizer. Well, no, I, I just don't think it's been, you know, I haven't heard it uh, being adopted by the feds. You know, I haven't heard them talk about it even. I don't see it as something that Purell, it, so it's it's relatively common sense. So I'm not sure that the government's going to get involved with it. Right, right. They, they say the government can't do anything because the corporations won't let them. They say it's unfair competition. The government can be very efficient. It can do things much more efficiently than corporations but corporations say that's unfair competition you can't you can't allow the post off hey isn't this a war don't we have a aren't we fighting a war against an invisible enemy all rules get thrown out in wartime i thought well you would think this is why the economic hardship reporting project is so important everybody should go to economichardship.org you can donate money and it was set up by the great Barbara Ehrenreich, who wanted to make sure that history is reported from the bottom up, not the top down. In about two years, if we're lucky, there will be either a, a, a protocol to treat COVID-19 or a vaccine, and this economy will, will be turned back on. And the question is, how will we remember this? And what will we do? And if we don't have... The Economic Hardship Reporting Project, history will be written by the David Brooks and the Thomas Friedmans of the world. They will gloss over the 99%. There will be no lessons learned unless we're supporting the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. What do you think is the, the future of this story? When do you see a return to the new normal? Which, well, uh, I have been very depressed when I look at them opening Georgian restaurants, I believe, and haircutter, haircutters in Georgia. And, uh, I think that's going to exacerbate things. I mean, they showed pictures, uh, on the news, I guess, yesterday of people being really cheek by jowl. Uh, they had masks on. Okay. That's true. But, you know, I'm very nervous that this is going to continue for a really long time. Uh, they, they just in New Zealand. Now we're not an Island admittedly. So I understand that New Zealand has an edge on us. They have fewer people and they have better controls. They also have national health care, which we don't. Um, and they don't have an ice that's, you know, you know, 
chasing uh, um, undocumented folks who may or may not have something that's in the public that that you know a part of the virus into the shadows. So there are a lot of reasons why we're not New Zealand, but they just eliminated, from what I gather, COVID. Yeah. What? I mean, a couple months. And so, by so did Australia taking on a, a they really it was the way a government should work, which right. is what is your goal in government now? America. You know, we don't have a great track record of taking care of people. Uh, and even our, you know, our soldiers. Uh, so, I mean, it's not really a big surprise, but where the story goes is I don't think that if this lingers and continues, people are going to be spending their money very freely. They're, they're already probably because of the numbers of jobs. I, I heard, you know, what, what I've heard 16% unemployment they expect. I think it's probably going to be higher, but let's say it's, let's say, let's use 15% unemployment. Okay. Um, that's going to create obviously a profound and deep recession. So that's one thing. But, um, so, and that'll slow down the quote unquote recovery. But if you add the fear, of going to a barber or a restaurant and, and people ultimately think that that will kill them. They are not going out. They're not going to be going out. Okay. Before you wrap it up, and I hope you come back stock markets, you know, down, but not out is the stock market or the richest 1% immune from COVID-19. When you look at the pain the economic pain that we've witnessed in the past 10 years coinciding with record corporate profits and stock market going through the roof, and yet people are getting poorer and poorer. Are the rich immune from the economic consequences of COVID-19? Perhaps they are. Perhaps they've set up a system where they can maintain corporate profits and manipulate the government and manipulate the tax code so that they're immune to all this. Well, I mean, they may be immune to it because their bankers are they're, um They have uh, concierge medicine and concierge bankers yes. that are looking at after them. So Even when you need money, you get a. But if you're if you're part of the one percent and you're going broke. We review, we've learned that you get concierge bankers helping you uh, with your loans. Yeah. You know, we'll have to see. But um, the only thing that I can say is uh, let me end on, on one thought. I mean, just I've been really touched by the good folks out there who are, um, you know, on the front lines doing amazing things. Uh, I'm hopeful that the, um, that the progressive movement will think of this as an opportunity to suggest some true systemic changes that we need to really implement. So we recreate the safety net. And I hope that, that there's, um, sort of a, the spirit of FDR who really, you know, dealt with the last depression. Uh, that we rethink some of the lessons we learned during the New Deal. Right. You, besides being a reporter, started a newspaper or news syndicate 
for for journalists. Yeah. You've been dealing with the, the news business for for quite a while, yeah. and before you go, private equity. Can an argument be made that journalists would still be thriving if not for private equity? I'm not sure. I, I, I don't think it's just private equity that has uh, torn up the, the newspaper business. Um, what I would say that I would like to see uh, cooperatives, uh, newspaper cooperatives. I also would really like to see uh, some of the really wealthy people uh, step in to fund uh, and buy uh, some of the depressed assets that are out there. So uh, there, there's an opportunity, actually. Uh, you know, it really doesn't you, – you wouldn't lose that much money for a billionaire to come, and it will only Bezos and, and a few, couple others, uh, the guy in L.A. and – The doctor, and, yeah. The doctor in L.A. have, have bought uh, newspapers, but their prices have got to have come down. The valuation has right. come down. And I know right now, for instance, David, alternative weekly newspapers, which relied on – uh, event advertising and staging of events are dying right now. Right. They're, are, they're about to go under. And there's an, a huge opportunity to save them for a song. So I'd like to see, you wouldn't even need to be a billionaire to, to, to buy some of these alt-weeklies that provide great news. And you could redirect the uh, boxes, the free newspaper boxes, to low-income neighborhoods. I mean, just saying, it wouldn't cost all that much you know, a million dollars would probably buy you a paper in some some news deserts. Yeah, yeah. So I'm hoping people will buy some. Buy it, folks. If you've got a, a spare million or two, buy an all weekly. But buy an all weekly. Unfortunately, too much knowledge is a bad thing for the richest one percent, and they know that. This is uh, anyway. David Wallace. I'm going to do what we can to to change that equation. I know. I hope you come back. David Wallace is managing director. Managing Director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and go to economichardship.org and see stories before they're in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Nation, Teen Vogue. You and Alyssa Court are doing great work telling the story from the bottom up, and that's the real story. We appreciate you helping us tell that story. Tell us, tell us how to follow you on Twitter, please. Uh, at David R. Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, uh, is my Twitter. And at Econ Hardship is our organization's Twitter, which we really hope you join. And please subscribe. It doesn't cost anything at economichardship.org. Quality journalism about inequality. Thank you so right much. Price. I'm sorry? At the right price. At the right price. Donate now. We need, we, believe me, we need this work. And I'm looking at all these stories that you guys are pushing out to mainstream media, and it's so important. Uh, Can you stay on the line for one quick second? Absolutely. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump.
Let's go to Montana, where Tom Winter is standing by. He is a member of the Montana House of Representatives, representing District 96, and he is running in the Democratic Party to represent Montana in Congress in Washington. He's up against Kathleen Williams. She's another Democratic candidate. He's endorsed by Howie Klein. The primary is June 2nd, 2020. Welcome, Tom Winter. Thank you for having me. I appreciate coming in all the way from Montana to this thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, we flew in. No, we're doing this via Zoom. (laughs) You are endorsed by Howie Klein, so everybody should go to Tom's website. It's winterformontana.com. Very quickly, how many Congress people does Montana have? We only got the one right now. We might have another one in 2022, but right now we have a, I'm running for a congressional district that uh, is 14 hours across. And of course, it's the same size as the Senate. Is, seat, this, it's is, the whole current, is the current congressperson violent? That's a good question. He, if you're a BBC reporter, he will assault you. This is Mr. Yes. Gianforte. Is that correct? This is Mr. Greg Gianforte, the man I am hoping to replace. He's a, uh, yeah, he, he assaults reporters. That's what we sent to Congress. It was an embarrassment. Right. It was a special election right after the presidential election, and he was replacing Ryan Zinke, Congressman Ryan Zinke, who became Secretary of the Interior briefly, but he had to resign. Is that mm-hmm. correct? He had to resign due to various investigations going on, including something involving a condo or a mall project in the resort town of Whitefish, Montana, just outside my window. So we've had a bad run of our lately with our congressional representation. You're running for Congress and the current Congress person is Gianforte and you're running against. So in the Democratic primary, it's me and Kathleen Williams. She ran last time for this seat and um, failed to take the take the seat. And so it's the two of us until our primary on June 2nd. And are you going to have a primary? <laughs> you know, our, our governor, we got a Democratic governor, Steve Bullock. Um, everybody, please vote for him. He's running for Senate. Um, he was running he, for president, too, right? He was running for president. Yeah, now he's now he's going for the Senate. Right. Uh, the... Uh, it's going to be an all mail ballot. And, you know, I'm, I went in the state legislature, you know, access to the ballot box is a big issue of mine. And, um, we're going to see some issues there, but it's what we have to do because otherwise it's not healthy. It's going to be a fraught election. There'll be an asterisk no matter what I'd say. What committees do you serve on? So I was on state admin and human services. Um, we had Medicaid expansion done in our state, which is most people think of Montana as, you know, Marlboro man kind of people, you know, gunslinging and randomly shooting bullets in the air. Uh, that happens sometimes, but also we are, uh, you know, we expanded Medicaid the first round and we had to come back and, um, continue the authorization or reauthorize. And that's why I got involved. I, my state rep at the time, a Republican, um, he wanted to defund the whole thing and kick a hundred thousand people off their insurance. And that didn't seem very, uh, didn't seem like a very nice thing to do, I'll say. What are the measures being taken in Montana right now to s- stop the spread of the coronavirus? Well, you're in New- where are you in New York, if you don't mind my asking? Also, uh, I'm, are you in in Manha- I'm in Manhattan, so it's the yeah, antithesis I, I, of Montana. <laughs> I um, Well, and also New York has had 
so much social disruption and also loss. I, I, I can only imagine being there right now. I, um, in our case, Montanans kind of socially distanced anyway. We know yeah. this because we're just physically distanced. Right. It's a million people spread out over a huge state. Um, we did not have our, our governor really did step in pretty early and we had a, you know, stay at home orders, all that. It's not difficult to stay at home if you're only low, you know, your only time you see people is to go to the grocery store. And, you know, when I've been sheltering in place here, I, that's all I do. And I distance as much as I can. And that hasn't much changed the way we do things. Uh, but we're still, we're one of the first states to open up. And I believe the first state with a democratic governor to open up. There's and an it's argument. Been interesting. Yeah. I mean, there is a, an argument being made by conservatives that because it's happening in New York, we all think that it's happening elsewhere. And there's a bit of a, a pushback. Georgia, Florida, Texas, they're <laughs> saying we're not New York City. We, we, we don't live in the proverbial sardine can the way you guys do. Don't shut our business down just because New York has to shut its business down. Can it spread wildly if you don't? Do what we're doing here in in New York? I'm shaking my head vehemently. Yes, we know this. Also, we have terrible. I mean, there. I talk about this all the time in my congressional campaign. Rural health care is a disaster. I have my own issues politically, ideologically, and morally with our with our national health care with the health care system we have now. But people don't. I mean, we didn't have the ability before the virus to handle most severe injuries or illnesses in the state. People get life flighted to Seattle or Utah. It's the same thing. I mean, we're not, we're not prepared for the pandemic and we never will be. Well, um, so far, 14, he, 14 people have died in Montana. Yeah. It is an abstraction in, in Montana. But it's going to start to hit us too. I mean, it's going to, you saw what happened in the Navajo reservation. I mean, we're going to have the same, we have eight federally recognized tribes here. It will happen here. Right. It just is a different time. It's a different timeline. The surge will not be as what I'm told is the surge will not be as quick as in New York it was, and it will just be a slow burning deaths and illness that is going to be with us for a long time. And, and people that's like Gene Forty, people like Gene Forty, the congressman, wealthy, powerful, millionaire, violent. He doesn't see a problem when it comes to <laughs> Medicare for all. He, he he's not. I would assume he's against Medicaid expansion. Yes, I believe so. I, I mean, you know, Greg Jean Forte is such an odd fit for the state. He also funds a museum that has Native Americans and dinosaurs in the same diorama to show that the Earth is 6,000 years old. He doesn't believe, he, when asked about Social Security, he said it didn't necessarily need to be funded because Noah worked until he was in his 500s. It said this, the state is not... He's an odd match. What he does is he just self-funds his campaigns. He's the wealthiest member of Congress. So we're, you know, it's a state of a million people. You can, you can purchase a seat here if right. you just put enough money in your ads. Wow. And you have dinosaurs, right? Isn't Montana dinosaur <laughs> bone country? Yeah, we got dinosaur bones. Yeah. Not the real things though. But that's where you go to find the dinosaurs. That's interesting. So what are your top priorities? Medicare for all. I think the biggest, I mean to step over you, I think the biggest thing is just the idea. My, my top and largest priority is for, is healthcare. The idea that healthcare is a right. The idea that every American not only should have the tired buzzword of access to healthcare, but have healthcare. 
access is meaningless out here if you have to drive 180 miles to get to an ER. It's just a, I, I'm so tired of that trope of Democrats being able to weasel out of the concept of like, yes, healthcare is a right. It's the right thing to do. And then say they need access because that's meaningless. Uh, you know, I have access to a lot of things technically, but there's no Thai restaurant in my place. I could drive to New York and have access to a good ethnic place, but I can't. Right. I, I find that, but also just building up our rural healthcare infrastructure and being a voice, especially in the Democratic Party, because we are going to see change, positive change, I believe, in our health system and the way that our government works on it. But there's no rural voice for that right now. There's not one Democrat that holds an at-large seat. And it's just, you know, I, I think it's indicative of the perch or maybe the, the megaphone you could use as the sole representative from Montana. Which you're, like the like third, you're like often. the third senator. Yes, it's like the third senator or the other or like the baby governor. Right. <laughs> it's, where, a, it's a weird situation to be in. Where do you stand on eliminating ICE? On elimination of ICE? I, this is a question that hasn't come up, actually, until now. We're so far from the southern border in this case. But, but I would say that the idea... And, I, I would assume you have ranches and farms, and I would assume you have migrant workers. We really don't have much migrant workers. But we do in the... I, so I live in the western part of the state. There's a large cherry crop here. Mm-hmm. And there are migrant workers coming in for that in a longstanding, many of them have moved here permanently and are part of the fabric of the community. Uh, in terms of the question of, you know, border security, I guess, in the larger sense, we deal with this all the time where the Republicans demagogue on it and the rest of us say like this has nothing in the, in the small, in the Montana only sense, this has very little to do with our day to day lives except for the complete moral outrage of our broken system and the idea that ICE exists and sometimes terrorizes people, and oftentimes because they're people of color. Mm-hmm. I, I find that to be that to be offensive as an American, as a Montanan. But here it's just weird. So many people have come here. I mean, 57% of our electorate was not born in the state. We're growing really quickly. But they tend you to live be white. white. Isn't it like 87% Oh, it's, the, it's like the second, or second, I believe Maine is the most the whitest state. We have very, it's just, but it's a different place. And people's understanding of the outside world is colored through the lens of their lived experience here. And we're always, especially as a campaign and a young Democrat who's trying to ensure that we remain viable and not just eke out wins every once in a while here, I, I view bringing the idea of the moral outrage of what's occurring on the border, the southern border, to the fore as, as something that's just not the part of our community values. It's nothing we would do on our Canadian border which is a large part of our experience. And so why should it be done down there but for the fact that the people coming, that the people who are immigrating are look different from us. Right. And that's, I think that, that lands, that lands well because otherwise I don't think there's been many Democrats willing to grapple with that. I mean, in the sense of Gianforte last time, there was something about like some ridiculous thing about, you know, terrorists coming over the border, completely unsubstantiated he put a kafia on one of his staff members and then ran did immediately did an ad saying like Democrats are going to allow like, you know, Syrian terrorists to infiltrate Bozeman, Montana. I mean, it just, it was ludicrous and people knew that. And I think they're, they're receptive to the idea that that's just tired. The tired xenophobia doesn't even have purchase here. There's, there's bigger fish to fry. Now, now you're in a, a pandemic. Yeah. But Montana, I think of as a red state. I remember John Tester. He's the senator. He's a Democrat. Yes, he, is. he had a tough election when he 
first one back in, uh, I think it was 2006. And, uh, Barack Obama never won Montana. He came within a point, I think. What is it? What do the Republicans do right in, <laughs> in Montana? The, the assembly, is it controlled by the Republicans or the Democrats? Is the Senate? It is. We're both we're controlled by the Republicans. But what you get also, and this is something where I don't want to rag too much of my own party, but we often, I mean, the, the Republicans have, have, they nationalize every race now in Montana and try and make it about Trump or about immigration, things that don't really apply here. Democrats do well when they talk about, we have a lot, we have a long history of labor, organized labor. Butte was one of the birthplaces of antitrust law. A lot of communities out here that are either were very recently or still are involved in like very strong labor negotiations with like mining towns, et cetera, timber companies. I mean, it's a, it's weird. You have these pockets of high industrialization in the middle of wilderness and these towns that have been shaped by that. And they're actually pretty densely populated. And so when you speak to a work, like working, we talk about working families all the time. That message resonates with Montanans. Partisanship does not, especially on the part of our Republican friends. They do well when they scare the shit out of people, truthfully, and attempt to make it look like the world is coming for Montana. When in fact, it's the opposite. It's that we have, we are a strong place of tie, of strong community ties. We've seen how we've been able to deal with the pandemic. There's been, unlike other states, there has not been large scale civil disobedience. People looking out for their neighbors is occurring here. That's not happening in Idaho. Well, let's and talk Idaho about money. Just yeah, over the border. Let's talk about money and politics. Yeah, the, the the campaign finance laws in Montana are a little different than they are in the rest <laughs> of the country. Yes, they are. And yeah. the Supreme Court has left them alone. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Thankfully, in my state house race, uh, the max was one hundred and eighty dollars. Donation. Well, let's explain this because this is really important. Montana is an anomaly, especially after the Citizens United decision, where Mm -hmm. money just poured into politics. And many say Citizens United is the bane of democracy. But Montana was the one outlier. What what did you pass in Montana that has been left in place? So we have really strong campaign finance law. Broadly supported by everyone in the, in the electorate and, and by both parties, I'd say. And it is a fascinating situation. What we passed was the, we got money out of politics in a sense. And we did, a lot of that I think comes from the strong, like I'm talking about the community feel people have. They expect to, like you're talking about John Tester, people expect to know the guy. Like it's, they want, it, they're offended if they're unable to meet with or know or get on the phone with their senator or their congressman let alone their state rep. Mm-hmm. So we've been able to continue our, our pretty robust campaign finance law at the state level. Um, it matters in a place where many people are wage earners. No one really has much money here. So the idea of money in politics offends us. But on the federal level, of course, like I'm stuck asking for $5,600 from people. And going from the $180 thing, in which I was actually able to... Oh, so, excuse me for one yeah, second. it makes a difference. No, you're good. I, I, I just want to understand this. So, yeah. Citizens United applies to federal elections yeah. in Montana, but not on the state and local level. 
Were it not so, yes, it does. So I, I yeah, the in-state stuff is under our law, and then the federal law applies to the federal races. So do you? Let's talk about a world where Citizens United doesn't exist. That would be <laughs> your, that would be your state house. Are there lobbyists? That's that's the thing. There are lobbyists, but they're so poorly paid, and they are we are every other year as well. It's it becomes a they really do many ways. I think I've seen. I hate to say I'm arguing for lobbyists in this sense, but you once you remove so much of the money and professionalization from politics, what you get are lobbyists actually like I had productive meetings with the lobbyists for the insurance industry because they were just there. They are a small group of people and it's, and they can't it's offer you money. To get up. They can't yeah, offer exactly. you money. So let me ask and what you, am I going to get? Okay. Can there be a political action committee in Montana that takes out a full page ad representing the insurance companies that in the federal races, of course, there can. But for, in the state house races, I don't think so. It should. Here's the crazy thing: I've never even realized. I don't believe political action committees are allowed at the state level. I don't know, and that says everything. That never came up, and I was in the the probably yeah, I was in the most highly contested um, state house race in the state last cycle, and I don't. This did not come up. I don't. What about you money can. from other uh, people who don't live in Montana? So you can do that because we were, you cannot, uh, I think it's a commerce clause issue. Okay. You, anyway, you can't, I mean, that, it, no, there's no commerce clause. That's just state, state speech, but it doesn't matter because I can, I can collect from out of state. And in some places we did. And, you know, the, the internal political aspect of that, I mean, you talk to Californians and you say, Hey, I, I need some help here. And, and they, you know, we can do this in a state that, that had, that really does and can, you know, protect a woman's right to choose, protect public lands. We can do this on the state house level and it's only $180. I mean, they'll just, they, they talk, you know, it, that's everywhere. It's, it's not just California. It's the idea. So people the can only donate. The, the limit is $180 as you can donate to a candidate. Yep. Anybody, uh, you can any, double max, I believe, if you have a, if you have a primary and then a general, but I, I didn't have a primary. No bundling. No bundling. No. So the TV, the radio is not filled with ad buys during an election it's season? On, only of the federal races. And it just means that people just hate them. I mean, it's the only thing you see are your congressional and federal and, and, uh, or your house and your house and your Senate races. And they just bombard you. Let's talk about Zoom. <laughs> yeah. You're in an enormous state. You have to shake a lot of hands. Everybody's learning Zoom. How does that change campaigning for you? I um, you have pol- political people on here all the time. I assume I don't. I, I'm new-ish to politics. I had not realized how weird your typical politician is, and I'm one of them now. In that I I I thrive on human contact. The fun part of this and the rewarding part was meeting people and learning what they were trying, struggling through or wanted or were trying to get done. And I only can do it on Zoom. It changes everything. Now um, you can only do it on Zoom. But is yeah. it, But now a congressperson or a state representative has no excuse. You can't say, I'm out of town. I can't meet with you. You can now have virtual town halls. 
And the amount of anger we've seen amongst the populace with our Gianforte and Danes, Danes is our Republican senator. Both of them refused to have in-person meetings before this. They would only have teletown halls where they're screened beforehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't do that. I mean, it's it's unacceptable, and it's not. They're not doing part of their job. So you're saying and that's Zoom, been well acknowledged. You, you 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 say Zoom is a net negative that it's bad for politics. I mean, I think it's bad for politics and that you need to be able to take the measure of the person you're voting for. I believe that as a voter here, and I believe that's my right, and it has been robbed of me by this pandemic. Right. And that is something that I think is, to small-scale politics, we can still practice out here, is 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 in danger due to the pandemic's strictures, which are needed, but, you know, it, I mean, just it, it also entrenches, um, in, in, you know, inequality of access to broadband internet. I mean, that's still not necessarily a given out here. Older populations are uncomfortable on zoom who necessarily has a computer libraries are closed. So you can't do it there and use their internet. I mean, it's a, you know, this is what we're, we're the problem with the pandemic. It is, it means that you can only reach a smaller and smaller and a more engaged and also a more affluent audience. And that is not, that's not doing politics of the people that's doing politics of a certain group. When do you see this opening up? When do you see them turning the switch back on and starting this country up? Uh, I, it's going to be, I mean, it is necessarily going to be regional, I think. And that's what's going to be so interesting. And I, I'd be interested to see what you say as a New Yorker as well, your experience. I um, I don't know. I have no idea. They just canceled the New York primaries. It's amazing. The the federal I, primaries, not the, yeah. uh, the the presidential primaries, not the state and local and the congressional primaries. I'm surprised at that too cuz that that primary was happening on the same day as the other ones. What's the difference? I guess except it's going to drive down turnout maybe. They don't want anybody voting for uh, Bernie. Yeah. I mean truly that's what it seems like. Which candidate running for president before Obama stopped the election? Who would you have voted for in the primary? I was firmly in the Senator Sanders and Senator Warren camp. Truly, I was I was allied, and this is something that I actually look at. I was allied with Warren, and this is personal. Not we never took anything as a campaign stance, but that that Warren thing was also very deeply and in, 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 I think craftily marketed to certain kind of upward strivers, such as myself. I didn't graduate college, um, but I think of myself as a clever guy. And, you know, a way that I, I liked Warren because it seemed she's what I thought. Truly, she kind of had a less, there was less passion there. And that's what I see or saw as the more sophisticated approach. I'm not saying that's the case. And in retro, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to excavate that. So please, no one, I'm not saying Bernie's unsophisticated in any way. I'm saying that that was an interesting, in retrospect, the marketing of those two campaigns to the populace was so different. Right. And I, but oftentimes the aims, as we saw, the policy was exactly the same. Um, but you trust that you've been, you were brainwashed to trust the technocrat from Harvard because she would surround herself with the best and the brightest. And, and she but did. But both of them would. And she, she did, but both of them second. would. She, she yeah. surrounded herself with the best and the brightest. She launched her campaign and she failed. I mean, that, yes. that speaks volumes to how worthless a Harvard education is. Yeah. I, we talk there. I think this goes into something that might be, if you have time or interest in the Montana context, the anti-institutionalism, the anti-elitism, 
that we see manifest itself in, an, in a broadly anti-coastal viewpoint and in, in a like it's not a, if I'd somehow managed to weasel my way into Harvard, it would be a negative for my campaign. Yeah, and you rightfully know, so, is, and rightfully, and rightfully so. so. But many other places, as as you've seen, almost most other states would find that to be a positive. Oh, this kid's a smart up and comer. Well, I uh, no, I push really? back on that. That's one of the problems, and I think Bernie pulled the the bandage back and exposed the wound that we have been convinced that if you went to one of these top schools, you would be able to fix things. And yes. all, all you are is a an elitist and a technocrat who's self-dealing. All these people, including all Obama, you, they're all self-dealing. I would, say all you, I would say all you do is you end up working at McKinsey, which yeah. is not necessarily the best thing for our country. I, I That idea of the pipeline, I, I think very the clearly the connection between – well, and the connection between capital and educational ex- and attainment are, and, you know, social, social currency are very well seen out here. And immediately, it fosters yes. the myth of a meritocracy and it creates a culture that thinks it's better than others. So for years, Democrats said, how, how does George W. Bush, how does Donald Trump get away with calling Democrats elitists. Well, they are. Just because they're not necessarily billionaires, they are elitists. They think they're smarter and better educated and entitled to more than others are. That's elitism. John Kerry, Senator John Kerry, was an elitist. He was a feat, and he was an elitist. President Obama, who I love, but... You know, I don't forgive him. He was an elitist. He has shown himself to be an elitist. He moved to Martha's Vineyard and he became a producer over at Netflix. You don't see him marching with the unions. You don't see him marching with the the undocumented workers. You see him hibernating with the Davos crowd. The same thing with the Clintons. They're elitists. They aspire to become billionaires. That's how Trump, that's how George W. Bush, that's how Dick Cheney got away with saying the Democratic Party is run by elitists. Because it is. Yes. It truly well, parties is. Are, and parties are, are elite preser- preservation institutions, I think. And that's what yeah. we're learning. And, I, and out here, that perceived or very true elitism of the Democrat Democratic and Republican Party is why people are so turned off of of party politics in general. And I think why you saw like Bernie won our primary last time in the um, in the previous election. Trump won by plus 22. I mean, it's a the the overlap that I saw as a state legislator going to people. And I won a district that voted for President Trump plus 11 points. Many of my voters were Trump supporters. I never lied about being a progressive Democrat. Right. They are they are there and are unrepresented and they know it and their growing voice is a positive force in our politics as long as both parties don't can I curse on your podcast? I'd rather you not. Okay. As long as our as long as this, as long as our parties don't as long as their parties know where their head's at, they'll be able to bring people around. But they're not gonna do that because they are elite preservation institutions and Montanans know that. And it's why people say we're a purple state. It's not the case. We're a state that votes on the individual because they expect to meet the individual. And so, you know, in their wisdom, they chose they chose Donald Trump, who they did not get to meet. 
But in their wisdom also, they chose Steve Bullock, who's a good guy, who's a, who's a thoughtful person and represents the state well, and a Democrat. That mixture and that, that is, um, and that split ticket voting isn't some theoretical thing. It's done and talked about right afterwards when you get a beer with your friends and you say, you talk about politics and it is a mark of sophistication to say who you split your ticket for. And that's a positive thing for our state, I think. Great. Because it shows that the parties are bullshit. Sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to curse there. I apologize. Well, there you go. That's the, uh, it's, you didn't follow the Silicon Valley rule, which is don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. <laughs> go ahead and curse and then ask for forgiveness. That's, that's the Democratic Party. That's what you do. You, you break all the rules and then say, Oh, forgive me. Winter for Montana. Go to wintervermontana.com. Tom is running for the one congressional seat in Montana. He has a primary coming up. I believe it's June 2nd. Is that the, the date? It is the 2nd. The 2nd of June. And they're going to have it. And hopefully he'll replace the very violent congressperson Gianforte, a, uh, a very sick man. I, I, I heard the tapes of what he did to that reporter. And... Uh, not, not good. What is your Twitter handle? Uh, I think I'm, I'm on, tw- I have learned to use Twitter. Uh, we got, I'm a winter for MT, W-I-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-M-T. And you Win- can find me there. Winterformontana.com. He is endorsed by Howie Klein, which means if you're an American citizen, you should give this man money. Can you, <laughs> we, we do whatever Howie Klein says. Can you stay on the line for one second, Tom Winter? Yeah, of course. Thank you. Zach Ford joins us. He is the press secretary for the Alliance for Justice. Alliance for Justice has been leading the fight for a fair America for more than 40 years. And you might remember Zach as the LGBTQ community correspondent and the White House correspondent for the now defunct Think Progress. And he joins us today from Washington, D.C. Hello, Zach Ford. Hey, how's it going? You want me to answer that? I mean, is, <laughs> has anything changed in, in your status quo? Because nothing has changed in my status quo. I'm I'm effing miserable. I, I, you went outside today. I went outside yesterday. I did the- not go outside yesterday. <laughs> oh, you went outside today. I went outside today. How many days had it been? Two. I feel like I went outside. I went outside Saturday. Um, I'm trying to like one of the things that's important to me is supporting my local businesses. I have a great little neighborhood. It's a lot of mom and pop shops and locally owned shops and their restaurants are, are trying to continue to do work uh, as takeout only. So uh, it's a great excuse to kind of go outside a little bit um, and just pick up something from them. So so you're um, saying support small businesses. I thought Steve Mnuchin is supporting small businesses. I you know the Paycheck what? Protection Act. A stopped clock is right twice a day. So <laughs> it's incredible. It, they're just looting the Treasury. They are printing money and calling it the Paycheck Protection Act and turning this money over to millionaires who pay themselves enormous salaries and 
great big dividends. And we've seen this story before. And do you think this country, I, I want to talk to you about a lot of things, but just in general, do you think we're going to learn from this and wake up? Are we allowed to learn from this and wake up? I, I hope we're allowed to learn from it because there's definitely a lot to learn. You know, I, I this is not an original thought on my part, but by any means, but so many people have correctly pointed out that when there's a crisis, all of the other flaws in the system are that much more on display. And mm-hmm. so everything from higher mortality rates among African Americans, you know, that is a consequence of so many different things that are very much uh, a product of the way we still have racial divides in this society uh, and, and people who are of lower economic status and, and whatnot also suffering more. They don't have the same access to health care. They're more likely to be exposed to, uh, you know, environmental pollutants that cause respiratory issues. Like all of these things are fomenting and, if people are going to remember this. It's not like one of those science fiction shows where something crazy happens that impacts all of society, and then they kind of forget it in the next episode and things go back to normal. This is going to be um, a defining period uh, of all of our lives, and we have to figure out what are some of the things that went really wrong and how do we keep them from happening the next time? Because there's, there's going to be another coronavirus spike, and there's going to be other issues that come down the pike. Yeah, the virus blows through the most vulnerable nursing homes, hospitals, prisons, detention facilities, the African-American community, the, the any sardine can where people are living on top of one another, where you don't have the privilege of isolating yourself from others, or you don't have the economic privilege of not working. So you have you have to go to an Amazon warehouse. You have to go to a grocery store. This virus is shedding light on the most vulnerable. They they told us it doesn't care who it gets. It crosses all class barriers. We're discovering that's not true. That Exactly. Well, and it, it's also quickly showing how many things were super arbitrary before. The things that didn't actually help or accomplish any goals, but just uh, continued to hurt people. So a great example that comes to mind for me was the FDA's just sudden decision to change the rules on gay men donating blood. Uh, I don't know if your listeners are super familiar with the history, but for the longest time, if you had ever had gay sex, uh, a man having sex with a man or male-identified person since 1976, you were forbidden for life for, for from donating blood. And in recent years, they've changed it so that you had to go one year without having had sexual contact uh, male-to-male. And then all of a sudden, there was this shortage of blood with all of this health emergency situation. And they lowered it to three months. And it was like, oh, you all recognized that there was no good health reason for having this barrier in place. And so you dropped it to three months and you're thinking about dropping it entirely. This is what we've been asking you to do for years. You're way behind on the science. But suddenly circumstances require it and you're you're taking the steps that you should have taken forever ago. This has been one of the things that is like in the back of my head. We've talked about it the same way we've talked about you're allowed to fire somebody in this country in some states 
if they're gay. You, you can literally call somebody into your office and say, I'm firing you. I found out you were gay and there's no legal recourse. And that's uh-huh. been, you know, in the back of my head. And I go, oh, OK. I, and I forget about it. And I forgot that gay men can't donate blood. But they do test blood for HIV, right? Oh, yeah. It was a completely arbitrary uh, reason for discriminating. Uh, it's not one that I've ever been able to make any sense of. And, it, you know, if, if the science on HIV were still circa 1984 and we hadn't learned anything and we didn't have testing and uh, other ways to, you know, safely even, you know, have uh, – Zero non-discordant relationships, um, where somebody is is positive and somebody is negative, and they're what still really. Uh, gosh, I'm getting my terminology. Zero non-discordant. Okay. Uh, or, or discordant. That's all right. I'm, I'm adding prefixes. And right. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm using a word that I'm not as always, I don't use in my vernacular very often. But at any, at any rate, relationships in where uh, somebody is negative and somebody is positive. You know, if you're positive and you are on medication and have reduced your viral load to what's called an undetectable level, uh, all of our research shows that it's virtually impossible. Like 99 percent, no exceptional cases yet. Uh, impossible to to transmit the virus to somebody else. We also have PrEP, which protects people who are currently uh, have a negative status um, into the 90th percentile um, from receiving transmission. Uh, and we still have condoms and other uh, ways of, of ensuring that sex is safe. And so all of these things that still discriminate against people who are HIV positive or who are relics of that attempt um we're, we're just seeing in, in times of crisis like this, they don't help at all. And when we're having conversations about criminalizing transmission of the coronavirus, we're remembering all of the, the lessons that we should have learned from HIV. Right. The other thing that sticks in my mind uh, are the number of prisons that are thinking about uh, letting some folks out early uh, and, and whatnot. And there are so many people who are in there on, on trumped up charges or, uh, you know, forces us to re- re-examine the bail system where people are incarcerated only because um, they weren't rich enough to to pay the bail to get out and things like that. And suddenly their health was uh, on the line as opposed to the rest of their lives. And we recognize, oh, we can't do anything to help them, so maybe we should just let them out. Well, maybe we should have just done that anyway. Maybe we shouldn't have the highest prison population of any country in the world uh, and, and keep people in jail for no reason. So there are, it's not just um, the, the blood donation situation. I think there are a lot lot of other lessons where we're just figuring out, hey, we were kind of being dicks to people and there wasn't a good reason for it. And now we've learned that lesson that we really can't maintain that facade anymore. Yeah, it the, the system is laid bare in front of us right now. We're seeing we're seeing who we really are and that there are people who don't care about people. They care about control and profits but they'll sell us patriotism and religion. They're selling us patriotism and religion so that they can. And it's a story as old as this country, but now there's no hiding it. And I just wonder, Trump has just been open and transparent about how this system works. He didn't really lie to us. He lies all the time, but we pretty much know that he's telling us this is the way things are. Do something about it. And they're not. They're not. Nope. Is do you get it? I guess they did impeach. They did impeach. 
But there was nobody taking to the streets to protest the Republican-controlled Senate clearing him. So do you sense that we're slowly marching into a twilight where we just surrender to the to these powerful forces and watch Netflix? I mean, there are some ways that that sounds better, but we have to be safe and comfortable enough to watch Netflix, and I don't think that they're going to allow that. So uh, we, we definitely have to respond. Uh, I, I'm really struck by some of the uh, messages we've seen from some of these protesters who are protesting stay-at-home orders uh, and sort of blatantly admitting that the inconvenience to them, uh, and I, I don't want to shortchange people who have lost their jobs and, or, or lost business and are facing huge economic consequences. But like the, the mere idea that they're openly admitting that they're willing to let people die just so that they can lead more comfortable lives is a reality that I think we really have to reckon with. And I don't think it's like just screw those people. We need to, to exclude them from society and move on without them. Cause that's not going to work. Uh, we know that's not going to work, but we really need to like have some serious conversations about actually let's think about how all lives matter. Uh, and I don't mean that <laughs> in the terrible way that other people sometimes say all lives matter, but like, People other than white people and conservatives and MAGA hat wearing people, their lives matter. And you were willing to inconvenience a whole lot of other people. Uh, you're willing to kick immigrants out of the country, send them back to places they don't, they've never lived and don't know anything about. You're willing to discriminate against LGBTQ people. You're willing to incarcerate people. Uh, all kinds of number of injustices that you claimed were to keep you safe. But the second that you were inconvenienced in any way, now it's a violation. Now it, the, you're angry at everybody over it. It's, it's a massive double standard and it speaks to all of these systems of privilege that social justice warriors like me have been talking about where the number of uh, hoops and hurdles that some people have to go to uh, achieve the same level of equality and access in society other people don't have to go through and the second that they're inconvenience to see a response like that really speaks to the reality uh, of these systems of privilege what happens when they start seeing the ICUs overflowing in Georgia, in Florida. Then they just blame New York, right? They they blame the New Yorkers for bringing it down. Well, yeah. the Republican talking point is to blame China. I th- right. think I saw a memo about that this week. So I don't know. I like the traditional basic here's who's accountable and here's whose decisions led to this doesn't seem to work. I think we need to find other ways to uh, connect with some of these folks and, and engage in conversation with them and, and mutual understanding of like what society should look like and how we could all actually work to better it for everybody as opposed to just catering to whatever the whims of a few people are. Yeah. And, <laughs> Which and is kind of what they're asking for, I think. We should only be listening to Fauci and scientists not talking about how Trump dropped the ball and how these crazy Republicans don't want to shut down the economy. We we need science, but that's too hard to understand. So we focus on these fringe groups who mount these protests. Uh, there aren't that many people who are against shutting down the government. Like something no, like seventy five percent of Americans think we should be staying home. 
Right. And, and I think it's telling that a lot of the people in, in those new polls we're seeing this week are people who've lost jobs and people who've lost business and uh, are, are figuring out how to struggle through this situation as a result. But they still recognize that they want to be able to go back to a life at some point and they can't do that if they die uh, from COVID-19. So uh, it's it's strange to I mean, I think. You know, millennials were blamed a lot for having, and, and, and just generally, maybe this is not even just a particular generation, but people who happen to be in their uh, early 20s, late 20s, um, having this feeling of invincibility and not needing to, um, you know, take steps to protect themselves. They didn't want to have to pay for health care or anything like that. Um but I, I definitely felt it a lot as a millennial, like, oh, you're so irresponsible. Why aren't you saving up for your future? Why aren't you, you know, investing in, in these sorts of things so that you can have the same economic trajectory as previous generations with, of course, no context that their experiences were totally different. Um, but it's this just sense of, of invincibility. I shouldn't have to suffer to make other people's situations better. I shouldn't have to make any sacrifices. And if I'm being asked to sacrifice, then something has gone wrong and I need to protest about it. Uh, it's just a really disturbing thought that it just, you know, you and I have talked many times before on this show about just the way that there are certain populations that it's easier to not see as fully human. Um, and I think we're kind of seeing that it's maybe true of everybody who's not of your particular in-group, of not particular your community and, and peers as you see them uh, for some of these people that we see protesting. So uh, I, I hope we can really figure out how to actually let them understand what, what society means and what that responsibility means so that it's not, it doesn't feel like a burden on them. It's a burden on all of us, but if, if we're all working to make it better, then it's better for all of us. That's, that's how that should work. Right. We're talking with Zach Ford. He's the press secretary for Alliance for Justice. And I want to talk to you about the judicial nominations that Trump is blowing through our Courts. I mean, it's it's pretty outrageous, and you do focus specifically on the nominees that uh, McConnell and the Republicans are getting through. But first, you used to be the White House correspondent for Think Progress, and did you think we would get out of this unscathed? There was a part of me that thought, you know, we'll get through Trump. Nothing too bad will happen. We'll realize, you know, the president is a good thing. You know, we've learned that the you can have a fool in the Oval Office and some bad things happen to immigrants. I mean, really horrible things in, in the detention centers. But, uh, you know, we got through it and it's 2020 and we're going to have a new president pretty soon. That's what I thought was going to happen. I thought we were going to. There would be revisionist history by 2025 that said, look, Trump was horrible, but when you count all the beans, more people died with George W. Bush in the White House than uh, than Trump. Turned out the last minute, he really has become worse than George W. Bush in terms of lives lost. I mean... It's such an arbitrary measure. Like, it's an important one that lives be counted in that way. But 
I don't know. I feel like you're already engaging in a little bit of revisionist history in terms of all of the other cruel atrocities uh, that have been enacted upon us because of Trump. You know, I think a life only counts as much as you're willing to let it live. And if you're willing to put kids in cages, if you're willing to enable all kinds of discrimination, if there are very fine people on both sides, you are setting people up to live in constant fear for their safety, to live with constant anxiety. And so that might not add up to a a literal casualty, but it's still a massive impact, right? So many of my friends, well before uh, coronavirus was was part of our daily life, still woke up every day with anxiety of what will the Trump administration bring. And that toll on our mental health is probably um, eventually measurable in in years of lifespan lost um, from the stress. I mean, the, the dreamers are living on the edge waiting for the Supreme Court to tell them whether or not they're human or not. I mean, my kids grew up with dreamers and one of them committed suicide because he was a, a non-person. He wasn't allowed to be who uh, he wasn't allowed to participate in the country. He was pretty much born in. I well, mean, and that's another great example of, of how much crueler we're recognizing things are because of the pandemic, because how many of those people are working these essential jobs, uh, either as, as medical professionals, care professionals, but even grocery store employees, uh, how many of them are people who we still deny personhood to based on this arbitrary fact that they were technically born somebody somewhere else, even though they've they don't have they don't even have any memory of living there, and certainly no connections there. Uh, and now we're saying, oh, but in the midst of this, we're, this court decision might allow us to take your job away, take your home away, uh, take your health care away, and send and you away. Send you away. Uh, it's 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 just ridiculous. And so. <laughs> Yes, there might be an additional measurement we can put to just how terrible the Trump administration was, but, uh, I, I don't think it's a, it's a change. And I, 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 I think you're fooling yourself a little bit, uh, if you actually believe that you once thought we'd just get through this. Maybe you got, maybe you thought that on like January 21st, 2017, but I don't think you thought that very long no, thereafter. I, I think it's just things have gotten so much worse that you can look back at a time where you had a little bit more confidence about how much less harm would happen. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's I would all say, relative. I would be bold enough to say America, I got to watch what I say here. Uh, America uh, deserves this, but they don't because it's not affecting the people who deserve it. The, the karma hasn't really hit the people who deserve it. That's that's the problem with this COVID-19, and that's the problem with the financial crisis. That's the problem with all these bad things that happen. Uh, it's not karma. It just it's, continues it's to hurt the people who are already hurt. And exactly. And, and I, I would even caution against using terms like deserves I know, because... I know, I know. We shouldn't be wishing harm upon anyone, but what we want to do is just stop people from harming others. Um, and so I think that's where the sentiment comes from, but even still, it's, it's not providing a, a, any sense of, of balance or justice. It's just making inequities that already existed worse. Yeah. 
Yeah, we shouldn't be wishing harm. Uh, can you wish financial harm on certain people? Can I wish that Steven Mnuchin ends up finding Louise Litton in bed with six sailors and then files for divorce and takes all his money and his ticks? She gets even gets all his ticks in the divorce. Is that wrong, spiritually speaking, to wish Steve Mnuchin financial failure? I mean, then you're, then you're talking about some real karma, I think. <laughs> so, so it's okay to, to celebrate perhaps financial ruin for certain people. Well, again, I don't want to wish harm on anyone. Uh, I think, but it's financial it's more to the harm. Point. Financial it's, harm. It's still harm. The thing is that there are people who have certain things that they don't deserve and that they didn't earn. And so, uh, I wouldn't contextualize it so much in the terms of harm as is there just some justice that they got to live this very privileged life that they didn't necessarily um, do anything to achieve on their own uh, and setting things right and, and, and maybe setting them up for a situation that is more appropriate for the actual uh, skill set and accomplishments that they bring to the table. The difference between, we'll, we'll move on, the difference between Bush and Trump, George W. Bush and Trump, is Trump doesn't care, but he knows. Bush cared, but he didn't know. I don't think George W. Bush was a sadist. I don't think he delighted in the consequences. I think he was just stupid. He didn't know and mm -hmm. believe the dogma. You might be giving them a little bit too much credit because somebody knew that there weren't weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So I don't know. I think you got to be careful drawing those kinds of generalizations. Yeah. Well, Zach Ford is now the press secretary for Alliance for Justice. Let's talk about the war on our courts. Tell me about the the war that Trump is waging on our health care during the coronavirus pandemic and how it's played out in his nominees for the courts. Sure. So I, I don't know that, you know, it, this is a challenge to sort of help people understand um why we shouldn't be trusting Trump on, on healthcare right now, because this is something that not a lot of people tend to pay as much attention to, which is the judicial nomination process. But even in the midst of this, Trump and McConnell are both still trying to advance these judges to the federal courts, judges who get a lifetime appointment. So they get this job for the rest of their lives, uh, short of getting a promotion. Um, and th these are judges who specifically want to overturn the Affordable Care Act, which would take health care away from millions, not to mention it would take away the pre-existing condition protections that even millions more uh, depend on to get their care at a reasonable rate. And they're, they're stridently open about this. You know, President Trump was asked uh, at a press briefing a few weeks ago whether he still supported this lawsuit challenging the Affordable Care Act. And this lawsuit rests entirely on a very stupid uh, legal technicality uh, about whether or not there's still a tax now that Congress has set the tax to zero dollars uh, and using that as an excuse to completely dismantle the entire You're saying the bill no longer exists, that once you take enough uh, clauses in the bill away, like the individual mandate... Uh, uh, that the 
they're, they're saying the Affordable Care Act really doesn't exist anymore, so it should be overturned by the courts. Is that the the case? That's I think it's even it's even stupider than that um, because so the the individual mandate was previously challenged, and the Supreme Court ruled that it was a tax, and so Congress had the power to levy it. Um, but then when the Republicans took over, they wanted to get rid of it. But what they did was they wrote the law so that it, there's technically still an individual mandate, but the fine for it is zero dollars. So there's not technically a mandate. And so the Republicans are using this stupid approach to then say, well, you can't call it a tax if there's not any tax being collected. Uh, so it's, 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 it's all sort of a farce. And, and Trump blatantly said, yes, I still support it. We're going to get rid of it in its entirety. We're going to replace it with something better. But Bill Barr has nothing to replace it with, of course. Didn't and Bill Barr say the attorney general, didn't he instruct the solicitor general to tell the Supreme Court to drag their feet on a ruling like till after the November election. Oh, oh yes. They don't want it to be an election year issue. They want to get what they sought out for uh, without having to uh, deal with it during the election. So very spot on point. Um, they, they, and Trump keeps claiming, oh, we're going to keep protecting your pre-existing conditions. Everyone supports pre-existing conditions, but they don't because there's nothing that, is built into these challenges to the law that would somehow preserve it. They want to get rid of the entire thing and all the protections would go away too. And they know that um, they, they just want the talking point that, Oh yeah, we, we, we care about that, but the, they don't. But do they really want it? I mean, cause they don't, as you just said, have anything to take its place other than more and more Americans just dropping dead. Aren't they terrified of Obamacare? being taken away i mean you would think because compared to when it was first signed into law 10 years ago it's pretty popular now and a lot more people have health care as a result and a lot more people in a lot of states i got access through the medicaid expansions and a lot of young people have uh better coverage because they could stay on their parents plans longer and the list goes on and on and on for all of the different reasons that this law has really improved access to healthcare for a whole lot of people. Um, and that's, that's part of what's going on here with, uh, using the courts, right? We, we had the moment where John McCain came out, gave the thumbs down and despite the fact that Republicans controlled both houses of Congress and the White House, they couldn't get it done. And so they're turning to the courts to get the courts to do it behind the scenes. And this is evident from many of the judges that they've already um, rubber stamped through. You know, I, it's worth saying that Trump has uh, appointed nearly 200 judges in his first three years. This far outpaces uh, the Obama administration. And to kind of put that in context, that's a fifth of all federal judges now in the country uh, were somebody appointed by Trump. And those people will fill a lot of those people are really young. So they're going to be on those courts for a very long time. And to it's, come. it's a 50, 51 votes is all McConnell needs for the, the federal judges, right? Right. Well, McConnell undid a lot of the uh, sort of barriers that 
made the process a little bit more stringent, um, particularly for appeals court judges. You needed to previously have what was called the blue slip, which meant that the senator from the home state uh, sort of gives their okay to move forward with the nomination of the judge. They got was rid it, of that I process. I thought it was Harry Reid who changed the filibuster rule. Um, he changed it for the Supreme Court only. It was the Republicans that then changed it um for lower court judges. Oh, to it's the, I got it the other way around. Okay, I see. I see. Or maybe so, I have it the other way around. But at any rate, the blue slip process was something separate from that. So um, it's another another way that Republicans have uh, devolved the system along the way. Right. And is there anything the Democrats can be blamed for? I know that they complained that Amy Klobuchar voted for a couple of judges that she shouldn't have. You know, none of the Democrats' votes um, on some of these more problematic nominees were deciding votes, uh, as far as I understand it. So, you know, the eyes are are generally on Susan Collins. Uh, she's voted no on Trump judges more than any of the other Republicans, but she's always sort of given this free pass uh, because she can vote no and the Republicans can still win. Uh, the issue uh, when we've had a couple nominees with draw uh, or things like that has been when multiple Republicans are opposed and then the nomination can't move forward. So uh, I I really think all of this is on the Senate Republicans and on McConnell. And I I think that the two nominees that Trump advanced just a few weeks ago uh, are are really going to be important conversation for us to be having because uh, these two nominees, uh, one of them, his name is Corey Wilson. Uh, Corey Wilson had originally uh, been nominated to be a district judge, the sort of lowest level federal judge. Um, but for some reason, his nomination wasn't getting votes and wasn't getting votes. And then all of a sudden, they nominated him for a vacancy on the Fifth Circuit, which oversees Mississippi, Arkansas, and Texas. Uh, it's a very conservative circuit right now. Uh, lots of these anti-healthcare decisions have come out of that circuit because the Republicans challenged them in, in Texas. And he he has a terrible record on a number of issues, but has openly attacked the Affordable Care Act, um, said that it was it, it shouldn't even count as law because Republicans didn't vote for it, which mm-hmm. would if if applied would undo a lot of other uh Republican passed legislation. Um, he called the ACA illegitimate. He called it perverse. He advocated for the Supreme Court to overturn it. He also, by the way, opposed expanding Medicaid in Mississippi. Uh, and because that didn't happen, another hundred thousand people went without access to care. Uh, so this is somebody who has a very clear open agenda against health care. And then the other one we need to pay attention to is a, a guy by the name of Justin Walker. Uh, Justin Walker has been like buddies with Mitch McConnell for a long time, apparently because of his grandfather, um, I think being a, a donor, or it's not really clear what their relationship has been. Um, but Justin Walker wrote some essay in high school about uh, Mitch McConnell, and Mitch McConnell read it and thought it was very good and mm-hmm. above par for a, a high school student. <laughs> Whatever. It was all very like, we're white boys and we're protecting each other kind of nonsense. And So Justin Walker was nominated last year. The American Bar Association, which reviews all of these judges' records before their nominations, deemed him unqualified because he had barely set foot in a courtroom. He had um, maybe sat in on, like, one deposition and never actually tried a case. And now he was going to be overseeing a courtroom. Uh, So that was a problem. But 
Kavanaugh or Kavanaugh was his former boss. So Justin Walker, um, his biggest claim to fame is that he was on Fox News dozens and dozens of times defending Brett Kavanaugh during his nomination process, including after all of Dr. Ford's uh, attacks came out. Uh, and he praised his old boss, uh, Kavanaugh for having written a dissent that laid out a roadmap for the courts to overturn the Affordable Care Act. Uh, this was a dissent that Kavanaugh had written back when he was on the D.C. Circuit. And wow. so here are two judges that w- w- the president and Mitch McConnell want to raise uh, to these very powerful courts. Uh, like I said, the Fifth Circuit hears all of these challenges that the Republicans um bring in federal court because they go to this particular judge that they like in Texas. Uh, and so then it goes up to the fifth circuit. And then the DC circuit is often called the second most powerful court in the country because it rules on all of these issues, um, especially like challenges between the branches. So all of these cases we're seeing right now where Congress is trying to subpoena the white house, uh, these cases are in the DC circuit right now. And, Walker, in addition to being super anti-healthcare, has these views on executive power that are very broad and scary. Uh, and so he'll be one of these judges that could be on this court and say, eh, I don't think Trump needs to have any accountability whatsoever to checks and balances, and the Congress can't subpoena him. So a whole lot of things going wrong here. But in particular, their willingness to overturn the Affordable Care Act and and both Trump and McConnell being really adamant that like we need to get back to normal because that's the first thing we're going to do. Um, uh, I think McConnell's motto that he said again on in an interview, like just last week is uh, leave no seat unfilled. Um, he's going to try to force these judges through as much as he can. So we really need to be having conversations that uh, these folks are really looking to undermine our health care. And this is the priority that our leaders are focused on behind the scenes during a pandemic. Zach Ford is press secretary for Alliance for Justice. They've been leading the fight for a fair America for more than 40 years. And hopefully you will join us this Friday night at 9 p.m. for the David Feldman Show Zoom meeting where listeners and guests get to talk to one another. Any chance you'll show up briefly for that and take some questions? Well, now that I see so many eager faces already watching this conversation, I know there are fans out there, so uh, i got to tune back in, I guess. So well, I, can... I think what would be nice is to have you come back and uh, take questions from our listeners. This uh, Zoom thing is getting more and more interesting. It's a new development in the show. So thank you so much for doing this, and maybe I'll see you Friday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. All right. Thanks, and nice to see all of you. Chartreuse says, hi, Zach. Amazing to see you. Hi. <laughs> I've got, we got to go. Thank you. I'll talk to you later in the week and maybe Zach, you, well, you are going to come to the nine o'clock. Sure. Why not? This is great. Okay. Thank you, Zach. I'll All talk right, to you thanks, real David. soon. Thank you. Bye. We're rolling. I live in a park, and there are uh, there are birds, and they're all all around. And I love them. Okay.
And you know, if I play Morrissey music, but not other music, if I play Morrissey music, the birds go wild. They sing like mad. If, and if I want them to stop, I just play someone else. Do you know if you play the birds, Morrissey goes mad? Okay. They love Morrissey. The, the, the birds love him. Okay. All right. Those are actual birds. Yes. Okay. Joining us from Los Angeles is Howie Klein. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive and some socialist candidates around the country. He also writes Down with Tyranny, which is required reading for everybody. Hello, Howie Klein. Hi, David. We also have about 28 people attending this taping via Zoom and or phone. They have a lot of questions they want to ask you. But first, before we get to our Zoom attendees, I had Tom Winter on today's show. He's fantastic. Every candidate you've introduced me to has said they would be interested in doing a town hall with you and my listeners. So, well, the ones I'm introducing you to are the ones who are really smart and 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 speak well and have something to say. So it's it's you know I mean it's not fair. I'm not introducing you to fools. I'm introducing you to the opposite of fools. And Tom is great. Tom is the uh, candidate for an open seat in Montana. He's a state legislator now, and the open congressional seat. Uh, he can win it. He's uh, he's a, a very very um, well spoken and experienced candidate, and he's pro- they don't know who the Republican is going to be, but he's probably going to be an idiot. Oh, Gianforte. Fact, he's running he's against. An idiot. He's running against Gianforte. He would be running against Gianforte. The, the guy reason who- it's open is Gianforte is running for the uh, the Senate seat. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. So Gianforte is the congressman now, the at-large congressman, and he's trying to uh, move to the Senate. He probably will fail at that, and I think that Tom will also win the uh, that that seat of his at um, one congressional seat. Interestingly enough, I might say Montana is probably going to have two House seats uh, starting in, in uh, 2021. So the 2022 election uh, after the census is probably going to be two seats for Montana. Their population has been growing. Okay. Are we going to have a census? Good question. Uh, I mean, as far as I know, the census is done online. I mean, I, I filled mine out online and everyone I know did as well. Right. Okay. Be interesting to see. Well, we have a lot of people with their hands raised. I just wanted to ask you about the New York primary, which was scheduled for June. It's now been canceled. They're still going to have the congressional primaries and the local primaries, but for the presidential primary, they're just giving it to Biden. Are you offended by that? Well, well, I mean, that's one way to put it. They're they're canceling it entirely because they said there's no contest. There's no one, there's no, uh, there's no one, you know, running against Biden is the way they put it. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm not happy about it, and no progressives are happy about it. But uh, Cuomo d- wanted very much to do a solid for Biden, not embarrass him. I mean, what if Bernie would have won? Or what if Bernie would have won a very significant number of delegates, which is likely? Uh, it would have made Biden look bad. So, that, so they canceled it. There, you know, I mean, people know what what uh, Cuomo is. But if we're long as we're talking about New York, I think there's something much more important. And people who watch Saturday Night Live 
uh, this past weekend may have noticed that uh, D- uh, Pete Davidson was the guest of Colin Jost uh, to talk about uh, sex guidelines for this, uh, the pandemic. And as it turns out, the city health department put out a, a uh, an, an actual written uh, guideline uh, com- compilation of what to do and what not to do. And a lot of it is silly, you know, and just saying, you know, have sex with your partners and don't, don't rape anybody and things like that. But there was a little bit of a, a to do, uh, because I think, and I watched this tape over and over again to, to see if I could get it right. And it seems to me that Pete Davidson was saying that one of the things that's allowed, you know, kissing is not allowed. No kissing. You can screw, but you can't kiss. Uh, he also made a lurid comment about how uh, there's no um, there's no COVID or, or coronavirus in in men's semen, so that's that's okay also. But he then started talking about what he called Heine smoocheroos. Uh, and in the uh, in the actual guide guide book that they put out or, or guide pamphlet they put out, they don't talk about Heine smoocheroos. They talk about rimming, and they say very clearly that that's dangerous behavior and you shouldn't do it. And I believe that Pete Davidson, I mean, maybe someone correct me, can correct me, but I, I watched the video several times. I think he was saying it's okay that Heine smoocheroos are okay, and he was wrong about that. So I did a post about it for tomorrow. Well, Dave Cyrus. If you want to know more about it? I'll be happy to tell you. Oh, yeah, Dave Cyrus, the great screenwriter and comedy writer, writes Pete Davidson's stuff. So we will have him on the show this Friday. And oh, maybe he can correct me. That would be great. You, maybe we can debate rimming. No, no, if you want to debate rimming, I have a friend who knows a lot about it, uh, and he could probably. Uh, come on the show and, and talk about it much more uh, intelligently than I could. Well, maybe when Pete said rimming is okay, he was just talking about rimming in general. Like, you know, it's okay. Oh, no, he, 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 he went on a bit. Like I said, it, it's a post I wrote for tomorrow, and I included the, the video, so anyone who wants to watch the video uh, can watch the video of, um, of Pete Davidson telling a mortified-looking Colin Jost about uh, Heine Smoocheroos. Okay. And was this live? Each of them was in their ha- home. Right. Right. Okay. So, being, so Pete Jost was in his home, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, Pete Colin Jost was home, and Pete Davidson was his in, in his own home, which is in his parents' basement in Staten Island. Right. Okay. We have questions for Howie Klein from Good. the people in attendance today. We have a lot of people showing up, so let's go with Jock. Rot. I don't know. That seems. Am I pronouncing your name properly? It's Jack Rat. It's a play on Jackie. Oh, hello. It's Jack. a family thing. Everybody's a rat in my family. I see. So here's since we have a lot of listeners who have questions, I'm going to limit your question to a minute. If you go over a minute, you're going to hear this. Can you hear that? <laughs> yes. Okay. And some of you I know want that. But you, for, for the ones who like it, you're going to get this. And I, I know who wants the whip. What is your question for Howie Klein? Where are you zooming from, Jackie? Uh, Northern California, San, uh, San Leandro. San Leandro. Oh my God. Okay. 
It's just south of Oakland. I know. I used to play San Leandro, the Tommy T's all the time. There are more guns per capita in San Leandro, California than any other. There's city. a lot of racists here. It's really horrible. Yeah, it's where it's right up against Oakland. So if you don't like African-Americans, you move to San Leandro. What is your question for Howie Klein? I, I just wanted to ask Howie what what to tell people when you, you express anger at New York uh, screwing Bernie and their retort is Bernie screwed us already he, he's a sellout what do you tell those idiots Jim Earl is on the show today and thinks Bernie's a sellout for endorsing Biden <laughs> well you're not voting for Biden right so is Bernie a sellout but I don't see as being a sellout either you know, I'm, you know, I'm never Biden. Bernie is, you know, saying it's really important. I absolutely, without question, respect people who feel that uh, they want to go for the lesser of two evils. And I am, I am not going to argue with them. And on the other hand, I think that, that I and everyone else has more important things to do than uh, call Bernie a sellout. Right. But you're still not voting for Biden. No, I'm not going to vote for Biden. Okay. You know, I mean, I'm, I, I, I shouldn't really say that because I'm open to it. I am open to voting for Biden. If Biden decides that his entire, you know, 800 years of uh, uh, being in public office was a mistake and that he is now going to <clears throat> uh, change everything, now, he can't go back and change everything, but if he decides he's not going to be a racist anymore, if he decides he's not going to be a sexist pig anymore, or a misogynist, or a rapist, or whatever he was, if he decides he's going to be in favor of Medicare for All, if he decides he's going to be in favor of the Green New Deal, if he decides that state universities uh, should be free, etc., etc., if he decides all those things, I'll vote for him. Okay. He's going to have to convince me that he's not lying about it. He has to convince me that that's what he stands for now. In other words, Trump can get desperate and say uh, he's deciding he's going to, in, in these times of pandemic, he's going to go for the uh, for Medicare for all. But I wouldn't believe Trump. Right. Whereas, you know, I, I'd want Biden to convince me that he's going to go go for that. And by Biden going from sixty five year old sixty five. Uh, for the um, the age of Medicare to 60 for the age of Medicare, that doesn't move me one iota. I mean, I'm glad that he went down instead of what he's wanted to do for his whole career, which is going up in age. Uh, but that that isn't enough. Uh, but, you know, like I said, I'll be open, and uh, I don't expect that he'll change uh, in the direction that I'd like to see him change. So I will not be voting for him, obviously, or Trump, obviously. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe there'll be a third-party candidate, or maybe, um, maybe I'll just leave that one blank, or maybe I'll write in Bernie. Right. Let's go to uh, – great question, Jackie. Let's go Two to – second. Uh, you know who Jackie is? Do I know who she is? Yes. Aside from the person who just asked you the question, uh, last week I sent you an email that came from Jackie, and you were jumping up and down and cursing. <laughs> well, I would never curse one of our listeners. Oh, okay. she was she the one who wrote in that you bailed on a debate with Harvey J.K.? Yes. Why? Why are you stirring up? I didn't know it was Jackie. 
And she was stirring it up. I didn't tell her that she was stirring it up. I, I just sort of left it. But she was getting me angry. And I was thinking she, she's not really trying to get me not to do your show anymore. <laughs> but, but you know, it sounded like she was. Jackie. No. Go ahead, Jackie. I was disappointed. Okay. From what I heard, okay, I was here last Monday, and you talked about office hours on Friday, and you talked about it with Howie. So I showed up on Friday expecting Howie. Right. And I thought you had said, hey, where's, is Howie here yet? And, um... You know what? I'll t- here's the issue for the people listening at home. Last week, Harvey J.K. read a statement saying that he was going to endorse Biden. And Howie Klein said he's not going to vote for Biden. And in the course of this podcast, I probably did say it would be interesting for Professor Harvey J.K. and Howie Inclined to debate each other over whether or not to support Biden. So I understand. So I take responsibility. You're right. I, I misunderstood. I, I just wanted to listen to my friend Howie on the radio and yes. was disappointed. And I and I thought he was missing a gig when he didn't show up on Friday. So right. I was the, the e- right. And, and so, yes. And I never miss any gigs. He doesn't miss any. Okay. So All right. I, well. All right. I didn't okay. know it was you, Jackie, and I and I it's see me. I accused you of being a shit stirrer, and I apologize. I didn't mean to be. I honest. I I always have good intentions, except for Nera Tandon. From Think Progress. Thank you. Sorry about that, sir. Nera Tandon from uh, Center for, for American Plutocracy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Think Progress lady. Yes. Okay. Let's go to Queens, where our friend. If I can unmute him, Emilio is. Hang on. Oh, I was I I was getting ready for you to say Shania Chowdhury, and I I got all excited. We had him on Friday's show. He's fantastic. He is a there. You you want to talk about a shit star? There is a shit star, all right. Yes, we're going stir crazy from all the shit getting stirred, not from being indoors. Hello, Emilio. Hi, David. Hi, Howie. Hey, Emilio. My question is about the Tara Reid accusation. Now, so first there was the accusation, and then a couple weeks later she filed a police report. Then, you know, a couple weeks after that, there's now there, there's, like, footage from a Larry King interview with her mom calling in. Now neighbors of her hers are corroborating the story. So it seems to be, like, picking up steam. But in the midst of all this, um, over the weekend – uh, Barack Obama reiterated his support for Joe Biden on Twitter. Meanwhile, New York, which is where I live, canceled uh, the Democratic primary, and maybe more states are going to cancel their primary. So it shows that the Democratic, uh, the DNC is standing, you know, firmly with Biden. So we're three and a half months away from the convention. If this story continues to pick up steam, I mean, how can it be possible that? the DNC doesn't do something about it or, you know, Biden, even if Biden comes out and personally says he denies it, I mean, isn't this too big of a story to just keep ignoring it? Great question. It is. It, it, it is. I, I, I and many other people have written about it as it, as it developed, and uh, I'm very disturbed by it, and I know a lot of other people are very disturbed by it. And I have, you know, I hate to be a conspiracy theorist, but things that have been told to me, uh, by 
fairly reliable sources have said that even some of Biden's closest aides who have the most to gain from him becoming president have said he doesn't have what it takes um, to run a campaign, let alone to be the president of the United States. And they they're thinking that he will be replaced. They just don't want him replaced by Bernie. They want it to happen at whatever the convention is. And, you know, they talk about people like Cuomo and other uh, centrist uh, <laughs> centrist politicians. So, you know, I, I you know, I, you know, hey, we're talking about that now. I, I, I don't know if that's going to happen, but it's something that is, is in, in the <clears throat> Beltway rumor mill. So that uh, Biden will wind up for whatever reason or series of reasons will wind up not being the candidate and that somehow they will manage to pick not Bernie. So three and a half months out from the convention, what would you say is the probability that Biden is not the nominee? We're three and a half months out. Would you give it a significant percentage or is it a pipe dream? But, but what I can say is that the Democratic establishment is absolutely convinced that this is an election about not about ideas, not even about candidates. It's, an, it's a referendum on Trump, and that's it. It doesn't matter who their candidate is. Uh, you know, I mean, if he, if he was going around raping women, uh, that might be another story. But it doesn't matter who their candidate is. It's just a referendum on Trump, and anyone can win. That's what they think. Emilio, do you know, do you know Emilio or Howie? Are there more women coming forward? There are a lot of women corroborating Tara Reid, but are there more women coming forward, making a similar the, accusation? No, not with that serious of an accusation. It's only women who have talked about you know being touched in ways that they didn't want to, like touching their hair, sniffing their hair, putting him putting his hands on their shoulders, or being too close. It's uh, this is. You know, Tara Reid is the only one who has discussed actually being, you know, I don't want to be graphic, but being digitally penetrated right. by him. Right. So. Yeah. Well, we Please, we only talk about rimming on this show, Emilio. We, <laughs> we want to keep it. We want to keep it clean. Forrest from Florida is asking if Howie knows if CNN tried to pull that video down too, the one of the mother calling into Larry King. Have you heard anything about CNN? I haven't. This is the first I'm hearing of it. Okay. Thank you, Emilio. Great question. Let's now go to Tom in Portland. Hello, Tom. Good union Hi. man. Tom is a good union man. Hello, Tom. Yes. I'm not in a union myself, but uh, I'd like to form one. Okay. Uh, so a question for how I'm going to try to pose this in the form of a question. I'm wondering, Howie, if you share my frustration about just the whole conversation around primaries themselves. You do a great job um on this show, focusing our attention on house races and the fact that there is more races in November than just the president. Line. So when we're canceling these primaries because moderates say, well, we don't really need them anyway. We've already settled on Bernie. It makes it really hard to get out the vote and motivate people to actually register and be engaged in local races for their house seats, their Senate seats, their state yes, house you're right. Senate. Good it drives me nuts. So I'm going to just say one more thing. I'm going to. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Oh, hang on. Wrong sound effect. There we go. All right. This is my voter pamphlet. Okay. It came in the mail. The election is May 19th. I'm an Oregon citizen. This is a thick pamphlet. 
There's a lot of things to vote on. I'm in Oregon. I can vote safely from my home without getting COVID-19. It's the only way you can vote. What's that? I believe it's the only way you can vote. Thanks to Howie, we had had Mark Gamba on the show. He's the mayor of Milwaukee, Oregon, and he says that the only way to vote in Oregon is through the mail. But look at all these things to vote on, guys. This, it's not just it's not just whether Bernie is. I'm going to vote for Bernie. He has suspended his campaign. He didn't cancel it. Well, they they've only it. suspended the presidential part of the primary. Right, but the the point is, we need a national movement not to have one size vote by mail. The Constitution requires this to be settled at the state level. The Supreme Court will throw out any national law about mail in voting. Every state has to get organized. Fight like hell starting right now to hundred million voting. Well, you know, every, every, no, I mean, very few states have as good a system as Oregon does. That's for sure. A few, a few do, but very few. I think there are five now. Okay. But every state, uh, allows, uh, mail in, mail in voting without a hassle, except for 11. And all 11 states that do, it's either 11 or 13, I think it's 11. All 11 states that don't allow it or that hassle voters who want to do it, they're all deep red states, and it, I don't care, and, and no one should care. I mean, those are states that will, even in the most optimistic day, None of those states will ever uh, vote for a Democrat for president anyway, so fine. Let them let them do it their own way. Who cares? Okay, we have a lot every, of questions. Go ahead. Every important state, every blue state has the opportunity for people to vote by mail without having to make up, uh, without having to give a doctor's note or an excuse or any uh, being questioned about it. It's just fine. Tom, uh, now the ideal would be something different. The ideal would be every voter would get a uh, a ballot in the mail with a self-addressed stamped envelope. Okay, Tom, I'm going to, because you're a friend of the show, you get this, but you can ask one more. But people are waiting, so very quickly, Tom. I want to say that I disagree with naming a state a red state. I don't think we actually know. I have this fantasy that if we actually had vote by mail the way Oregon does and everybody gets this ballot and everybody can fill it out in their own sweet time, because even if they work three jobs, you'd see a hell of a lot of blue states that used to be red. Okay, Tom, well said. I'm going to mute you. Very possible. Let us now go to Henry Hakamaki. Hakamaki. Close enough. (laughs) How is it pronounced, Henry? It's Hakamaki. Hakamaki. It's Finnish, in case you're oh, wondering. Okay. What is your question for Howie Klein, and where are you Zooming from? So I'm Zooming from my parents' basement in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Wow. Oh, uh, I was, like, so hoping you would say you were someplace in Finland and were giving me an opportunity to talk about my summer in Finland. But uh, let's talk about um, your question. Well, you can talk about Finland, uh, you know, I Anytime that you want. Usually I live in Germany, but I'm kind of stuck here because of the uh, whole pandemic situation. You'd be better off in Germany right now than you would be in Michigan, I'll tell you that. Well, where I am right now is kind of in the middle of the woods. (laughs) I'm fine either way. Right. Uh, So my question, Howie, is related to what you said to Jackie about. um, So we, we know that you're not voting for Biden unless 
some miracle happens where he has Bernie as his vice president and he adopts all sorts of progressive legislation and makes a compelling case that he's actually going to carry through with that. Well, he's not going to have Bernie as his vice president. He, he is committed to having a woman, a woman and, that's, and that's fine with me. Uh, okay. But assuming that those things are not going to happen, you're not voting for Biden. Um, and you said that you're going to be looking between either just leaving the presidential section blank or voting for a third party um, candidate. And there's a lot or of writing in Bernie or writing in Bernie. Um, so I, I've got a quote for you. And then I want to hear your take on the quote and how it relates to what your strategy will be in the general election. So it's a quote from Marx in 1850, his address to the Communist League. He said, even when there's no prospect whatsoever of their being elected, the workers must put up their own candidates in order to persevere their independence, to count their forces, and to bring before the public their revolutionary attitude and party standpoint. In this connection, they must not allow themselves to be seduced by such arguments of the Democrats, that's small d Democrats, uh, as, for example, that by doing, they are splitting the Democratic Party, again, small d, and making it possible for the reactionaries to win. The quote goes on from there. The point that I'm trying to, to tease out of you is, do you think that voting for a third party candidate specifically that really aligns with your views, even though they have no chance of winning, makes a stronger stance than just not voting for Biden? Or is not voting for Biden making a statement in itself that we're not satisfied with the direction of the Democratic Party? Big D is going. Great question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's either I don't I don't see how either one of them is a better option than the other one. I I, I like them both. Um, you know, last time I voted for a third party candidate who I uh, didn't even really think was qualified necessarily to be president, and I just did it to to make a statement that I'm not satisfied with the Democratic Party. Um, if I would have um, voted in the congressional race instead and the other down ballot races and then left the presidential um, part of my ticket, uh, my ballot blank. That would have sent a message too, but I don't know how many people would have gotten that message. And I kind of thought that people would get it better if I voted for um, the third party candidate. And I'll probably do that. Although, you know, if I'm voting by mail anyway, and they make it easy to write in, then there's no question that what I'll do. If it's easy to write in, I will be writing in Bernie Sanders. So if, if I may just add one uh, quick addition to that question, who would you be voting for if you were voting third party? Would it be Green Party or is there some other party that is even smaller than the Green Party that aligns more with your personal ideal? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe the Green Party. I, I'm, not, are they, I, I'm not certain. And uh, like I said, it's... I don't expect the third party candidate to win and I, it doesn't matter to me. I just want to, you know, let the Democratic Party know that, um, they're going to lose voters if they continue along this, uh, neoliberal path. Great. And Great. I think that that's a, that's a valuable message to send them. Okay. We have some people think, think that you, that there's nothing you can do about them and they are what they are and it'll never change. It'll never get better. I don't, I don't. I'm not certain that that's right. I'm not certain that it's wrong, but uh, you know we don't really have much of an option. Let's go to James. Is it Mugavero? I finally got to see your face. Oh, we've met before. David. I know. 
There, are you in? Where are you in Walnut Creek? No, I've never been in Walnut Creek. I was in the Bay Area for a long time. I'm now down here in Indian Wells, Palm Springs area. Lucky which is you. Sure. You're a dog. Do you train dogs? Do you train dogs? I did. You don't train dogs anymore. No. How about, how about humans? What is your question for Howie Klein? <laughs> well, I was going to say I'm down here in the land of uh, old, rich white people, and even older and richer white people. So it's <laughs> yeah. consistent sort of with the demographics I'm seeing on my screen right now. A bunch of old white guys like us. We need, you know, anyway, broaden this little uh, cotillion. Uh, There's some women here. Now there is, yeah. There's a couple women. But yeah. in any event, my question is, um, with respect to especially down-ballot um, candidates and whatnot, I mean <laughs> – you know, I'm torn, and I'm sure a lot of people are as well as a true progressive. And in full disclosure, I'm probably to the left of even Jim Earl, who's a good, dear, dear buddy. Uh, so that'll tell you where I'm coming from. That being said, I, I just don't see how we can effectively achieve any sort of change within a system that is proven to be um, and maybe even designed to be uh, a buttress or support of the status quo and against change. Right. So why, you know, I've donated to Democratic candidates in the past, and quite frankly, I, I don't see anyone, including Bernie and the gang of four, doing anything but kneeling to the DNC, curtsying before Pelosi, et cetera, and, and the entire Democrats passing uh, Trump's legislation. Hence, Going back to the previous question, I think voting for a third-party candidate makes a stronger statement than not voting for Biden or even writing in Bernie. You know, that's a great question because you look at the stimulus bill, the last iteration, the third one, only AOC voted against it. So James makes a good point, doesn't he, Howie? He does, uh, and all of these things are just fine with me. Everyone should figure out the way to do it on their own and do what they think is the best thing for themselves. I will say that, I, I, and please don't ask me to give away the name of the person, and I'm sure people can, you know, sleuth it out, but I'm not going to acknowledge who it is. But I spoke to a congressman who told me uh, he didn't vote, and he didn't vote because he thought that, well, he didn't vote, and he thought or she thought that the bill sucked for the same reasons that we thought that bill sucked. So, yes, AOC voted no, and this other congressperson didn't vote. Yeah. It was another bailout to the banks. I mean, the, the idea that the Small Business Administration can't hand out the loans, they need the banks to do it and collect exorbitant fees. It's uh, The Progressive Caucus... Uh, a lot of the members of the Progressive Caucus felt that they had no choice. Uh, I, I don't agree, and uh, I think they did have a choice, but they felt that they didn't, and they therefore voted, uh, you know, with the establishment Democrats and the establishment Republicans, and they all voted for it together. The Progressive Democrats had no choice. Now they know how we feel. Have a choice, uh, but I don't agree with them. Yeah. I agree with AOC's position. All right. Thank you, James. Great question. Let's go to Ethan Nesbitt. Where are you zooming from, Ethan? Uh, in Portland, Maine. Ah, okay. That's right. All right. Maine is practically my second home. And you're, you're, you're an activist for diabetes. Yeah, yeah, my brother. Um, yeah. you what? changed your hat and you go outside. 
I did go outside briefly yesterday. And, wow. and I realized why I don't go outside in New York. <laughs> uh, what is your question for Howie Klein? Uh, hey, Howie. Um, I, yeah, I was wondering, um, you know, before the DNC took out Bernie, I, I was getting emails from the DGA begging me for money for Democrats. And now I've gotten at least one from Obama. And so I th- I thought it was particularly obnoxious, you know, when Bernie was in the race and he raised $45 million in February alone from small-dollar donors. So I was wondering if you think, uh, is Biden not going to be able to raise the donations from corporate donors that a centrist Dem typically would because of Trump's total servitude to Wall Street and the corporations? And if not, how how is that going to affect him? Great question. Howie? Oh, I muted you because, Howie, are you there? I am. You keep muting me. I keep I, unmuting myself. You keep muting me. I, I, I commuted you for the crimes that, I, I can't give you a pardon, but, uh, so, yeah, are you cooking? How do you know? I just, I know that you cook. You're always cooking. What, what are you cooking? Well, before? not always. It's, you know, 4.30. Uh, what do you expect me to be doing? I know. But, you know, Howie, it's your home. You don't have to go for the early bird special. It's your home. You can. Well, I, you know, the thing is, I don't, like, you know, make omelets for dinner. Uh, you know, I, um, I some of the things that, like the dish that I was just working on, I actually started uh, at around 11 this morning. Okay. And I, I just, uh, you know, put the finishing touch on it, which is going to take another hour and a half. Okay. All right. We have 32 people here right now who have questions. So oh, nice. Ethan, uh, answer Ethan's question, please. Oh, I, I, I was paying attention to the miso sauce I was making. Tell me what it was again. <laughs> uh, just um, if you think that the if Biden is going to be in trouble because of... Oh, with the fundraising. Yeah. You know, the, corporate, the corporate Democrats are going to raise money for him and, the, you know, the people who own him and have owned and have financed his entire career since the 70s, they'll, they'll pony up for him. Uh, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that there's going to be a great swell of support for him among uh, uh, grassroots donors. There'll be some. You know, there, there are people who, who, you know, I mean, if you go online and you argue the never uh, Biden thing, you, you know what, what happens. I mean, there are people who get very, very upset by it and go insane and scream and yell. And uh, I, you know, I, David took a poll last time we were on and I think 70% of David's and my listeners were voting for Biden. Yeah. So, yeah, he'll, I don't know if that's going to translate to, uh, to the kind of enthusiasm it takes to raise uh, millions and, or even hundreds of millions of dollars. I, I doubt it, but we'll see. Okay, James. Well, I don't think that uh, he's going to lose for lack of money. I, I don't think that's what's going to happen. The Democrats are gigantically outraising Republicans now. I was looking at some of the figures this morning, uh, and I think there was only one example of the of the races of the, these are congressional races. There was only one example where a Republican had raised actually j- just a few dollars more than the Democrat. 
And, okay. and that included $600,000 of self-funding. So there wasn't really one race of, uh, of these congressional races. These are, these are all, um, swings, swing district congressional races. There wasn't one where the Democrats weren't out raising the Republicans and almost all of them were Democrats. I don't want to say as bad as Biden because they mostly weren't as bad as Biden, but almost as bad as Biden. And when give them a few more years and they'll be as bad as Biden. Okay. So they were all like really bad Democrats, blue dogs and new Dems. And, um, and there were a couple of progressives in there, but very, very few. It was all really, really crap Democrats. And they were all raising money like mad. Now they raised money from PACs and they raised money from uh, more PACs and they raised money from not good sources, many of them, but they were raising money. I, I don't see them as the, the ones, you know, like Abigail Spanberger in Virginia. She's not raising money from, uh, you know, many grassroots types. She's raising some money from people like that. I mean, I, I speak to a woman in her district frequently because she makes these sugar-free, gluten-free cookies. She has a bakery, and she sends them to me, and she also sends them to me to try new flavors. So I, I love her, and she um, she she gets angry at me that you know when I tell her how horrible Spanberger is. Now she doesn't follow Spanberger's voting record the way I do, so I go over the voting record with her, and it just gets her very frustrated and angry because to her she was in a district with one horrible Republican after another, which is true, the Eric Cantor and then David Bratt. And now she has a Democrat, so she's happy. And when I point out that, that Spanberger is voting the same way that Eric Cantor or David Bratt would have, would have voted, right. she, uh, she gets angry. Okay, so Howie, uh, Howie, I'm going to yeah. interrupt you. Hang on for one second. Right. We, a lot of people have questions, and I, I, we're not going to be able to get to them if we, so I, I have a question from Nick. Why? We can go on forever. No, no, we have, uh, we have to wrap it up in about 10 minutes. Oh. So Citizen right. Poutine, Nick, Justin Hibbard, and Paul LeBeau, and then the rest of you, I'm just not going to be able, I'm going to plow through Nick, Citizen Poutine. Let's just do it as fast as possible, and I'll try not to go on and on. Okay, and I'll just go through these four questions, and let us now go to Nick. Where are you, Nick? You're in, are you in Hollywood? I'm in Los Angeles. You're in Los Angeles. Yeah. Let me do my Don Rickles. Like, that's any better? All right, go ahead. <laughs> I don't know. So what is your question? Um, it's good to see you again, Nick. What's your question you for Howie? Uh, it, it's funny that you mentioned uh, Spanberger because I, I grew up in that district, um, and my parents currently live there. And, and that, uh, uh, although my Central mother and I agree on a lot Virginia. of things. Uh, oh, that's Midlothian, Virginia. It's a suburb outside of Richmond. So. Mm-hmm. It was, it was dreadfully uh, Tea Party for years, and it's kind of moved a little bit more um, centrist, but it's still got a lot of awful Republicans out there. But um, you know, I and awful Democrats. <laughs> it's got a lot of awful Democrats. Yeah, we're, we're running out of time. What is your question? So, do you plan on do you uh, uh, are you looking into running a candidate against uh, Abigail uh, Spanberger? No, it's no. possible. No. First of all, uh, um, I, I, that's not that's you know if if a candidate comes forward and they are a really great candidate and they show that they've got what it takes to um, you know to run a race and to win, then I get behind them. But when you say run a candidate, that that isn't so, that's that's too difficult. I, I really learned that if the candidate 
doesn't have the motivation and they have to be like talked into it by someone else, they don't win anyway. The, the, the kind of candidates who win are people who are willing to like rip someone's heart out of their body in order to win. And, uh, you know, if someone like that comes forward and says they have a Medicare for all and they want to uh, defeat Abigail Spanberger, I'll get behind them. Okay, thank you. That's not going to happen, by the way. Okay, let us let us now go to Citizen Poutine, who I believe is coming to us from Montreal or Toronto. I'm coming from Toronto, David. Good to see you, Citizen Poutine. And Great we we have to have you on as a guest. You're you can talk to us about the business world. Uh, maybe we'll have you and Justin on together. Go ahead. What is your question? Happily. Thank you. Um, well, I, very quick first question, and it's on behalf of all of my fellow students at the Feldman University School for Culinary Arts. <laughs> How will you release your recipe for chili with chocolate? I, I, I don't ha- I don't really have one. I mean, I made it once. Uh, but I don't even, I mean, it was so long ago, I don't recall. And whenever anybody asks me for a recipe, I, I don't have anything written down, but I, I try to get it together. Like, I, I, I actually, we got like 25 people uh, emailing me and asking me for my Simmons re- recipe. And I, and I sent it to people, and people have been really happy with it. But I had never written it in all, in all of my life. And I had, in fact, I had never made it uh, for the last, uh, I don't know, I, last time I made Simmons was probably in, 19, probably when Biden was first getting into politics in the uh, 1970s. I don't think that's a good answer. Citizen Poutine, you're a journalist. Do you think he he wasn't being honest, was he? What do you mean? I don't have a recipe. I don't have a recipe for chili with chocolate. You talked about it on the show once or twice, and... Chili with chocolate? I don't think so. You you must be mixing me up with somebody else. No, 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 no. I know exactly what you're talking about, Citizen uh, Poutine. Okay, I, I, I did make chili with chocolate once. Ah, It's experimenting than having a recipe. All right, all right. Thank you, Citizen Poutine. Right, you know what? I won't, I won't answer my citizen. I won't answer. Next week, I will, I, I'm going to make chili with chocolate, okay? And I'll try to remember the recipe. And you'll remember the recipe. Okay. Citizen Poutine, uh, you have another question, but can we get to it? Let's, uh, we'll get to it next time, Howie's on. Thank you. Thank you. I think this is becoming a, uh, our, uh, very addictive. And the last question comes to us. Well, we have, uh, Justin and Paul. Justin, sorry to keep you waiting. Okay. Um, so, Howie, uh, question about California state politics. Um, I'm up in San Francisco. We have a state senator here, Scott Weiner, who I absolutely cannot stand. And what's the name? Uh, I missed what you said. Scott Weiner. Oh, Scott, Scott Weiner. Doesn't sound yeah. familiar. California state senator, uh, used to be a San Francisco board of supervisors. Anyway. He has been successfully primaried by a young up-and-coming progressive named Jackie Fielder, and they will be uh, running against each other in the fall. I just wanted to know if, uh, if Jackie Fielder was a, uh, a high-profile activist in the uh, – uh, it was a pipeline uh, dispute. Anyway, she's successfully uh, – uh, 
primary Scott Wiener. I wanted to know if you were aware of her. And you know, well, I, um, now I am, but I wasn't before, and I'm happy that you're telling me about her. Okay. Yeah, I, I really would uh, encourage you and Blue America to take a look at it. Great. Okay. okay. Well, thank you very much. I will. And Justin is going to be here Friday night at 9 o'clock, and he's going to try to get one of the leaders of the rent strike as a guest for our Friday night meeting. There's going to be a riff. Our last question comes to us from Paul LeBeau. Hello, Paul. Good to see you again. Hey there. Yeah. I just want, this is Quickie. I just want uh, Howie to clarify something. Maybe I'm taking Harvey's position here. You're in a blue state. I'm in a blue state, Maryland. Are you saying if you're in a swing state, you would still not vote for the lesser of two rapists? <laughs> um, well, Paul, I, no one really knows, right? I, I have thought about this for years. How do I? I know what I'm doing in California. There's no question about it. it. What if I was in Ohio? What if I was in Florida? That's what your question is, and I don't know the answer. I don't think I would vote for Biden. You know, my hatred of Biden didn't start when he became vice president. Didn't start when he decided to run for president for the fiftieth time. My hatred of Biden started when he ran the first time on one plank. His one plank was racism. I will protect you from Negroes. That was his plank. So I hated him since the early 70s. And I decided then that I would never vote for that guy for anything under any circumstances. And, and he got worse and worse and worse. Biden was always fighting, a, in his mind, funny battle with Joe Lieberman for who is the most conservative Democrat. Right. So, you know, I, I don't, I like to say to myself, Howie, if I was, if you were the, um, the person who decided the election, you either voted for Biden or, uh, or he loses, what would you do then? It just came down to me. Fantastic. And I like to say, I wouldn't vote for him. Fantastic. And I don't know if I, if I have the intestinal fortitude to carry that out. I well, just don't know. Maybe don't if you, maybe knows. if you ate, Chili with chocolate, you would have the intestinal fortitude. No, I'd have less intestinal fortitude. <laughs> uh, Joe Britton writes, these questions are pretty smart for basement masturbators. Some people accuse my audience of being basement masturbators, but I think a lot of us do it in the attic. Hey, this you know, was... We're supposed to be on from uh, my time four to five, and it's only eight minutes to five. Why can't we have more questions? Because I have to cut you off because I have to prepare for Professor Harvey J.K. Who, it was a woman who, who, who wrote to me today and said she wanted to ask me about Lou Reed. And I said, yes, I would be happy to talk about Lou Reed. Is she, is she not asking a question? Uh, is there a woman? Who, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end this, but I have an idea, Okay. Let me thank Howie Klein. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, which raises money for progressive and some socialist candidates around America. Uh, you, you had him on. He's a yes, socialist I, candidate. Yeah, yeah, yes, I did. And uh, Down with Tyranny is required reading tomorrow. Howie, or today, Howie writes about the 2020 anti-red wave and the billionaires who are taking advantage of small business loans and read them over at Down with Tyranny. Howie, thank you so much. Stay on the line, and I want to thank all the people who showed up and you asked great questions. Thank you. Hang on for one second. Call in your backup becomes now. See if we can get some more brain power in this. We thing. got one here. Roger. Fly it in, go. Go and go. Uh, he's, never mind, he's straight up a little bit. 
Okay. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the uh, limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good, so if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Joining us from Wisconsin is Professor Harvey J.K. His latest book is FDR on Democracy, The Greatest Speeches and Writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Hello, Professor Harvey J.K. Hello, David, and hello to everybody else who's listening or watching now. We are doing a seminar with Professor Harvey J.K., we put an invite out to some of the loyal listeners and asked them to come with questions for Professor Harvey J.K. We have about 60 participants here, and we're going to try to get to all your questions. Welcome, Professor Harvey J.K. How are things in Wisconsin? Uh, things in Wisconsin are uneven. Okay. Um, in recent weeks, I had hoped that Northeast Wisconsin, Green Bay in particular, could escape the worst of the virus, but all three of the meatpacking plants in Green Bay have become hotspots. One of them has now closed its operation, though apparently is continuing to pay its workers, which is wonderful. One of those three is actually just three blocks away to my right. So Green Bay itself is is by no means escaping the, the virus. Yeah, and a lot of people came down with the virus after voting in the primary, which many people Milwaukee. Yeah. should have been uh, postponed. Yeah. Okay. Let us get to it. Let's get okay, to our listeners. Somebody, I'm going to be the traffic they, cop. Yeah. Go ahead, yeah. Professor. I just see someone on the screen who I think is in a car, a moving vehicle. Well, our Zoom meeting two weeks ago, Friday night at 9 p.m., we had a pilot who was about to take oh, off. Right. Right, right. We've had some of them. I should mention that practically most of the people in attendance have been attending our Friday night Zoom meetings, and they they are humbling. We have a guy in China who walks the streets of Beijing. We had a pilot. But let's first go to Paul in – where are you, Paul? I should know that. You should know. I'm in Annapolis, Maryland. In Annapolis, Maryland. Mm -hmm. What is your question for Professor Harvey J.K.? Well, I think I'm going to first have to suck up a little bit to, to Harvey because I'm going to be asking a very critical question about FDR. My listeners, this is like, just come out swinging, just not. <laughs> For the suck up, he'll get an A. Okay. <laughs> the suck up part is as soon as I heard him on, on Sam Cedar, I ran out and bought his book. So immediately, it's a great book. Which one? He's written like 12. Gonna make America radical again. Yes. Oh, thanks. Really, Thank really good. Yes. So let me just preface this question because it won't make any sense unless I do. Um, I'm going to say something that your your response is probably going to be that can't 
possibly be? Number one is the federal government cannot create money. It can't create money. The Federal Reserve can create reserves, but reserves never enter the uh, the real economy. Number two is all the money that you have in your wallet, in your bank account, or under your bed is created by private commercial banks when they lend. And this is the result of the Federal Reserve Act in 1913. The what act? The Federal, Federal Reserve Act. Federal Reserve Act, yeah. Right. The thing is that people are concerned about the money power, like the Koch brothers and, and uh, Bloomberg. It's not so much that people have the money, but it's, it's the actual entities that create the money. That's the money power, and it's something that uh, people just don't know about. And I, w- I would urge people, I can't go into it obviously now, but to, to Google, Google what I just said, um, it's fascinating. Um, so let me just read a, a one sentence from um, from a, a thesis a his, uh, thesis uh, written by a history student. I'll just say along the way that you you may be asking me something I'm not as equipped to answer as I understand that yeah. I understand that, but you might have an answer. He, he said this is um, Bronson Cutting, who you may know. The name is sort of in there somewhere. Okay, he was a very radical Republican um, senator. And uh, radical, he, like after the Civil War or during the FDR years? FDR years. Oh, different type yeah, of yeah. radical. What yeah. state was he from? Would you happen to know? Yeah, New Mexico. But he yeah. went to school with uh, Roosevelt, and they were actually friends. They kind of had a, a parting of ways. Uh, he was very skeptical about voting uh, for Roosevelt. He just didn't trust him. Um, but that was back in the 19, early 30s. But he says, I think back to the events of March 4th, 1933, with a sick heart. For then, the nationalization of banks by President Roosevelt could have been accomplished without a word of protest. It was, it was President Roosevelt's great mistake. And we are really paying for that now because we've, even though Roosevelt did win the battle against the economic royalists, he kind of lost the war. And, and we're paying for that now because now the government can't create money. And all that money that they're talking about, the $2 trillion that they voted on, that's all going to be paid back. That's, those are all loans. So do you know what Roosevelt's connection was or uh, attitude was towards the whole banking system during that time? That's my question. Actually, I, I don't. I, I could invent some good answers, but I don't. But I can tell you who you should read for that purpose. Um, have you ever seen the work by Nomi Prinz? Oh, yeah. Okay. We had her on the Ralph Nader radio hour. I hope you did. Nobody and I are friends. One of those, you know, in this age of the Internet, one can become good friends with someone, but never having been in the same room with them. And Nomi is a good friend. I really do trust her on questions of banking, because, especially because she's on the left, but herself came out of uh, Goldman Sachs. I think she was a managing director or something like that. Um, so I would recommend a debate with her or at least a, a good read of her work. Um, beyond that, I just don't think I could answer it effectively. Right. But another person, another person to read, and her book is coming out, I think within a few weeks, will be, um, this has more to do with deficit questions, is Stephanie Kelton. Um, Mod- modern Monetary Theory. Yeah, I mean, these are the kinds of debates that that I'm not 
deeply embedded in, but I, that's my response. Right. To that. I had an opportunity. Howie Klein introduced me to Professor Kelton, and I wrote her a flippant email, and uh, she was ready to do the show, but uh, I somehow pushed her away with my. She asked me to team. Te- she asked me to zoom it, not zoom. It was then Skype to teach team teach a seminar with her on um, the New Deal. Uh, the freedom budget of the 1960s that A. Philip Randolph proposed. Uh, the problem was I was actually on the streets of New York when she asked me, and I had no way that I could do it, which I regret now because I, I think she would be a fascinating person to, to co-teach with. Yeah, understanding the Federal Reserve is very difficult, and I I often find myself stumped trying to figure out what Paul is talking about. There was a guest on the Ralph Nader radio, or I can't remember her name. It wasn't Nomi Prinz, who in three sentences explained how the Federal Reserve creates money out of thin air. And they were like, I've got it. I've got it. And it just went through one ear and out the other. And I, 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 know the, I do know the experience. I'll say one thing. Uh, Nomi and I wrote a, a fairly humorous piece for Alternet on what made FDR hot, just for the record, if anyone wants to Google that. Um, also, the other thing I was going to say is that I, don't, I'm, I think it would have been smart for FDR to nationalize the banks, too. That's just my instincts to tell me that. Uh, just as I thought uh, Paul Krugman was at his smartest when he suggested that Obama move to nationalize the banks. He then later he then later sort of said he made a mistake, Krugman, once everything was seeming to settle down. But it strikes me that if, if, if you want a direct investment, the best thing is the government to take control of the banks. That's my, my response. Well, we owned the banks after the financial crisis. We just didn't do anything. We should have owned the bankers. Yes, yes, they own us. Let's go to Todd Levine. Did, am I or Todd? Let me unmute you. Hi, Todd. Yes. Hi, David. Palm tree in Todd's picture. <laughs> How do you pronounce your last name, Todd? Levine. Levine. Yeah. Where and where yeah. are you? Harvey says he sees a palm tree in in Tucson. Wow, okay. Tucson, Arizona. So, yeah. What? Hi, David. Hi, da- uh, hi, Professor RBJ. How you doing? Nice to see you. It's good to see you, too. Um, my question was, who was available in 1945 to yeah. carry on the legacy of FDR? Somebody who was maybe a little bit younger and with charisma, knowledge, to stand up against those elements, especially those that were uh, trying to get Taft-Hartley eventually passed, obviously, and kind of yeah. against those who promoted a more corporate agenda. I guess. You know, I've been thinking about I, I got your question when David forwarded the email. And um, I can tell you that I, I don't know exactly who could have stepped in because, you know, he'd been president for 12 years. Um, I'm not sure he actually was, was, was grooming any successors. But I can tell you a few names that came to my mind for, for you know, tangential reasons, you might say. First of all, um, Although I, I was critical the other evening of Henry Wallace, I do think that Henry Wallace in spirit, in many ways, would have been a, a good person to carry on the aspirations of Franklin Roosevelt. In that sense, I think he would have been quite good. Problem is, to what extent he would have had the support around him of other Democrats, I, I don't know, okay? Um, and there's a really good book coming out that I want to recommend, I think I mentioned it the other night, by John Nichols on Henry Wallace and yes. his legacy and how they crushed his legacy. Let me read you a question from Henry Hakamaki just to 
pile well, on. Anyways, I, I, I want to answer. I do want to answer this question. Okay, I've got a couple of other names I want to mention. Okay, I, I'm not so sure that we should discount. I don't know if we should discount Harry Truman as quickly as people on the left want to do so. Um, it is the case that with, that within months after Roosevelt's passing, uh, Truman went before Congress and basically called for Congress to move on the second Bill of Rights and especially to move on questions of health care. So I think we shouldn't underestimate Truman's commitment to Roosevelt's New Deal vision. Also, he did launch a Civil Rights Commission, which I think was in many ways setting a framework for what would later be much of the civil rights movement. Um, so, I mean, the problem with, with Truman is that he just really wasn't immediately up to the job. And he kind of blew his first year as president by alienating labor, failing to be consistent on pr- wages and prices. But Truman actually was was more of an FDR guy than we often give him credit for. And lastly, in 1948, when he did run for president as against uh, Thomas Dewey, Thomas E. Dewey, I guess it was, um, Truman himself gave speeches, which really did imply his willingness to carry on in many ways the kind of social struggles questions that FDR had begun to pursue. Some of the speeches, in fact, were truly radical. Um, It is the case, however, that Truman also alienated a good part of the left when he inaugurated the loyalty oaths and other things in the federal government. But last but not and last but not least, I want to mention someone else who is never mentioned in these circles. But I can tell you a very, very dear friend of mine, Alita Black, who is a scholar of Eleanor Roosevelt, when I asked her, how the hell was it possible yeah. that Eleanor Roosevelt would embrace Adley Stevenson? One of the great myths of Stevenson is that he was some great liberal, which he was not. Okay. But, and I said to her, why did she do that? And she said, well, she was convinced, Alita, that the person that, she, that Eleanor Roosevelt would have promoted for the presidency, if it had been at all possible, was labor leader Walter Ruther. Okay. Wow. Okay. Just, okay. And I, I don't think I'm giving any secrets away. Alita was pretty clear about that possibility. Um, so those are the kind of names that come to mind. And there are other senators. I mean, it's just I, I don't think any of them were ready to step in and take on that kind of role. Okay. All right. Let me follow up with uh, the reason I brought up Henry Hockam. You pronounce your last name. You want to ask Hockam your question about Henry Hockam. Wallace, Henry? Sure. I mean, uh, the professor pretty much already (laughs) answered what I was going to be asking. Um, But essentially what I was going to be asking is that, like you said, recently you were critical of Henry Wallace. And and specifically, I believe you called him a bit of a flake. That's what people have called him. And my sense is that my sense of that has to do with the fact that not so much that he was specifically a flake. And I should have expanded upon that the other night. It's that he was perceived as that, and as a consequence, could not readily step into the role. That's the key thing, could not readily step into the role. And the other thing is, and this is actually the thing that, that I, I hold him somewhat accountable for, I may, may have mentioned this on the Friday evening event, and that is that in nineteen mid-1930s, when he was Secretary of Agriculture, and African-American and white sharecroppers were effectively left out of the Agricultural Adjustment Act. This is early, well, it came it was enacted in 1933, but sharecroppers were effectively left out of, out of the, out of that uh, law. And I, it, it's very disappointing to think that Wallace, who was viewed as this, you know, Midwestern progressive, would have failed 
to, to, to address that. Now, we can explain it in part because he's a Midwesterner, and sharecropping was not a Midwestern practice. It was a Southern practice. Uh, we can also explain it because, in fact, he was, you know, in the cabinet. He had a certain mission to pursue. But he had around him some very, very left people. Um, including Tugwell and others, who probably had raised the question. So it always disappointed me that, that Wallace didn't do more for Southern sharecroppers. But again, for those of you who are new to the discussion, later when he does run for president, and he's never going to, it, it was not a chance in hell he would have been elected at that time. It is the case, however, that he went south on the, and pursued the civil rights question as a candidate for president. So I, I shouldn't belittle him in any way, but I do think that I do think in one sense we may overestimate on the left Henry Wallace and we may underestimate some of the better qualities of Truman. And I'll leave it at that, okay? I should point out that uh, Henry Wallace was considered a flake and Senator Jeff Flake was often called a Wallace. I'm going <laughs> to excuse myself from the room right now. Given I, that choice, I will take Henry Wallace <laughs> over that guy any day. <laughs> Henry, do you have another question? Well, the the second part of the question was just, I was wondering if you were aware of John Nichols's book and if you had had any correspondence with him during either the writing process or post-writing pre-publication. Um, John, John and I have known each other for about 25 years. I don't think I've ever done a book that he hasn't blurbed for me. Um, he's, he's always very sweet. I, he exaggerated all the time and then when he introduced me to people as being the, the most important radical historian in America. And I'm not saying that with, with a sense of, of false modesty. It just really was extraordinary. But in any case, what I want to say about John, John does write in a way that's so engaging. And I, I can tell you, if you, if all of you have not read his book, The S Word, okay, which is not shit, it is uh, socialism, I do recommend you read it. And I have yet to actually read, because it's not in my hands yet, um, the John's new book. We've had conversations along the way quite a bit about about that. And I can tell you that I, I don't know the specific argument he makes about Wallace, but I can say that he's right about the Wallace legacy and the suppression of the Wallace legacy and the, the, the price it has, the price it literally was uh, that was paid by the left in the, in the Democratic Party. And I'm, so I'm looking for the details when I get to that. Great. And he's out of Madison, I believe, right? He yeah, he's a Wisconsin boy. I'm not. I'm a New York boy, but I've been here now for 42 years. And um, it, I always think of him as a boy, in fact, that's because I knew him, you know, 25 years. He was, what, uh, 27 years old? He was young, very young when I first met him, but already a, a really fine journalist and editorialist. Over the nation, very prolific. Well, it was with it was with the Capital Times in Madison, which was a newspaper founded basically by the, the La Follette forces back at the beginning of the century, when when the Progressive Republicans emerged out of the Progressive Party. And then the Cap Times is only online now as a newspaper, but in fact, John was the basically the opinion page editor. Um, oh. he's not in this conversation. He could really address the, the Wallace question more effectively. He, he's been on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour several times. Very oh, sure. enthusiastic, very optimistic yeah. guy. Yeah, I've had him speak up here a good number of times. He's a very He travels a lot, but he's a very committed family guy. He refuses to stay over at, here at the house. He always drives back late at night so he can see his daughter. Okay. Lance, where are you Zooming from? Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Welcome. What is your question for Professor Harvey J.K.? You referenced part of this when you talked about the banks earlier, but um, I was hopeful in 2009 that Obama would become the next FDR. Uh, I think you'd agree with me that he very much didn't. 
Uh, I'm wondering if you'd like to comment about the opportunity that was presented then or what type of America we'd be living in today if he had taken radical New Deal type actions. Yeah, well, as you probably recall, Lance, all you had to do was pick up any magazine left or right. And there was a cover of the magazine that portrayed um, Obama outfitted as the new as the resurrected FDR. That was true both for um I think the New Republic had it, the National Review, everybody had that kind of thing. I was skeptical, seriously skeptical, and I was skeptical at the time because if you looked at his, his health care plan, it, it was complete it was utterly inadequate. Completely inadequate to the task. It was I don't think he ever used the term national health care or universal health care, or if he did, he was he was a phony when he said so. Um, we were given a choice between, of course, the neoliberal Hillary Clinton and the soon to be exposed as a neoliberal Barack Obama. Okay, so so in hindsight, it would it's impossible to imagine Obama ever having moved to nationalize the banks. Impossible. Um, some people some people have said quite rightly that he probably just wasn't up to the job. It, it just wasn't. Okay, um, he, he needed he needed to have more experience, and maybe with more experience, he might have moved even further to the right. I just don't know. Um, the te- most telling thing, however, the thing that really struck me, and I find this true over and over again with with Democrats, sadly enough, is that the th- the key th- there were certain key things on the agenda, and one of them, of course, was the question of health care. Okay, I think a lot of people voted for him, believing that that was going to happen, just as they once upon a time voted for Bill Clinton. Um, the other thing was that we, obviously we were in the middle of a, a financial meltdown, and one could readily have imagined his pursuit of nationalizing the banks. But I, I honestly, I thought that was Krugman at his best at that moment. And we should know that Krugman, before he came out as a sort of nationalize the banks kind of guy, made his reputation in economics as a globalist. Loved globalization. Okay. Just loved it. So one could have been skeptical if you want, if they wanted. But here's the other thing that really struck me. And this is my cause in addition to all the other causes I share with progressive Democrats. This is my cause. On the agenda was the Employee Free Choice Act, EFCA. Can you explain that to me? I've heard that over and over again and I don't understand what the employee free. Yes. Ever since 1947 and the enactment of the Taft-Hartley Act, which really did stymie labor's ability to organize in the South and break both the corporate control over workers and the white supremacist control over race, okay? That was the key thing. The Taft-Hartley Act was really not only about labor, it was about labor in the, it was specifically labor in the South, and, and it was very, very much a racist maneuver to block the organizing of Southern labor. Okay, so ever since then, ever since 47, labor repeatedly was trying to get Congress and whoever was president basically to enact labor law reform to enable to break this whole question, this right to work crap. Okay, which is not right to work. It's it's right to be prevented from organizing uh, labor unions. And it came very close in the mid 60s when both George Meany and Walter Ruther persuaded Lyndon Johnson, um, to put labor law reform on his agenda high up. However, they had to give way on, on the order in which labor, in which the agenda would be pursued. So Johnson got labor, which they would have done anyhow, to support civil rights, to lobby hard. And even the Washington, the March on Washington of 63 was really envisioned by A. Philip Randolph, a labor and civil rights leader, and 
underwritten in many ways financially by the UAW, by Walter, by um, Walter Ruther's labor unions. The ability of getting people to D.C. was pretty much underwritten. So much of the progressive agenda of the 60s was underwritten by the UAW. So in any case, when it came up in 65, 66, it was the first filibuster against a, a bill that Johnson did not break. Okay, So there was no labor law reform in the mid-60s. And George Meany knew who one of the culprits was, and that was, sadly enough, George McGovern, who voted not to break the filibuster. He got permission not to do it. He came to South Dakota. He was afraid he wouldn't get reelected. And then Meany, and then, sorry, and then McGovern becomes the chair of the commission to reform the power structure inside the Democratic Party. In 1972, he gets the nomination. And George Meany, everyone thinks he walked out on some kind of racial grounds. He didn't. He walked out because he just didn't care for care for McGovern, okay? And by that time, Ruther has passed away in a plane crash. Now, labor still has high on its agenda labor law reform. And in 1978, labor law reform was once again one of the three major things that progressives and labor people wanted, okay? By the way, Ralph Nader was very much a part of the story. Consumer rights, consumer protection was one of those three. Okay, full employment was another thing. Well, Humphrey Hawkins... Uh, bill. And then third was the question of labor law reform. And, and Carter, who was just a, a, a terrible president. I mean, a truly, ter- especially for progressives. He was great for business and capitalists and the rich. Okay. He refused to push the labor law reform in, because he really wanted to push the return of the Panama Canal to Panama, which for those of you who believe that that was fundamental to any good foreign policy, so, so be it. To my mind, labor law reform was the most fundamental thing we needed. Okay, onward we go. So, it's 2008. The labor movement, AFL-CIO, now united after, you know, during those 50 years and, and today, 1950s and to today, they had come up with the idea of the EFCA, which basically was that if a certain number of workers in a, in a firm... What is the EFCA again? Employee Free Choice Act. If a certain number of workers signed on to the union, signed on for a card, then then you would get a labor union. Okay? It was a simple thing. Okay? A certain number of workers, a certain percentage of workers, you get a union. Okay? Well, this was something Obama promised to pursue. You, if some of you may remember, he said in this big moment on the campaign, if workers are out on strike or workers need me, I'm going to put on my marching shoes and I will be there. Lance, you remember that, right? Okay. Well, Obama not only basically turned his back on the EFCA, which, by the way, in the first, don't forget, in the first two years, he had 60 votes in the Senate. Don't forget that. It's not everyone says, oh, he didn't have the votes. He had 60 votes in the Senate in the first two years. Briefly. Okay. He had it. That's all I'm telling you. Okay? <laughs> if you want to be soft on Obama, leave the room. <laughs> so, and, but then on top of that, to, the proof of his unwillingness to support labor was that when we were, were smashed by the Walker governorship and the Republican legislature and, and our collective bargaining rights as public employees was, was taken away from us, and we were the first state in the union that enacted a law protecting collective bargaining rights for public employees back in 1959. Obama, we hell, we occupied the Capitol building. Okay, we had hundred thousand people turning out 
whether they were gra- from the graduate students at Madison who were part of the teachers association, the te- you know graduate teaching association, all the way to fire folk. The fire this was to fire- protect the public unions in Wisconsin. Right. To protect our right to collective bargaining. Obama did not raise a hand. He didn't raise his voice. He didn't come to Wisconsin. He didn't send Michelle to Wisconsin. He didn't send his labor secretary to Wisconsin. The only people who came to Wisconsin were Michael Moore and uh, Ed Schultz. You know, we had celebrities of sorts, but we, but no major figure in the Obama administration. So he didn't send his vice president. Sorry, that, and indeed, he didn't send his vice president. Let's. Yeah, yeah. that would be Biden, I believe. Yeah, is that, yeah. Sorry. Did George Clooney? Did, did George Clooney come out for the? That's unit? a good question. I don't remember. I think he I, did. I don't remember. But I don't the think. The one that comes to mind most quickly is actually Michael Moore. I, of course. I appreciate that. Okay. All right. I want to learn more about the Employee Free Choice Act because I've heard a lot about that. Uh, great. That that's great. I just want to point out that in your answer, you destroyed George McGovern, my hero. You destroyed Jimmy Carter, Adley Stevenson, but not Ralph Nader. Let the record show that you have not been able to destroy Ralph Nader. Is that correct, Professor K? Yes. Right. Ralph Nader has never let anybody down. Is that fair to say? Well, I I didn't let me down. And I I can tell you, there was one thing that Ralph Nader did that I thought was absolutely, I just loved it. I mean, and this is trivial, what I'm going to tell you. But I think it was when he was, what year did he actually make a pursuit of the presidency, was it? I, I, in 2000, 2004, 2000, I, he ran in 2008. Uh, 2000. Yeah. Well, along the way, he actually wrote a pamphlet for po- popular consumption, which he modeled, at, I'm pretty sure it was him, who mo- and he modeled it after Thomas Paine's Common Sense, which went right to my heart. Okay. I have it here somewhere. We're going to have to do uh, more on Thomas Paine. Yeah. Now, now that Bernie is not going to win, yeah. my fascination with FDR still continues, but uh, maybe uh, these are the times that try men's souls. Right. Yeah, maybe we need to turn to Thomas Paine. Let us now turn instead to Nicholas, who I believe comes to us. All the way in Los Angeles. Is that correct, Nicholas? Yes. Good yes, to see you is. again. Much Good to see you from Armenia. <laughs> no, not from Armenia, but okay. um, um, thank you, Professor K. Um, I, I have a complicated question. I'm going to try to be as succinct as possible. Um, given that... Obviously, there was the Great Depression, and they had just come out. Obviously, 10 years earlier was the Great War, and then the Spanish flu, um, or the original H1N1. And then you had the Roaring Twenties, which was great for uh, basically wealthy people. Yes. Um, and now we have, and for the last 40 years, we've had just the further concentration of capital with the top 1% in economic policies, like the Fed, to just drive money to them. Now with the coronavirus, essentially changing this whole idea of going back to normalcy by for the people who wanted to vote for Biden, you know, is there things that are kind of like somewhat analogous to those times that would create the chance for 
I mean, unfortunately, Bernie didn't win, but he definitely pulled the Democrats in a way that wasn't thought possible about five years ago. Uh, yeah. How bad do things possibly have to get for people to realize? Because unfortunately, well, this is a really bad situation we're in. Yeah, I mean, yeah. great question. But very, you know, there's various things that come to my mind. First of all, I can tell you that there was a writer, Max Lerner, who was a he, he called himself a. Marxist Democrat with a capital M, capital D back in the 30s into the 40s. Later became more of a just a progressive and then he became a liberal and he did some neoconservative things before he passed away. He happens to be the father of a guy named Michael Lerner who's up in the Bay Area has that, has still has a magazine. Oh, Tacoon, yeah. Yeah, Right. right. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I was on the board of, of Tacoon for, whoa, God, back in the early 90s. So, um, so, so here's the thing. Max Lerner had once said, he says something like, why is it, why is it we waste history? And he was asking this in 1948, he's, you know, as the Cold War was sort of descending upon all of us. Well, I wasn't born yet. Um, but, it, but he said, why do we, how does it, why do we waste history? And why does it always seem to require some kind of, you know, terrible crisis for liberals to get their act together? Okay. I'm paraphrasing. I was going to reach for my book where I know it's written down, but I don't want to waste time. Well, now I'm even more worried because as we look around us, here we are, we're in a crisis, okay? And I'm going to come back to somebody else's writing in a moment. But here we are in the crisis, and the tragedy is not only that Bernie Sanders was literally pushed to step out of the race, okay? And I've already confessed that I will vote for for Biden because we have got to get rid of Trump. That's the bottom line for me. But it is the case that we see on the left real turmoil. I mean, whether it's gossip crap or serious questions of where do we go from here, we do not see the so-called movement cohering still. And we is it because we lack a voice to lead it, because Bernie has to stay close to Biden because he's already made the endorsement? I don't know. But having said that, having said that, there was a writer... I guess her name was Anne O'Hare McCormick. I, I, she wrote a, a series of columns all the way through 31, 32, 33, 34, which are collected in a book titled The World at Home. That was it. And she had access to FDR. And one of the things that she observed along the way about Americans as she traveled the country was that there was percolating in within American life. There was percolating not simply the sort of anger about the depression, not simply despair in many a community, and not simply a certain kind of you like radical energy in certain sectors of the unemployed or, or labor movement or whatever else. She said there was also beginning to appear a sense among Americans that the way things were is not the way they had to be. And the question was, who would be able to articulate that and lead it in 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 favor of transforming America. And it turned out that that was Franklin Roosevelt. And that's the thing that worries me right now. That Bernie, it's a shame that Bernie pulled out. He was born for this moment. Bernie was born for this moment. He really really was. And I have, you know, you all have heard me criticize. If you haven't, you know, you can listen back on some of these podcasts. My criticism of Bernie is that he just, he didn't push it far enough, his embrace of FDR. and didn't make it public enough. He didn't remind everyone that all the other Democrats were literally traitors to the FDR tradition. But shit, we could use him right now. I mean, the fact is we need a, a voice like his, because his is a voice that speaks of what America could be, 
Okay, not and and if, especially if he links it to the FDR tradition, or even goes back into Lincoln and, and Thomas Paine. So the question is, will we be able to find a series of voices or a singular voice to articulate what is clearly happening? I mean, here's my fear. If we didn't talk about this the other night, I'm going to mention it now. We already hear McConnell, and I can bet you any number of sort of right-wing Democrats willing to, to back him on that, that, we're going to, that over the horizon we're going to face austerity again. Okay. Oh, look, we spend all this money. By the way, we spend billions and if not trillions on, on the rich for, ever since Trump came into office. So the fact is that they're going to tell us we can't afford anything anymore. Forget, forget national health care. They're going to try to tell us that we can't even afford Medicare for all. Be careful. Be right. careful. And, and, and all I can say is if, you, if you, there's a union you can join, join it. If there are workers who are complaining, organize a union. If there are groups on the left that you admire or, or feel comfortable with, join it. We have got to be prepared. And, and I will tell you, I use that word austerity, and this is the thing that I, I upset David about. The guy who first used the term austerity in favor of cutting the good was Jimmy Carter. Yes, you ruined Jimmy Carter for us. Yeah. Maybe Mr. LeBeau would like to talk about the federal. I'm kidding. With the talking about money and uh, we need to learn you? about the Federal Reserve. Uh, Nicholas, do you, you want to do a follow up? Um, that, I mean, that that helps greatly. That That's my fear with someone like Biden, that he's just going to fall right for the austerity thing and he'll run right into his, you know, oh, I'm ready to cut uh, Social Security and Medicare to save it. You know, right. whatever nonsense right. they tend to say. But, I mean, it, it's still, a, I mean, I, it's encouraging because I know that some of my coworkers are really frustrated and even told me that if I tried to organize a union, they would vote for me, despite the fact I really don't know where to get started with that. <laughs> well, if you want, I get send a note to David. He'll send it to me, and we can, and I'll, you know, we can maybe figure it out. Okay. Okay. Um, and then the other thing I'll tell you for, and give you some to give you some hope. When they took our collective bargaining rights away, I had assumed that my union chapter of the American Federation of Teachers here at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay would shrink to practically a half a dozen. But in fact, we remain a very vibrant and significant force, both on the campus and around the state. And, and although the teachers unions that were National Education Association across the, the for, you know, K through 12, they have taken a beating. But the AFT at the collegiate level, we're ready and we, we are ready. And so don't don't assume it's all over by any means. OK, you were an early critic of Barack Obama. And yeah. I recommend oh, and, people- and let me say the day after Biden gets elected, should he win? I'll be his critic. Yes. And I'll be a critic all the way till the election day. By believe me, I I. I'm voting against Trump, and the only way I can do that is to pull for Biden. That's all. You write about Obama and take hold of our history, make make America radical again. And there's some essays on Obama. He's never once marched with the workers in his post-presidency, has he? No, I mean, he and, his, he and, his, he and Michelle are making big bucks. He said he you know, I love him. Because I, I'm so emotionally invested in him, but, uh, he no, is no, a huge disappointment was. and he did not trust the Democratic Party. He, he killed the elections. We, he did not allow Biden and Bernie to fight it out the same way he and Hillary fought it out 
in 2008. We did not have a vigorous debate. He did not trust the Democratic voters to make the right choice. So he put his thumb on the scale. And well, he didn't trust that Biden could affect. Look, if Bernie had wanted to on that night that he and Biden did go head to head, he could have literally deflated the entire Biden campaign. Yeah, I could have given him a few lines. I'm sure all of us could have given him just the right lines. OK, and it would have been almost all over. Now, okay. I'm not. You know. Let's go to royalty. Teachers are royalty here on the David Feldman show. Alicia is in Mexico. Right. Hello, Alicia. Hi. Um, in keeping with, I think it was our first Zoom meeting, you you gave us homework to read Langston Hughes' uh, Let America Be America Again. And it really got me thinking about the role of art in promoting, you know, the aspirations of the left. That and the fact that, you know, I, every year I teach, you know, of mice and men, I teach... Death of a salesman, you know, all of these kinds of things. And, I, you know, and FDR was very au fait with using um, art, with using uh, the media of his day. And I, I, I was thinking about the way that the neoliberals have such a stranglehold on our, our culture and, and our, our sense of what art is. Yeah. I can't tell you, I mean, every place I've taught, if I ask kids, you know, who's, you know, what represents the left? And, you know, they say CNN and New York Times. And, you know, it, it's like the neoliberals have a kind of stealth blacklist that Joseph McCarthy could never even dreamt of. Great. I, I just got finished watching Michael Moore's Planet of the Humans. And you see what they've done with the environmental movement. I mean, you know, who would even recognize it anymore? So I, I was wondering about this role of the public uh, artist. I mean, for example, everybody here, and I this good reason, you know, loves Frida Kahlo. She's fantastic. She's a wonderful artist. But she's the art of the personal. Diego Rivera was the art. He was the public artist. That's right. And what Hollywood has done is to turn art into the art of the personal, of the kind of Sylvia Plath confessionalist. Sure. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for that. Sure. But I think one of the wonderful things that Bernie Sanders did was that he made socialism or you know uh, democratic socialism a public word, not a nasty word. He was on Stephen Colbert. He was on Joe Rogan. You know, I mean, I've heard people have these debates whether he should have done that, which I find idiotic. You can't stay underground. Eventually, you've got to get above ground, and you got to get on Main Street. And I think art is one of the vehicles to do that, and I'd kind of like you to comment on how art was utilized uh, yeah, well, in the promotion. Absolutely. absolutely. So in 19... 19- in 1935, well, it had already begun in the sense that FDR was very keen that the public works projects that they pursue, whether it had to do with, well, on the grand scale, of course, dams and bridges and all that, but at, on a more local scale, think about, let's just take the thing that we, that, that's in jeopardy right now, the post office. I, I tell everyone, go into your, you know, go downtown wherever you live and let me know who built the post office. Okay. I mean, right here in the, in the northeast part of Wisconsin, the Fox Valley, you can go right down the valley and there are post offices and they have those cornerstones and it says, you know, the Treasury Department or whatever else. And it was, you know, the name of, of uh, Morgenthau, who was his secretary of the Treasury. And if you go inside those post offices, some of them were taken down, some of them exist to this day. 
and you look either to the left or to the right, you will see a mural inside those post offices. And what they did is they hired a local artist or artists to create a mural that would reflect the experience of working people in that community or in that region. And Roosevelt once said, artists have to, well, it was either he or, or, or Henry Hopkins said it, but they were on the same, same base. You know, they, they were together on that. Artists have to eat too. Right. So it wasn't, you, you don't just put workers, you get them jobs, artists, you get them commissions. So then in 1935, when by executive order, um, he created the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, they created inside the WPA what was called Federal One. Federal One had four divisions. There was a theater, the theater project, the writers project, the music project, and the why am I blanking? And well, obviously the you know the, the Manhattan Project. Oh, that's in nineteen thirty nine four. So and and people literally whether it had to do with it was literally both high art and popular arts. And it was the case that there were there were musicians who were hired specifically to create orchestras in communities. I mean, it was just phenomenal the kinds of things they did. I mean, people suffering the Dust Bowl all of a sudden got involved in musical entertainments, theater company productions. They had a living newspaper theater that was set up. I mean, I could go on and on and on. They also launched massive oral history projects in the States for interviewing, for example, let's remember, it's 1930s, there were people who had been slaves or children of, you know, I mean, you could do an oral history project on slavery. They, I mean, it's unbelievable kinds of stuff. Now, so happens, a few weeks ago, I was on Hill TV uh, with uh, Crystal Ball on Rising. And, and then I also did something with Nomiki Konst, which if you haven't seen her podcast, go check it out, okay? It's on YouTube. Um, and I said, you know, it really is the moment where somebody like Bernie, or so, we should be thinking about launching our own kind of WPA arts projects. And I have to tell you that when we did the first Friday night thing, this was in my, I'm sure David, we mentioned this to each other, right? This yeah. idea that who knows where it'll go. Let, right? me, let me unmute the Miss Sammons there. Yeah. And who knows where it'll go. And somebody, if you were there that particular night, you may recall that I saw somebody had a guitar in a room. Mm-hmm. I was hoping to sort of bring a bit of music into the, into the event. And then there's a couple of friends of mine. Well, they become friends. These people out in Southern California um, one's a lawyer, and the other one was a, a director of Second City Comedy Cl- Club in Chicago. And they're working up, because they heard me say this, they're trying to figure out how we could launch something that might actually involve politics and narrative and those kinds of things. And I think, David, I think our venue has got lots of possibilities. Yeah. And let me let, thank you, uh, Alicia. Where are you in Mexico? I always forget. Mexico City. I'm in Mexico City. I'm in. I'm near the kind of historic area of Coyacan. Wow. Be a little pueblo, but um, this mural. But this house is owned by uh, the Atayde brothers, who are like the 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 Ringling brothers of Mexico. (laughs) So all of their houses have these like you know circus. Do they still have? We don't have circuses anymore. We don't have circuses here. They have circuses, but they're all like acrobats. They've taken in Mexico. It's, it's illegal to have animals in circuses. But we don't have circuses. But we, we do have clown cars. We have clown cars. Okay. Right. They have 
sadly, they still have uh, a bullfights. But okay. now that was a, a great um, review of that. And I think it's something that we really need to think about um, promoting more. And, 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 and you're right, community theaters and music and right. venues like this is, is wonderful. Anyways, thank you so much. Thank you, Alicia. We'll see Just you Friday. Back to Lance's question. In- when Obama was running for president, I told my students, I said, you know, if Obama's halfway serious about yes, we can, the first thing he'll do is launch a, ma- a massive national internship program, which will enable any high school or college student who wants to spend two years in some kind of community projects or national projects that would involve things I'm such as WPA. arts and entertainment and things like that. Anyhow. Okay. So, so here, here's where we're at. We, uh, we are at 48 minutes, and I think this has been tremendously successful. I think this is phenomenal because I'm looking at the number of people who have stayed throughout. And I, what I'd like to do is rush through. We have uh, eight more questions. And if I could ask you all to ask them quickly because I don't want to take up too much of Professor K's time. I would also like to do a post-mortem with the attendees to discuss how we can do this and, and improve upon it, perhaps for next week, if Professor K will stick around. Sure. This is really interesting, and the questions are great. So I'm going to ask people to, we have eight more questions, six more speed, questions. Speed dating, here we go. Let's do speed dating. And uh, you're going to want to come back if I bring this in under an hour. That I know. So let's go to my friend. I don't know if he's still a vegan, and I insist that's his daughter. I, I, I don't care what you say. Let's go to yeah. Chicago. That's, that has to be your daughter. Jonathan, how are you in Chicago? Hi. Um, she would be my daughter, except she's six months older than I am. So... Um, She's beating the hell out of you then. You don't let her do it to you anymore. <laughs> oh, my God. You, yeah, you don't know half of it. But in all seriousness, oh, I did ask yeah, you. Yeah, I yeah, said, was I that. I can hear you. I can't hear you. I know. You realize I can hear you. Thank you. I'll take it. Jonathan, in all seriousness, didn't I say to you, is that your daughter who we had dinner with? Yes, yes. I did. I swear to you. Okay, yeah. go ahead. What is your okay. question for um, Professor Harvey K? Everybody's talking about Bernie Sanders as if he's dead. So I, I would ask Harvey, what role, if you were Bernie's advisor at this point, what would you be telling him that, assuming Biden wins, what should he be lobbying for to get into the government or get involved in something to do with the support of the government? What should he individually do? In the, yeah, as Bernie Sanders, as a leader of a specific movement in American politics, he's now not going to be the president, but uh, the man he supported from his party will be the president. Okay. So what should he be promoting himself to do? First, he should, be, he should be lobbying for Schumer to be pushed aside as the leader of the Democrats in the Senate and that Elizabeth Warren should become the leader of the Democrats in the Senate. But for himself... He should, he should say, I would like to have responsibility for a new works progress administration. Great. I think, I think she should be in a position where he's responsible for creating jobs, improving the arts, enabling students to go to college. By the way, in the 1930s, I've never mentioned this on a show, but 
FDR and his team of New Deal has created the NYA, the National Youth Administration. That's where work study began, where the federal government paid students to do work at schools or in the community to enable them to stay in high school or to stay in college. And millions benefited. And in fact, more African-Americans benefited, young African-Americans benefited from that program probably than, than, than almost any other. So maybe we need a new National Youth Administration. But okay. in this instance, free public higher education. I'm going to be a traffic cop here. Yeah. Let, let's go to Mr. Hutchinson. Hutchinson, where are you? Hutchinson. I'm in London in the UK. Wow. wow. Uh, so, oh, yeah, I've been, been loving you guys uh, since I found you from uh, Michael Brooks' show. Oh. Bernie Bro, I think. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. You did a good bit on that. Right. Yeah, uh, but yeah, hey, uh, I, my uh, knowledge of the U.S. system is a little limited, but I think it's uh, an interesting time globally with COVID, and I was uh, really interested to um, hear more. I, I watched um, your Ralph Nader uh, radio hour this mm-hmm. week, and you had a really interesting guy, David from the TVA, or he had David been, Freeman. He ran the TVA. David Freeman ran the TVA. Yes. Tennessee yeah, Valley Authority. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, yeah. So, um, Ralph Nader had actually talked about uh, the one percent to change things. I'm, I'm kind of interested primarily from an ecological perspective because I think the fossil fuel industry is about to fall, but it needs a little nudge. So, um, uh, for Harvey, how how do we organise for that nudge globally, not just from a US perspective? Great yeah, question. I mean, it is a good question. I'm going to inadequately answer that. Okay. <laughs> I can tell you. Because one of the things, somebody challenged me recently and they said, well, you talk a lot about social democracy. How, how are you going to build, so, how are you going to build in the question of the planet to social democracy? And, and I think it's the case that the rich just, the rich just have too much. Okay. And we, and it is the, and back in the thirties, and then, especially in the 40s, FDR actually asked the question, should we set a cap? Should we set a cap on income? A maximum wage. Yeah. Or an income. I mean, back in the, during the war, he said, Mate, you can do $25,000 as a cap. That way, you know, the rich can still have the 25000 By the way, $25,000 then would be a hell of a lot more today, obviously. So I, I do think that in part, here's what I think. I think we really do need to capture the political discourse in this country. Right now, it's hard to imagine that. It seems because of the crisis and Bernie's having stepped aside from the campaign as he has. But I, th- I remember when I was in grad school, a friend of mine said, and I was a student of Latin American history and politics then, he said, you really ought to be involved in American history and politics because if you want to make change in the world, you've got to make change in America first. And, and I know my friend Michael Brooks would seriously disagree with me on that. He would say, look at these struggles and these movements around the world, and I, and we should welcome those. However, it's just still the center of the world. And, and, and it, the question is, we have an obligation to make the change here. I mean, consider the possibility of a progressive presidency that could then reach out and recreate the global arena in a cooperative fashion with folks. Okay. You know, I'm, that's I, I could do. I really want to do a postmortem with everybody. And I, for my okay. listeners on the podcast, I kept everybody waiting 20 minutes so I could 
figure out how this thing works. So I want to be respectful of everybody's time. I have a whip, which I'm going to play for you. Did everybody hear that? Okay, we're, we're coming in to uh, the uh, last lap here. So let, I, I apologize, but I'm going to ask you to speed it up. Let's go to, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this properly. Properly. I can't even pronounce properly. 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 Is, is it Lyra? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and where are you, Lyra? Uh, I'm in Ohio, Columbus. Columbus, she, she Ohio. She was driving home when I first saw Lyra, I believe. Yeah. Um, well, so my my question... Oh, hang um, on for one second. So you were listening to this in your car uh, while driving? His, his I car, was driving. He was driving. Yeah. He was driving. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Do you want to go with your question? Uh, sure. I mean, my question was just... Uh, I think it was sort of addressed already, but... Uh, to what extent was FDR moved left, and uh, are there any analogs with the situation now with Biden? Basically, people, people, you know, depending on who you speak Thank to, you. you either hear that you either hear that that FDR had to be pushed left, or you hear that FDR pushed Americans left. And here's the thing: why have we forgotten the whole idea of the dialectic? You know, this idea of the, of of you know. Confrontation of opposites, you might say. So you have a president as a good thing, as a good thing, absolutely. Right. Okay. Now Roosevelt came into office already a progressive, and he already had a vision of a social democratic set of changes. That, that, I, that I can show you. And what happened was that during the campaign, Lewis and Hillman, Lewis and Hillman, right? We got the names. They both heard FDR, and Lewis, though, having been a... Have I got the name wrong? Wait a minute. Head of the United Mine Workers. He heard... John L. Lewis. John L. Lewis. Thank you. I, 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 was, I was... The only reason I hesitated is my mind went to the civil rights John Lewis. Right. Okay. okay. The two of them... John Lewis was a Republican, by the way, and Sidney Hillman was a socialist. They both heard FDR's speeches and arguments, and they despised Hoover by that time. And Lewis in a quiet fashion, supported Roosevelt. And Hillman, the socialist, came out and supported Roosevelt. So, And what you find in the course of the 1930s is that Roosevelt offers a vision. Labor, especially, but not alone labor, other forces as well, push FDR, responding to his call, his engagements. They end up pushing him, him faster and further than he might otherwise have gone. But in turn... He then is, in essence, is raising their expectations. So it's this real dialectic between president and people. It's the perfect democratic political relationship between a leader and a people. Hmm. And we've not, we have not seen that. We've seen that on small, in small ways along the way, but we've not seen that. Bernie understood that. He really did understand that. And that's the great tragedy that he will not be president. Because we now have a man, well, forget Trump. I mean, you know, I mean, he's literally a right wing. He's, he's fascistic, okay? But in the case of Biden, in the case of Biden, the fact is that he'll talk as if he's some kind of populist, but his whole record denies it. The question is to what extent his rhetoric can be held up as, as a force to engage people to, I don't even like the word push, because it takes more than a push. It takes a shove with Biden. 
Yeah. Which is why I said that I think that it's imperative for folks on the left to get their act together in order to make that kind of shove and make his life a little difficult as president. We should I mean, shove him right now and replace him. Let's yeah. go to let's go to Vince. Hello, Vince. <laughs> Hi. I don't know. Do I need to do something? Oh, I thought you had a question. Oh, you can hear me. Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, nothing complicated. Just uh, the idea of uh, the undercutting, you know, the undercutting of uh, Bernie's. Uh, you know what happened in New York. Basically, oh, the fact just, is we're not going to hold the primary. Well, yeah, we're not going to have democracy, yeah. right? And we're just. Go ahead. Just what? your thoughts. Just yeah. your thoughts. That's all. No, no, no. Thank you, Vince. It outraged me to hear that they were just canceling the primaries, obviously. Okay. They had had enough time. You know, Cuomo has been talking all about what needs to be done. The first thing he should have said is we're going to make sure primaries are held because we're going to send out paper ballots to all the registered Democrats in the state or enable that. That's first. But the other thing is you also have to hold the Bernie campaign accountable. Okay. He left the race. He left the race, which really empowered those who were prepared to keep him from getting more delegates. So, in essence, maybe he shouldn't have left the race. Yeah. You know, that's the best I can say. Okay. We have two more. Thank you for waiting. Jacqueline, where are you Zooming from? Hi, Harvey. I'm in Salt Salt Lake, so I'm going to make it really quick because I know how this goes. One of my Um, favorite people, Jacqueline. Oh, Okay. Um, so anyways, um, I've already interviewed Harvey a few times, so he knows I'll move fast. So well, for what, what did you interview him for? Um, oh, I have my own little podcast. That's Jacqueline on YouTube. Oh, so, okay. Great. Um, on his different books. So various, um, so given that, um, Bernie's out, even though I'm hoping he'll jump back in, um, if we are stuck with Biden, what do you think FDR's advice would be to be to him going in? Let's say he was elected. What would be his advice, um, given the economic crisis that the American people, not the Wall Street, nobody cares about that. And um, and the fact that, you know, we're, we're dealing with, you know, a pandemic here. What do you think his advice would be? Thank well, you, first of all, I think you tell him, stop lying. <laughs> stop lying. OK, <laughs> but I'll tell you something else. I mean, FDR would say, look, if you have any intention of becoming not simply a placeholder, if you want to be if you want to be remembered as a man who made history, then you have to make history by actually engaging the American people. You've got to encourage them to push you and you have to be receptive to the pushing. But to do that, you're going to have to offer them something. Not a return to the norm, to the normalcy before. Americans do not want to go back. This, there is a percolation. He knew there was a percolation. So he would, you know, I mean, if he could come back from the dead, I think he would tell Biden, hey, you want to make history? You've got to make history by engaging the American people in a fight, Medicare for all, in a fight for, for making the planet um, uh, habitable. I mean, that's the kind of thing. And he would probably basically... Calling what what you know the labor leaders and say, look, you got to make sure that Biden gets pushed. Don't defer as you did with Obama. Push him as Justice Hillman pushed me, just as A. Philip Randolph pushed me. Great. And our last question comes to us from Justin. I believe you're in San Francisco. We started with a financial question with Mr. LeBeau talking about the Federal Reserve, and Justin works for Finra. 
which probably is an FDR agency. Uh, well, it was created by the Securities Exchange Act. Yeah, that's true. Under, yeah, um, but um, in any event, you already partly answered my question, which was about, you know, was, was FDR pushed to the left? But um, I wanted to expand on a little bit. David and, and Ben Burgess have talked on, on this show about this concept of accelerationism yes, yes. and whether, um, you know, things have to get really bad. Isn't it true that part of what, what forced uh, FDR to move to the left was that things did get worse in the Great Depression, especially from 1932 to 35, and that along with the worsening economic conditions, the, the political climate moved to the left. Is it is it true that you know because things got economically worse, that's part of the reason why he had to adjust? No. And and could that also be something that would happen today? No, no, no. It, it definitely did not Thank get you, worse. Justin. When it did not get worse. It got worse 32 into 33. It did not get worse 33 to 35. No, actually what made the second New Deal happen is this, is that Americans were so enthused and encouraged by his presidency that they started themselves to push for the kinds of things that would become Social Security. They put, I mean... In the National Industrial Recovery Act was passed in the first hundred days, which was supposed to empower workers with the right to organize and bargain collectively. And big business fought it like crazy. Millions of workers did seek to organize, but big business fought it. And the fact is that the more that FDR pushed big business, the more they hated him and they organized against him. He and he. Fortunately, he welcomed their hate. That's his own term. And he realized the best thing he could do is respond to the demands of working people across the country. And he had already promised Francis Perkins he would pursue Social Security. He had basically made a promise for the National Labor Relations Act by way of the National Industrial Recovery Act. So he enables Americans to push him into creating Social Security, the National Labor Relations Act, going after the banks again in 1935, seeking to raise taxes on the rich again, uh, the Rural Electrification Agency. So it's not because things are getting worse. It's that he is pushed because he has already said to Americans, new laws in themselves do not bring the new millennium. you got to go out and make the laws real. Great. Professor Harvey J.K. is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. His latest book is FDR on Democracy, The Greatest Speeches and Writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Thank you so much, Professor Harvey J.K. Can everybody please stay on the line? But I should remind you to follow Professor Harvey J.K. on Twitter. He has a great Twitter feed at Harvey J.K. Can everybody please stay on the line? Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go back to Kenny Bunk, Maine, where Jim Earl is standing by. He's an Emmy Award winning Peabody Award winning comedy writer. And 
Democratic turncoat. Hello there, Jim Earl. Don't forget, uh, I also uh, won first place in the uh, 1993, I, I believe it was Vallejo comedy competition with Barry Lank. That is true. That Over is. Margaret Cho, who got third place. Yes, you and Margaret came to my wedding. My, I, th- I think you came to my second wedding, the two of you. You were married twice? Well, for legal reasons, yes. In case I make any jokes about an ex-wife, for the purposes of the show, I've been married five times. So your two children are anchor babies? Yes. They host the news for Nickelodeon because they're anchor babies. Jim Earl, what do you have against the Democratic Party? We are up against an existential threat. Donald Trump, the man is out of his mind. I cannot believe that I have to tell people to, you know, limit their imbibing of Clorox. Let me just say this. I know we all drink a little Clorox each day, a little Lysol, because, you know, it's a power cleanse for our bowels and our immune system. But Donald Trump is telling people to to down this stuff. It's totally irresponsible. We have to get rid of this man. Yeah, I'm not making any false uh, equivalencies here. I'm just saying that, uh, well, yeah, I am making an equivalency (laughs) here. Joe Biden is a complete fucking demonic serial liar, demented idiot. But he will bring good governance. This is about good governance. This is what we need at a time like this. Governance. We need a we need a dictator. Maybe. We need a military coup. Some some New Yorker writer and journalist tweeted today that we need a military coup. That's what the resistance has devolved into. That the military uh, he is saying was it Hendrik Hertzberg who who was saying the military has to step in and restore order. Uh, he said military coup. <laughs> yes. So because yes. the Twenty Fifth Amendment is not working. Is he saying to to take on the Republican establishment? We need the military to. Stand yes, we need to. We need to replace the autocracy with a military dictatorship. This is not unusual in a Latin American country. We are becoming a Latin American country where we need the military to come in and stabilize things. The political system has been co-opted by the the ruling class, by the greedy. So we need we need uh, Kim Jong Un's uh, stable leadership right now. <laughs> Well, that a man, is, who, can, uh, man who can withstand heart surgery and a and, and a stroke and come back stronger than ever. Is he back? Uh, somebody said they they saw him walking along the beach somewhere. Mm. <laughs> that uh, a big fat guy could have been Chris Christie. You never know. Or a, or a beluga whale washed up on the beach. Yeah, he's a big man. Kim Jong-un. He's got a healthy appetite. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to a military coup. Because we all think of, we, we, we think we're Western Europe here in the United States. But we're part of a different continent, North America, which is linked to South America. This is, this is where we're heading. Vast income inequality. We're not heading there. We're there. 
we're turning into Brazil and Argentina and Chile in the 70s and the 80s, the, the kind of governments we propped up, banana republics run by generals. That That's what we wanted for South America. That's what we encouraged, the efficiency of fascism. Why wouldn't yeah. it happen here? It's good for the economy. Yeah. Go back to your jobs. Go back to your jobs, everybody. Because your health doesn't matter. Well, how bad do things have to get before it be the there's a military coup, an official military coup? Well, it has to get the riots in the streets, streets, I guess, uh, uh, massive strikes, rent strikes. So it's supposed to be a lot of rent strikes on May 1st. We'll see what happens. And you get people shutting down Amazon because they refuse to work under those conditions. I guess then you send the military in to force people to work, or you send the military in to do the work. Mm-hmm. And then people who formerly had jobs uh, will starve, and they'll throw things in the streets, and then they'll get shot by the National Guard, and then um, we'll use their bodies as a food source. <laughs> how far? How far away are we from from this? In all honesty, no joking around. Be serious. You wrote a really great piece for Melania. It was hysterical, so be serious. Let's have a serious conversation for a second. Yeah. How far away are we from a military coup? Well, I think if something like that happens, what what choice uh, does the government have? Uh, the cho- government has two ch- choices. Either they can... Uh, give a universal basic income that will keep people afloat, the poorest of us and the workers afloat, through uh, 20, 30, 40% unemployment for the next two years. And they help subsidize uh, workers' wages and so that the so-called essential workers who are on the front lines get all the protective equipment that they need to work under those conditions and get subsidized wage increases so that they're getting hazard pay and free child care at home and and then give everyone free health care so they don't fear about seeing a doctor and, and and dying in medical debt and all that takes is you know uh, a few numbers a few decibel decibel numbers or digits or whatever spaces you know money is a money is a a fake concept it's an illusion all you have to do is flood the economy with more money from the bottom up then you won't have to resort to the other choice which would be to shoot people in the streets for for rioting and going on massive rent, rent strikes and you know, that's that's the other show. All right, let, let's 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 review. Let's review, because this is reminiscent of the late twenties, early thirties in Europe and the United States. You know, there were machine guns up on uh, uh, 
up on Wall Street on some of the roofs. They were waiting for uh, riots. They were, you know, they were anticipating a huge amount of violence. Right. And, and, and that's, and that is, you know, you know, they say FDR saved capitalism from that. Uh, you know, I don't think FDR did anything solely out of altruism, of course. I think he, you know, he pumped the economy full of money just en- enough to, uh, raise the level of poverty a little bit in order to keep people from turning to communism and violent overthrow of the government and the destruction, complete destruction of capitalism. He found a third way. You know, Professor Harvey J.K., who's one of the world's leading experts on FDR, says that there were two impulses in the world when FDR became president. One was communism, the other was fascism. And in many ways, FDR found a third way for America, not to become fascist. Some would say we did, and uh, not to become socialist, communist. Some would say we did. But I think he straddled the fence and found a third way for us, which is capitalism with, you know, speed limits and a safety net. Which we yeah. are, we've just expunged from our, our, our country. We don't have capitalism with a safety net. And you look at the, the Paycheck Protection Act, where the money went and continues to go. Mm-hmm. Goes into the pockets of executives, goes, becomes dividends for shareholders. The idea that the Small Business Administration has to rely on banks to disperse our money to us, why would it have to go through a bank? And the banks collect fees. Yeah, it's the same way with our health care. Why does our health care have to go through middlemen first? Bureaucrats, somebody sitting behind a desk three states away from your doctor. Why do we have to pay these people a damn thing? Because our government has been looted by the oligarchs. They want their cut. They, mm-hmm. they don't think government can do anything efficiently. Well, what is more inefficient than taking $500 billion that's supposed to go to businesses, small businesses, and saying, you know what, the banks should give out this money and collect a fee while they're at it, and create two tiers of loans, one for their best customers and one for the the retail customers who really need it. All our tax dollars in that stimulus package went to people who don't need it, once again. Yes, it went through a shit filter. Went through a shit filter. Yeah, and it's... uh... And and what this does to the American people is it wears them down. It's just another assault. It's just another reason not to trust government or not to trust the economy. And you just retreat into your own pod. And as you self-quarantine, as you isolate, you become more withdrawn. You stop protesting. You become depressed. You don't take to the streets because you're afraid of catching something. And the plutocrats 
are free to steal right in front of you because there's nothing you're going to do about it. You're desperate. Right. And the, the ones most likely to be desperate and go out in the streets, well, they're the ones who are the most poor, and many of them are the most immune compromised. And of course, they will, they will die first. They will get sick and die first a lot faster than, uh, rich people who are in charge of our economy. So it's a win-win for fascism and democratic fascism, uh, who insist on staying in power to save their jobs and save their money sources. And, uh, and no, no thanks due to, uh, the squad and the so-called progressive wing of the Democratic Party and AOC. Where the fuck were they for the first three stages of these so-called stimulus bills? I believe AOC, AOC voted against the last one. This, the, the last one, yes. The, the ones before that, there's no evidence she even said a damn thing. It's the same thing with uh, Sanders. Where the hell was he? Where was his leadership? Nowhere. Yeah. So I say fuck them all. You know, I, I no more trusting anybody, even on their past records. You go from moment to moment with these people and rely on yourself. That's all you can do. These people are worthless. And Bernie Sanders is now whimpering because he was, his name was taken off the ballot in New York. Well, what the hell did he expect when he drops out halfway through the primary process? Yeah. He's expecting to, to accumulate delegates. Oh, fuck you. What do you think would happen? You know, a state in charge, Andrew Cuomo's in charge. Well, New York, has New York postponed the election due to the COVID-19? They took him off the ballot and they essentially canceled the primary. And awarded the delegates to Biden. I don't know if the delegates have been awarded yet or not, but Sanders is off the ballot now. So will there even be a primary? Well, there has to be. We We had a... We have to nominate guys for Congress, right? Yeah, but I mean, what's the process now? Will there be, will they still have a ballot only with Sanders off of it? Or it's, it's essentially canceled. It's, it's just, it might as well, it's the same kind of uh, primary that uh, Donald Trump had uh, up until now. It's just the assumed winner. We're anointed. Joe Biden as the leader and winner of the party. Right. Meanwhile, they're still uh, going to hold uh, its congressional and state level primaries on June 23rd. I'm just looking at it. But they yeah. canceled the Democratic presidential primary. Yeah. You know, two people did that. Of course, not without the approval of the governor. That was he allowed that provision into the uh, the budget. And, uh, of course not without, I didn't, I didn't hear any protests from the national DNC or the state DNC on this, even though, uh, or, or Joe Biden. Where's Joe Biden? Is he protesting this? Well, he protested a donation from Louis C.K. He's not accepting money from Louis C.K. He returned back. So let's, 
I'm being serious. I'm still getting, you know, six dollar uh, residuals from Pootie Tang every year. You wrote on Pootie Tang? No, I was. I was in Pootie Tang. Oh, that's right. You were in Pootie Tang. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Joe Biden taking high dudgeon and saying he won't accept money from Louis C.K. And talk about Tara Reid, because this woman, Tara Reid, she was a staffer for Joe Biden back in the early 90s. And she says she was sexually assaulted by him. She was supposed to fetch his gym bag and she brought it to him in the hallways and he cornered her and stuck his hands up her dress and assaulted her. She tried to complain. Nothing was done about it. Her mother called into Larry King. We Mm -hmm. have tape of that where she's talking about her daughter being violated by a famous senator. You tell me there are four other people who corroborated the assault? Well, uh, one of her friends uh, who lived with her in San Luis Obispo, I believe, uh, just came out today and said that uh, she remembers Tara Reid telling her the story. So that's that's an additional backup of her story. And then, of course, her mom's uh, call into the Larry King show in 1993 backs it up. She has more evidence to support her story than uh, Blasey Ford did. Okay. She was the one who accused Brett Kavanaugh of trying to rape her, sexually assaulting her, when they were in high school. That's right. Yeah. Or prep school or whatever the hell it was. Yeah. Any other women coming forward? With Joe Biden? Uh, well, Liz Warren endorsed her. So, <laughs> Liz, Liz, Liz Warren endorsed Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah. So she came forward. Yeah, but any other women saying they were sexually assaulted by Joe Biden? Uh, and by that, I mean not in public. They didn't get their hair sniffed. Yeah, there are women. Some legislators have said that he touched them inappropriately, kiss them inappropriately. There already are women who, who've come forward. It's more than just hair sniffing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. To be continued. You're not voting for Joe Biden. No. No, I'm not. You know, it ends here. He's not going to win anyway. Not with this shit going on, especially. You know, it, I, I think the line was drawn a long, long time ago. I'm never going to vote for anybody who is against free medical care for everybody on, in the country, Medicare for all. I'll never vote for anybody like that ever again. So, you know, they can, they can fucking face it. Earn my vote. I, I, uh, Yeah, You know, everybody, people say, yeah, by not voting, you're helping Trump as a vote for Trump. Well, by voting for Joe Biden, that is a vote against Medicare for all. That's a vote against the Me Too movement and Tara Reid and Blasey Ford. That's a vote against peace. 
That's a vote against ending fracking. That's a vote against virtually everything these people claim to stand for and support. So it's, it's brazenly hypocritical, self-defeating, and psychotic. I, uh... <laughs> well, you, you, uh... Yeah. I'm keeping my mouth shut. I'm not going to argue with you. So... I, uh... Uh, yeah. yeah, you know, um, and so so are a lot of other people, uh, Democrats, a lot of Democratic friends of mine, who are blue no matter whoers, and they're, some, they're not saying anything about Tara Reid. They're all against Kavanaugh, but no, no, it's, it's some, something about Joe Biden's okay, right. No, you're right about the Medicare for all. The fact that Barack Obama put his thumb on the scale for Biden March 3rd didn't let the primaries play out. This was before COVID-19. The way he got everybody to, the way he got Mayor Pete to drop out and Mm -hmm. the way he got Beto to endorse Biden and Klobuchar. Yeah. And this was before COVID-19. He didn't have faith in the... God, I'm getting angry. He did not have faith in the process. He did not have faith in the Democratic Party to conduct a primary season and allow the best man to rise to the top. He, Obama ended the primaries. And then COVID-19 hit. And guess what? The most qualified candidate to take on Trump in the era of a pandemic is Bernie Sanders. Obama really effed up. I, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, stop complaining to me about nobody will speak up against Trump. Nobody will speak up against Obama and Biden, the Democratic establishment. You want to change the country? Clean your own effing house first. You're so busy complaining about the corruption in the White House, you can't even clean up the corruption in your own house. So I I agree with you, and I, you know my kids are telling me to, you know you have to tell people you're going to vote for Biden, and I'm going it's the other way around. I'm older than you. I'm your father. I should be telling you to be voting for Biden, and yeah. you should be Biden. Tell- Biden should be telling people why they should vote for him. That's what that, that, that's voters don't have the obligation to tell people anything. It's not their responsibility. Well, it's the politicians responsibility to fight for every inch of the way to the, the end of the convention, fight for people's votes. And if they don't, they don't deserve the job. Yep. Yep. And and I'll tell you this. This is what I'm willing to say. This is what I'm willing to say. Biden doesn't have my vote yet. He doesn't have my vote yet. And uh, we'll see what happens. He's he's got Larry Summers' vote. Mm -hmm. Larry Summers, of course, is uh, his economic advisor. 
And what do you what do you think somebody like that is going to tell Joe Biden about trying to earn your vote or yeah. Medicare for all, for that matter? Yeah. These people are evil. And uh, I don't know why people expected Obama to ever do the right thing. He couldn't even rally voters to uh, defeat the Tea Party in 2010. Right. He lost both houses of Congress and over a thousand state seats and governorships all around the country. Do you know he's how many? Good, do you know how many? Do you know how many mushrooms? Person. Do you know how many mushrooms you had to ingest to come to the realization that the economic system controls our political beliefs and our moral beliefs? And this year. Nobody had to take mushrooms to learn it. <laughs> you know, you have that big epiphany when you're in your 20s. Oh, my God, my thoughts are controlled by the oligarchs. It's not my fault. You didn't need mushrooms this year. But yeah. you didn't act on it. You certainly didn't. I have to wrap this up. Great job, as always. Will I see you Friday night at 9 p.m.? With our- it's, poss- it's possible. I got to... Uh- we have to, uh, yes, I hope so. Zoom or Zoom meeting? Yes. It's a, it's a, it's great. All right. Jim Earl, how do people follow you on Twitter? Everybody should follow you on Twitter. How do people follow you? Uh, Jim Earl 666. Uh huh. And, uh, yeah, you can follow me there. Okay. And, uh, and what is the name of your book? I was Morning Remembrance. Yes, right. With a U. It's a, a a sarcastic collection of sarcastic obituaries of real people. Right. Basically. Fantastic. All right. I will see you Friday night. Uh, not if I see you first. <laughs> <laughs> Do your closing. Do your closing. Okay. See you in court. Okay. Bye. Bye. Joe DeVito joins us, and you can see his latest comedy special by going to drybarcomedy forward slash Joe D. The brilliant comedian Joe DeVito is back closer. Hi. How are you, David? I am concerned about you. I'll tell you why. <laughs> you, uh, not you and specifically, just your type in general. Yeah. Guys who are working comedians, guys who go out there every day, the gladiators who take on the audience because they need an audience. The last time we spoke, you had just gotten off a cruise ship. You went on a cruise ship knowing that COVID-19 was out there. You are a, a you're a working comic. You live for the audience. It has to be torture for you to be home without an audience. It's a little strange. And, you know, of course, we talked about it looking back. Um, I don't know if I would have done the cruise, um, especially since the ship was named Patient Zero. <laughs> the SS Gutain Degas, I believe. Yeah, you see, in retrospect, these <laughs> things look a little strange. Um, yeah, it, it has been weird. Uh, so far, I've resisted to the temptation to be one of these comedians holding a microphone um, 
jumping around in front of an iPhone doing a living room show where, look, we all know this is a cry for help, but we don't need it to be that clear <laughs> that we're that desperate. Uh, but I've been trying to keep busy, but yeah, it does, um, the isolation wears on you. I mean, I think we've all realized, um, none of us had a book in us that we were dying to write. That was just <laughs> a fantasy we had. I haven't even read a book since I've been in here. In here, since I've been locked up, like I'm on a, one of those MSNBC shows. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't know, I don't know why, but it must, it just shows you, like, solitary confinement must really, must really break a person. I've been keeping my money up my ass for no reason. <laughs> well, let's break this down because I have uh-huh. not been in, in human contact with anybody. I've, I went outside yeah. yesterday for the first time in a month. I ran an errand and it was, uh, it was surreal to realize how much I miss nature because i'm in an air shaft i'm in an air shaft i don't see trees i don't get a breeze and i stepped outside i thought oh my god this feels good but it felt toxic at the same time have you been outside at all yeah yeah i try to go out almost every day i try to walk down you know because i'm suburban so i try to walk down to a local park and just get some fresh air. It is weird because I think we we naturally as humans try to compare this to what the other thing we've already experienced that's similar to this. So you think, is it like being sick? It's, well, no, you feel fine, so it's not taking a sick day. Is it like being snowed in? Well, no, and that strikes me whenever I step outside and realize, oh, I can just walk around. So, But I, I think people are getting ready to snap because as I walked down to the local park yesterday and there were people – Kind of doing regular park things and half-hearted, um, you know, the mask is kind of hanging off the face and <laughs> jauntily. <laughs> yeah, they've got it. It's at a, a bit of an angle, and you know, and I, I keep my um, my nose and mouth covered. Um, no pants, obviously no pants, <laughs> but the nose and mouth are covered because I like to feel the ocean breeze. I feel like the, the salt in there has got to rejuvenate. So. But it is pretty, I mean, I've been, I've been doing this thing where I just do chin-ups constantly and I'm doing, um, around 75 chin-ups a day. I just spread it out. Wow. This really yeah. is prison. You're it not going to really become is. a Muslim, are you? I, I'm, I'm coming out of this like, um, De Niro and Cape Fear. I told people <laughs> my book's already read them. So, so that part, you know, and I've actually been eating better, but then I noticed today that I have a scratch on my face that, I cannot identify when that happened. So who, who knows? Maybe I'm sneaking out at night. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's um, well, now, let me, it's you, not fun. Have you seen your parents? We do family Zoom time. So right. on Sundays, um, my sister and her husband in Jersey and myself here on Long Island and my parents in Connecticut, we Zoom. Um, we've done that a couple times now. My favorite part is 20 minutes in when my mother says, let's wrap this up. That I really <laughs> like that part. Where, it's, it's fun to watch them. My mother thought for some reason she had to lean in when it was her turn to speak. So you, you just see her her head, like she's headbutting their computer. Um, but everybody's doing all right. But it's a bummer. I mean, I would love to go visit them, but I, you know, I can't. How is your mom doing? She's doing fine. I call her 
uh, every day and uh, hanging in there. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I'm going a little, I, I'm going stir crazy. I, yeah. I agree with you about, I don't have a book. I have a podcast that I can do. Mm. Thank God. So I'm able to do this. That's my human interaction. But it's uh, not the same thing as no. talking to real people. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been trying to use it to FaceTime with some friends and and all that. And I'm writing my jokes. I've been tweeting out my jokes, trying to do, you know, uh, at a regular pace. Although I'm astonished by the number of people who seem to lack the gene to recognize a joke. Yes. It, it's like a birth defect. I tweeted out something the other day. I noticed um, your good friend uh, Kim Jong-un, we don't know his status. They don't know if he's um, he's dead or alive. But I noticed people were tweeting um, something along the lines of how terrible it is that North Korea might have a female leader before the United States, which I thought was a particularly idiotic take because it's not like there's a, an election there. Do you know? It's... <laughs> It's a hereditary dictatorship. Right. So I tweeted out something like, um, you know, I, I can't believe that North Korea is going to have an Asian leader before the United States. Let that sink in. <laughs> Which I pretty clearly thought was a joke. And I don't know if, who's retweeted me, but I'd say a, a third of the comments were people who they just didn't get that that was clearly a joke, which I think if you took a moment to read the tweets before and after that, you know that I'm fucking around, you know mm -hmm. that I'm not being serious, but I, I don't get it. And, you know, and it's well, it's, did you, it, it's context. Did people understand you were riffing off the female joke? You know, I think enough people did. But I think even if you don't understand that, you would say to yourself, well, that's odd. Let me take a look at what else this guy has to say. I mean, a comedy, it's at Joe DeVito comedy. Right. So right. It, it to me, you know, I'll, I'll give you this example. Do you, you remember the Police Academy movies, right? Of course. Yeah. I didn't like them. I watched them in the 80s. I didn't think they were funny. But I knew it was a movie. Do you understand mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like, I didn't sit there in the theater thinking, what a terrible plan for training officers. <laughs> I knew it was someone had made a thing. It was at least an attempt. So it just fascinates me that people think that um, that was my legitimate opinion when you just had to read the tweet before that. I think um, I said the death of Kim Jong-un shows the toll that obesity has taken on North Korea. I mean, do you need me to explain that joke, too, that <laughs> he's the only fat person in the starving country? I don't know. Maybe I need to do that after every tweet. I need to... Um, I need to put like a, a list of ingredients so people don't accidentally ingest it and, and, and they're not sure what they've just swallowed. Well, Twitter is a medium. It's a platform. Yeah. And the writing is platform specific. This is something yeah. I don't understand. A lot of my comedy writer friends don't understand that what works on Facebook doesn't work on Twitter necessarily. And mm. that the, the, the platform influences it, wags the idea. There are a lot of things that get retweeted on Twitter that you couldn't sell to, uh, to you know, you can't, 
the stuff. Yeah. Like a, and, and you're almost punished. I noticed that comedy writers are punished for doing jokes that would work on television. That they don't get, the, yeah, and and they go to me, and I've had the same experience. I go, that's a perfect joke. I can imagine, you know, Jimmy Fallon telling that joke, and I think Twitter says, then go give it to Jimmy Fallon. This is not the place for you to write TV jokes. So yeah. that's what I've noticed about Twitter. It does not reward classically constructed jokes that you would see on late night television. Although then there are people who do do that and it's brilliant, but it ha- it's a, it's, there's a style to Twitter yeah. that, that I have not mastered. There's a right. Well, there's style. a way to use it. Some people use it in a way that I'm, I'm very impressed that they've, they use Twitter in a way that's very Twitter specific. Like their use of hashtags is really good. Um, sometimes their specialty is to present, to, to present things as, um, Fake headlines. I always enjoy that, like an onion style or mm-hmm. kind of like uh, mimicking the old, you know, the really funny New York Post ones. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think we're living in a society where people think they're being clever if they retweet uh, a woman from the Real Housewives of Atlanta rolling her eyes. Right. And they think that's a, that's a clever, that's a real, that's a sick burn if they put that up there. Uh, right. I had a friend who had written a very funny piece on Medium and Someone put it on another one of these, um, you know, these aggregator BuzzFeed compilation type websites, and they just said, some genius put this together. And my friend contacted them and said, hey, you know, here's my name. Why don't you credit my name? And she very respectfully said this. And this person who's supposed to be a writer just kept sending them um, animated files of people rolling their eyes. And she said, is this – you're a writer, and this is how you respond to someone? Mm-hmm. It's, it's all very juvenile. But I was glad um, – I don't know. Just I just thought it was very interesting that that there must be a sad life where you, you just lack the capacity to understand uh, a joke is a joke. And I'm not even saying that I think they should find me funny. In a way, I'm kind of relieved that someone like that doesn't find me funny. But I I do think I, I I'm not out of line to say you you have to be aware that this is a joke. Right. But I, no I said something to a friend on Zoom, and I thought this was really funny. I said. You know, I think I had this back in January. Uh, I, I, I was, uh, you know, back in January, I was watching a lot of television. I didn't want to go outside. I was ordering in a lot, tipping the guy from Seamless like 30%, 40%. I think I had this before. I think I had it back. I had it in the summer, too. And, and they said to me, that's not funny. I don't get it. And I kept. Trying to sell it. No, no, no. I think I had this before. Back in like in August, I was lying around, not going outside, not returning people's phone calls, no stand-up, ordering in. Now, am I wrong? I kind of think that's funny. Am I wrong? Um, in a way, I I wonder how far back would you have to keep running that joke to the same person before they got an inkling that. You're not really talking about coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what? Uh, how easy do you have to make it for people? But I guess it goes to show that you you can only dumb things down so far. And I mean, we've seen your act, David. You're at rock bottom now. There's not much lower you could go. <clears throat> you know, I think. Um, did you try using a puppet to explain the joke? I don't know if that would have helped. Hey, so with stand-up, vis-a-vis mm-hmm. Zoom shows, 
and Twitter. So Twitter is a platform in and of itself, and I think if you bring to it other things, sometimes you know, Twitter doesn't lend itself for certain things. I've been doing these Zoom meetings. Mm-hmm. We do them every Friday night at 9 p.m. You're more than welcome. It's uh, it's pandemonium. It's where my listeners get to talk to the guests on the show. Oh. And you'd be very surprised that uh, the last one went three and a half hours. Isn't that amazing that I would do a uh, Zoom meeting that went three and a half hours? Are you... <laughs> That, that, uh, yeah, surprising. Usually, you know, I, knowing you, David, that, uh, brevity is the soul of wit. <laughs> it's surprising because I expect it to go seven hours. You're, I'll send you an invite. You can, you know, yeah. come in and come out. Sure. But the, so. Doesn't your podcast average about 14 hours per episode now? Uh, per interview. <laughs> it's like the old telethons. Mm-hmm. Didn't you have Norm Crosby as a guest the other night? Yes, I do. <laughs> the the Zoom meetings that we have Friday nights at nine are informative for me. It's instructive of who my audience is. I always imagine people who have insomnia, like me, they're lonely and they're looking for somebody to put them to sleep. <laughs> and and I was reassured that a lot of the people who showed up kind of, you know, they, they, they were, I you could yeah. see them. Sometimes they turned the video on and they were very instructive. Somebody was doing their wash while listening to the Zoom meeting. There was one person who was trying to fall asleep. She was cuddled up on her couch with her pillow and she wanted to hear a conversation as she tried to fall asleep. Well, but I think when people say your podcast, um, when they refer to putting to sleep, they mean it more in a veterinary sense. <laughs> you know, when, when they say it's the last po- podcast they want to listen to, they, they really mean in you know, right, right. very hemlock kind of <laughs> kind of way. So afterwards, yeah, um, three, the next day, three and I get a half the, hours. Though, I get these I mean, calls from people, and they say to me. You know, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with it? And I say, I think it is what it is. I think it's a Zoom meeting. I I don't think it's going to translate into anything other than me and the comics or the professors or the journalists interacting with people who show up for the meeting. The same way podcasting, you know, I was an early adopter and I initially thought well, this is just radio. This is going to replace radio. Yeah. And then I realized, no, this is a whole other medium. You can do long-form conversation here. This is something completely separate from radio. And I think the same applies to Zoom. I don't think you can have these large Zoom meetings and say, well, this can turn into a television show or it can be. No, it's. Yeah, it is. A it's, it's, its own thing. It's yeah, its own I think thing. you're right. Yeah. I think what's interesting about the length of your your uh, content that you put out that specifically the Zoom meeting, even the Chinese hackers were signing out. I think it was even <laughs> too much for them. So I think even they were asking if the cure was worse than the disease. your <laughs> Zoom meeting. Let me ask you about 
these mm-hmm. Zoom comedy shows and what the future could be. Yeah. This is what I've observed. You have the power on Zoom, if you're the moderator, to mute and unmute. Yes. And if you could get... So, the I don't charge for these meetings. But I would say the way, the way you could do it is Joe DeVito doing stand-up or in conversation with 100 people. Yes. You charge for it. You have a maitre d' at the beginning who says, you know, welcome, please turn off your mic. Please keep your... Or do you know how to turn your mic off? So, uh, Are you in a quiet place? You, in other words, if you pay to see Joe DeVito, you have to promise that you are in a quiet place. And if everybody, if you have 100 people in a room and their mic is on and it's quiet, you can hear laughs. The problem is there's that idiot who has to be muted. But if you have an enforcer, there's a way to... I, I can see in the next couple of months doing a live stand-up show on Zoom, or one of these, uh, t- you know, video conferencing apps. Yeah. And you c- it would be like playing to a studio audience. Somebody's going to figure it out. Yeah, I think you're right. I think what's going to happen is the idea of, it's going to be somewhere, the idea of it's a stand-up show, like a, a facsimile of a stand-up show, that's not going to work. But I think it's also not just going to be the conversations you see on a podcast. I think it's going to be somewhere in between that. It's going to have its own kind of flow to it where it's going to be maybe like a panel appearance where you do material. It's, it's going to be something in between. It'll find a way to use the format in a, a unique way. Um, and talking to the audience. People, I mean, you do crowd work. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's one of the things where you'll have that option with Zoom as opposed to with podcasts where you, you know, it's much more, um, the content flows one way. So, yeah, I think that's what's going to happen is that someone will find a way to do crowd work well. They'll just punch in and and highlight a person there. I think that's already starting to happen, and I think that could be kind of fun. Because I think whatever we, after this ends, whatever we go back to, I think there's some things that um, they're going to stick around. I think the idea that FaceTiming is a way you know somebody, that's going to stick around. Just as, um, I'll give you an example of that. The way I mostly interact with um, younger people is through stand-up. I know them from uh, comedy. and uh, I've noticed that people under 40, they don't say online dating. People over 40 say that, but people under 40 just call it dating. Hmm. So just as the technology became the real thing to them, I think FaceTime is not going to be some other um, virtual reality thing. It's going to be reality. So right. I think when people think a comedian, they're not going to think as much a person on a stage in front of a big audience holding a microphone. They're going to think more someone who puts out online content. Right, right, right. And I don't know if there's a way. To, I don't think we come back from that entirely. Well, let me roll. Let me run this past you, and then I want to ask okay. you about hemorrhoids. Sure, of course. Uh, one of the things I'm doing uh, on this show is Howie Klein 
is doing a Zoom meeting with some of my listeners. Uh, Professor Harvey J.K. is doing a Zoom meeting with some of my listeners. I, I put it out on social media, and then people email me, and I send them the invite, and they sit in on the Zoom meeting. Well, I, you know, I'll interview Howie Klein. They sit in on it, and then they ask some questions. Uh, so far, it's been interesting. It's reminiscent of, like, the old Larry King show. You know, let's yeah. go to Sicily. She's in uh, Maine. What's your question for Howie Klein? And it, so it's like doing talk radio. Very yeah. interesting. I would Yeah, so it com- it combines stand-up comedy with the white knuckle excitement of C-SPAN. <laughs> now let's hear from somebody who doesn't uh who likes blue comedy. <laughs> We're going to Veronica and Alexandria. Veronica, are you there? <laughs> Uh, I think somebody, I want to, we'll get to your hemorrhoid in a second. I think somebody out there is going to figure out a way to create a bus in audio where you hear the comedian and then they gather up all the 100 people in the Zoom room and run that audio and then you can mix it down so that it'll sound you'll hear laughs. I think they're going to be able to do it. The idea that I just refuse to accept the fact that they can, they can pull off these teleconferences, but they can't figure out a way for us to hear people there laughing. I think we're months away from that, from virtual standup. Well, I do know this, whatever bus you and I are on, it'll be a short one. (laughs) So uh, tell me about your hemorrhoid. Oh, it would be my pleasure. Now, refresh Um, our memory. What is a hemorrhoid? A hemorrhoid is when uh, you have this tissue in your lower digestive tract, and um, what happens is sometimes it'll kind of, the veins uh, will push through, and um, they get inflamed, and uh, depending on the severity of it, you may have to, um, I guess they usually go away on their own. You may have to get them surgically removed if it's really bad. Sometimes they have a thing where they put a rubber band around it and it it uh, chokes the life out of it and it falls off on its own. I find that option particularly attractive. <laughs> I thought that, I would, you know, you, you don't want to go into the doctor's office and ask, you know, have any requests. But I thought that one was intriguing. Doctor, so, yeah. I, want, I, I said destroy the hemorrhoid, not heighten its orgasm. <laughs> yeah, I asked for the uh, the David Carradine treatment on my hemorrhoid. I my hotel doorway. We're going to um, need a bigger rubber band for this one. <laughs> <laughs> so so here's – this is an interesting thing that I've noticed that as you get older um, – by the way, it, it, there must have been a morning where I woke up in quarantine and thought, well, I guess it isn't that bad. And then, oh, now there's something growing out of my ass. <laughs> <laughs> I swear that I get whiplash from the way karma corrects itself. The moment, I mean, it wasn't enough that, I swear to God, David, in November, I said out loud, I think 2020 is going to be my year, and I apologize to everyone for <laughs> running my stupid mouth. So uh, so as you get older, you do have these moments where you'll notice something on your body, and you'll have to say to yourself, I don't think that was there yesterday. <laughs> that something new has shown up. I had a bump. 
my butt. Um, <laughs> so um, I went to research it online at um, uh, it's definitely cancer.com. <laughs> I run everything past them first. Um, and then uh, I thought, all right, well, now I have to call and, you know, it could be a polyp. Very interesting. Polyps, they, polyps seem to have a mushroom-like structure, and I'm fascinated by any sort of growth. You either compare it to produce or sporting goods. <laughs> that you go, is it a grape or a golf ball? Is it a <laughs> or a football? Would you say, is it a, is it a, a nectarine or a hockey stick? Like, it's always... <laughs> Are you on your way to play it against sports or the farmer's market? That's how you. <laughs> so anyway, so I thought, well, how do I for real right away? I'm like, I have ass cancer. I have ass cancer. I have ass cancer. So I have to go through the thing with insurance and figure this out. But I call the local doctor and the next day they picked up the phone at 930 in the morning and they said, can you come in today at three? And I thought, hell yeah, I can. I mean, I thought this was going to take months and. I went in. They would seem glad to see me because no one can come in if you're hospitals are overwhelmed with COVID, but anything else is just sitting around. Mm-hmm. So did you feel sick? In, so you uh, went to the doctor? Gastroenterologist. Yeah, I went in. I had my hand sanitizer. I was wearing I do not have my masks yet. So I have I cut I cut up a T-shirt. So I pull that over my face. I look like the guy from Bazooka Joe. Do you remember his friend with the turtleneck? Like I, I, I look well. When the doctor walked in, he started laughing. He said, um, he says, you look like you're here to rob the place. <laughs> um, and being a comedian, I said, stick them up. Not the thing you want to say to a gastroenterologist, <laughs> by the way. So, so here's what I wanted to tell you, David. Um, here's how my life has changed. I have not had the colonoscopy, so he made the appointment for, he said, once facilities open up again, you know, in another month or two, we'll get you in. But I had a sigmoidoscopy about 20 years ago. Now, do you know the difference? A sigmoidoscopy, I, you tell me. Yeah, it's, um, it's, they, it's not the bigger camera. It's a smaller camera. I, I told people it's, um, it's, it's more like an independent film. <laughs> so, you know, you don't have, the, it's not the big budget. But uh, we did very well at Sundance. I don't. I don't mean to brag. So anyway, so when I went Sun to don't that, shine dance. <laughs> yes. Um, so I was twenty years ago. I was you know thirty years old, and I remember when I felt so embarrassed and just dreading the doctor doing the digital exam at the time. And the doctor even said to the doctor even said to me. Gee, you're awful quiet. Which, <laughs> what am I supposed to be singing and scatting, you know, or not scatting? That would be the wrong. So, uh-huh. but this time they, they said, okay, we're going to need you to drive. And I was, nope, like I dropped my sweatpants. I'm chatting. I even said to the doctor, yeah, you'll spot it right there on the right. And I was so, when you're older, you don't care. Mm-hmm. And he did a quick exam, said it's definitely a hemorrhoid. He gave me a, a prescription for some cream and, uh, I have to sit in a hot tub for a while and should be all right. And Hmm. it it turned out to be uh, a pretty chill experience. So, and, um, and, uh, I'm, I'm happy with that. You know, it doesn't hurt. I think it's from all the sitting I've been doing since I've been home. Yeah. So, um, so that's that. That's that's a a sweet story. 
it's nice. It doesn't need the rubber band yet. Um, I don't know. I mean, hopefully it won't. I, maybe I can pick up a scrunchie at CVS. I don't know if that's maybe a banana clip that was popular in the 80s. Only Joe DeVito can tell us about his hemorrhoid, and it's a story of hope and redemption. It is. It is. And I think um, <laughs> and I, I know we haven't had our, our chance to do other podcasts about the fecal transplants but there's more stuff at there was the, you can buy fecal tablets i'm not making this up they, and david they, of course you recall the name of what our our fecal transplant podcast is called right you you tell them it's a talking shit is right. the, the podcast so um i think for the hemorrhoid if I, it'll, it'll be called talking out my ass i think that's <laughs> the name of it well i've promised to keep these things short so I'm going to wrap it up. We're ending on a high note, Dave. Well, I got nothing. This is all I have. I'm like Brando in, in Apocalypse Now. I can't, I can't give you anything more than I've just given you. <laughs> it's fantastic. Joe DeVito, follow him on Twitter, Joe DeVito Comedy. Go watch yes, his. Yeah, and watch his stand up special by going to Dry Bar Comedy forward slash Joe D. And what else should we plug? You have a CD, right? A comedy CD, a couple yeah, of comedy got, um, CDs. If you go to uh, Amazon and iTunes, I have uh, my first album, First Date. And I also did um, a split album called Three's Comedy with Vicki Cooperman and Kylo Cassio, two other very funny comics. We each did uh, 20-minute sets on that one. So I got content out there, folks. Enjoy it. Enjoy, while you're locked down, enjoy, enjoy me. Yes. And I'll enjoy that. Fantastic. Stand the line, Joe DeVito. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump. We're going. We're rolling. Mark Breslin joins okay. us. He is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy club in North America, if not the world. And he is in Toronto. I want to know if you got outside. I finally got outside this weekend. I went for a brief walk. I went for a brief shop, which is about as good as I could do. And I also... There's a bit of a parquet across the street from where I live, and I uh, took my son out there, and we flew these kind of balsa wood planes that we, we have, and we raced them and did a little scootering. Um, I didn't do the scootering. He did the scootering. I, I walked behind him. And so, yes, I got outside, but it hasn't been particularly great weather here, so, um, you know, that gets in the way. I scooted my ass across the rug because uh, my anal glands <laughs> had not been expressed properly this month. Well, that's sad. You know, I'd heard that. <laughs> Do you have a dog? No. We had a cat, and we had a cat for a long, long time. And the cat, uh, Dee Dee, recently died about two years ago. But she was 23 years old, and she was a wonderful cat. And the last year, unfortunately, her idea of, you know, life was to look and stare at the air grate. And that was about <laughs> it. So, um she died. It, it really was a difficult thing for my son because it was his first real 
um, experience with death. And I think actually that's one of the good things about having a, a pet for a child is that it teaches them about the cycle of life. Uh, and uh, he was bereft about the whole thing. He was yeah. very, very close with the cat. He loves cats. He generally loves animals. Um, dogs would be a very hard thing for me to have. I love dogs. When I was growing up, all my friends had dogs in their houses. But I'd have to take care of the dog. I'd have to walk the dog. And, you know, up until very recently, I wasn't at home quite enough. So this would always be a problem of who would walk the dog or you have to hire a dog walker. Cats are more contained. Um, now, what about your exotic right, they will pet? Give you the love that... Sorry? Don't you oh, yeah, have... Go have ahead. I interrupted you. I interrupted you. No, it's okay. It's it's okay. I'm just saying that um, if you people often think that cats aren't um, as affectionate as dogs, and that's often true. But if you treat them really really right, and you buy them a little jewelry once in a while, <laughs> I find that they're very very affectionate. We're talking about cats. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, dogs are always affectionate. They really are man's best friend. But uh, the cats are aloof. They're standoffish. Um, I, I, that's why I like them. I like that's why I like them, and I like you know Scandinavian women for the same reason. They're a bit aloof, a bit standoffish, but they're beautiful. Hmm. They love to be petted. <laughs> you know. The uh, what, what is the name of the pet that you still haven't got? Have you gotten the pet back? The exotic pet. No, no, because we don't want the guy to come to the. When he comes, you'll have to redo the uh, the aquarium. We don't want him in the house. It's not safe yet, so it's called an axolotl. You can look it up. A x o t. No, sorry. A x a x o l o t l. Axolotl, and it's a bioluminescent salamander that uh, lives in the water, but can come out of the water for short periods of time. Interesting. They're, they look prehistoric, and they grow to be about eight inches long. So um, they're they're quite wonderful. They're smarter than fish. They will recognize you. They will know when feeding time is when you you know go to scoop them out to put them into their little container where you feed them. Uh, they'll they'll know that that's happening. So they do have a some kind of a brain, which is great. Um, and they're interesting. They're interesting pets. They don't require a lot of work. They eat bloodworms which are frozen cubes of tiny worms that you would buy in a uh, good pet store. Hmm. Well, we had our Friday night Zoom meeting where everybody introduced their pets. It was uh-huh. riveting. It was absolutely riveting. People show us their cats and their dogs and explain who they are, what their personalities are. And we had about 80 people just staring at everybody else's pets I don't know why. Well, why. I don't know why that's fascinating, but it is. Can you explain that? Well, you know, that? on Saturday Night Live, on Saturday Night Live on, on Saturday, they did another home edition, which I have to say was infinitely better than the first one they did. There mm-hmm. was a lot of funny stuff on it. And one of the things they did, uh, there was a piece that uh, Kate McKinnon shot in her in her apartment or in her house with her cat. And... Whether or not the bit was funny or not is sort of immaterial. What was interesting is that everybody was interested that, hey, she has a cat. <laughs> it's, um, and I don't mean just mean that because, oh, look, lesbians have cats. That's well known. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting because it humanized her uh, in a way that I don't think she's been humanized before. Animals right. really humanize people um, when, you get to, when you get to know them. Um, I'm sure if, you know, Paul Pot had a cat, 
Well, he would have eaten it. So maybe that's not a good example. <laughs> but I think you know where I'm going with it. Yes, yes. He, yeah. Hitler so, was a dog lover, as you know. Blondie. Um, His dog's name was Blondie. Yeah. That's right. Well, what did you expect it was going to be? Blackie? Come on. And the dog died. He shot the dog. He married Eva or Ava. Yeah. Then shot the dog and gave her the cyanide tablet, I believe. Um, or did you they... got it a bit back. No, you got it backwards there. He shot Ava and gave the dog the cyanide. <laughs> Wait, I, I'm trying to remember. It. The Goebbels... The Goebbels took yes. the cyanide tablets. Did yes. Eva did Eva get shot or did she take a yeah, pill? She nope, she got shot. She got shot. It was um yeah. They they she got shot and then he shot himself. So they say. <laughs> there is a different interpretation of that of this these events in Argentina. Yeah. Uh, if you go there. <laughs> uh, they have a completely different story. Uh, -huh. uh but um that that's must have been a nice. That's a nice wedding, though. Yeah, you go yeah. first. The, honey. the bride, wore, the bride wore white with huge splotches of red. <laughs> it was a shotgun wedding. <laughs> it was. <laughs> yes, it was a shotgun wedding. Hey, David, I've been thinking about something uh, about this whole uh, in, incarceration thing. You know, they say that um, nine months from now there's going to be a baby boom. But I disagree, because I think actually nine months from now, there's going to be an abortion boom. <laughs> well, that would be three months from now. Yeah, well, you know, because what's going to happen is you have all these people um, who are together, these couples together, realizing they shouldn't be together, but they're still having sex. Mm -hmm. And so when all of this lifts, <laughs> um, there's going to be um, an enormous demand. And since a lot of people are out of work, I'm thinking that they should... Um, they should take away the abortionist's craft from the medical establishment and just make it um, a job on its own. Um, <laughs> and maybe you could learn it in Zoom class, um, and then people will be ready, and we'll get a lot of people back to um, we'll get a lot of people back to work fast. Yeah, yeah. I think that's important. Yeah, so I don't I'm like regular. I'm like regular surgery. If you screw up, it lives. I mean, <laughs> yeah. That's right. Oh, my God. The operation was a disaster. He lived. <laughs> well, you know, it's a very, very, you know, controversial topic. Um, but I, I have to say I have always been in favor of a woman's right to choose. And also, I'd go further. It's a man's right to to insist. Um, <laughs> to be honest, um, I've gone through... I think four abortions with uh, with girlfriends over the years, and um, you know there's a, this this thing about sentimentalizing the fetus, and that's what it all boils down to. Um, and uh, I, you know, I I just think you know I, I walk around sometimes, and there's the these anti-abortion um, demonstrations, and they're carrying these placards with these pictures on them and i think you've seen those pictures yes and as i pass i'm buttonholed by one of the protesters and they say look at this look at this so what does this look like to you and i venture i don't know a prawn <laughs> um, and i really don't know whether to um you know give them my my support 
or to pull out a cocktail fork and some, <laughs> and some you know, cocktail sauce. Um, because, frankly, that's what it looks like to me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You don't now, have Now, here's the thing. Go ahead. No, no, no here's the thing. Um, you know, um, this, if we could just get beyond this emotional connection um, on this issue and we could do and we could start making decisions that are just practical and scientific in high school i studied a lot of stupid stuff that i'd never need like shop when am i going to be on a lathe really <laughs> but if they could teach the craft of abortion <laughs> to kids in high school then no, listen to me. Johnny could knock up his girlfriend and solve the problem at the same time. <laughs> a mathematical now, problem. Say, that's right. So, uh -huh. you, but you might say, "Where you know this? Where, where, what are you, is he going to do it in his living room? Is it rec room?" <laughs> no, 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 no. I had a plan. I had a very good plan. Do you remember there were all these photo mats? Um, that were uh, <laughs> dotting the landscape that became useless once the iPhone yes. came in and people didn't yes. actually have to bring film in. Well, right. I thought they should be turned into abortion huts. <laughs> and people could drive in, run in, 30 minutes, right, just like your film, uh -huh. and, you, and you leave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought that that would be... Uh, a really great solution to a complex problem. But evidently, people didn't feel comfortable with that, so uh, I never could make that deal happen. Yeah, that's a great idea. I agree with you. They have Thank sex ed, why not ex ed? Just teach kids how to ex ed. And, and great, you know, Johnny has 500 million sperm cells, they mingle with Joni's one egg. And create a baby. How? <laughs> All right, I can't do this. I can't. How? Do it. Go. No, go. no, 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 no. It's too. It, but... Yes, 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 yes. No, I, 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 I just did. Ten... Listen, I just did ten minutes that will make sure I never get invited to a cocktail party again. So come on. <laughs> in Canada, you have the right to choose, right? You, you don't have the. I mean, in Texas, you can't get an abortion. There are states where. What's going on in Canada? Well, you know, it, it's. It's interesting. When I was in high school, actually, there were more liberal abortion laws in New York City than there were in in Canada. That came a bit later. So what what a very enterprising uh, a group of guys did was they started a business where they packaged uh, for the girls um, flight to New York, hotel, the abortion. And two tickets to Hello Dolly. Um, which <laughs> are you serious? Was, yeah, I am serious. Actually, oh. um, you got a, you got a um, what do you call it? two tickets to a Broadway show? So um, that was about 1967, and I believe that New York was one of the few places that you could get a legal abortion at that time. You had to have you know eight doctors signing off on it, but it could be done. Then um, something happened, and uh, it became legal in all of Canada. I don't think it was a provincial a, a jurisdiction. I think it was a full federal jurisdiction. I can't tell you what year that was, but I think it was around 1970, probably. Um, now, there was a guy who was the flashpoint for all of this um, named Dr. Henry Morgenthaler. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Henry Morgenthaler was a guy who had his, uh, the, uh, his own clinic, 
on Harvard Street in Toronto, which was very near the University of Toronto. And that's where you went. And it was completely legal. But he was a doctor, he was a medical doctor. And all kinds of uh, people went there. There were pickets there, though, for years in front of the building. That's what I remember. Um, in fact, I did an, um, I was just getting into show business at the time, and I was in the folk music sort of field, and I did a big benefit concert for him and his clinic, I think in 1975. Hmm. So, um, and all the big feminists came up for that one to speak. There was Gloria, uh, we got Gloria Steinem, and we got, uh, Oh, who else was there? Um, if you watch Mrs. America, which I've been doing, have you been watching Mrs. America? Phyllis Shafley? Yeah, it's great. I'll have to, I it's get... absolutely great. you, you got to watch it. Anyway, Bella Abzug came, and they all made uh, uh, speeches, and I was really proud of my role in it, and I went to meet them and talk to them, and Gloria Steinem said to me, are you the person who's organized this? I said, yeah. She said, well, that's great. Can you go get me a coffee? And uh, at that point, I became a toxic male. Um, <laughs> it was kind of insulting. Anyway, there's a flash forward on all of this. Um, years later, maybe 10 years later, uh, I had Yuck Yucks open. And one night, stormy night, um, a guy comes to the box office uh, in the middle of the show. And I happen to be there. And I look at him and I recognize him. It's Dr. Henry Morgenthal. <laughs> and, and he says to us, um, look, I've, I've, I've seemed to have locked myself out of my car. Um, do you have a coat hanger? <laughs> now, you probably think I'm making that story up. Uh -huh. It has a good punchline, uh -huh. but it actually happened. Wow. Dr. Henry Morgenthaler actually asked us for a coat hanger. Wow. Wow. So, a wire so coat that, hanger. Those are my experiences. <laughs> a coat hanger? Yeah, wow. So he could get into his car. Yeah, right? no, no, I know, I know. I, I said a wire coat. And hanger. that's how they use. Oh, and that's how they used to perform abortions with coat hangers. Yeah. Did you not know that? Of course, I knew that. Why do you think? No, it, you didn't. I, I can't. What, what was that girlfriend's name? No, I, I think women are less queasy when it comes to abortion than men. I think men, it's just unfathomable. You've been responsible f for four abortions, five if you <laughs> count my appearance in Vancouver, and right. that you booked. Uh, but I think women are, I don't think women Six, have as... Actually, that was a twin. <laughs> <laughs> Ask think, anybody who was there. Who was more uncomfortable during these abortions, you or the, uh, the women? Well, I'm, twice. They didn't even tell me until much later. I see. Much later, after we'd already broken up. But well, I tend to remain friends with um, girlfriends. So um, much later, after we'd broken up, two of them told me that it was um, that they'd done this. One of them, I wasn't absolutely certain it was me uh, because uh, this girlfriend was pretty sexually ac active. It could have been me. It could have been somebody else. And the other one, um, it was... Um, it was sad because she was a Catholic, and um, we obviously had this discussion um, and decided it was unfair to deprive a priest. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The well, pleasure of you yeah, know the yeah. possibility the possibility yes. of, of a child's company, you know. Oh, so. Yeah. Um, so she went ahead and did it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they're... Believe that, 
That's why they're against abortion. Why the Catholic Church doesn't is against abortion because it would stop any of the male children uh, being uh, having close to the priest. Wow, wow, well, well, let's turn to comedy as you know. Uh, as opposed to what we've been talking I, well, about, okay. talking about comedy as opposed to being funny. All right. There was an article about Ted Alexandra, a great political satirist living in New York. He has a special out. It's a compilation of his Instagrams. He's not performing in front of an audience. He's performing to the Internet. And there was a review in the New York Times. I think the guy's name is Zimmerman. He's a comedy critic. And he said what I've been saying for years, that the audience many times forces a comic to be less free and compromise their comedic principles in order to deliver a laugh. He was questioning, it's in, it's in, I think it was in Saturday's New York Times, saying that when you relieve a comedian of the pressure of an audience, they're freer, and I suspect you're going to say, but not necessarily funnier, because it's a collaborative effort. But we've talked about this. This is going to be a discussion that more and more comedy people are going to have and that is did the audience have too much say in comedy well you know i mean it it is a marketplace um uh, but i can also say that um there in my experience the audience has often spurred me on mm-hmm. has often tried pushed me further than i normally would have thought of going so it can work both ways, you know. Um, I, I I like an audience there. An audience gets me to do things. An audience is like the guy who goes, come on, come on, come on, climb the cliff. Come on, come on, come on. Yeah, jump off, jump off into the lake. I'm not jumping <laughs> off into that. Come on, do it, do it, do it. Yeah, yeah, you can do it. I would never do that. Come on! Uh-huh. And then you do it. And I, I, and I think an audience is, is valuable. If you have the right audience, I think they... They can, they can do it for you. Right. And and there's this need for a communal experience, a shared moment that. Well, that, yes. And that goes without saying. But, um, you know, I, I, I haven't seen the special, so I can't really comment on it. Um, I, I like an audience. I need an audience. I need an audience more than I need an act, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I like, I like people. I like having them around. Right. Uh, the, the one thing that this whole uh, incarceration has done for me is I don't miss going to the park. I miss people. Right. I miss just general public. It's not even that I miss my friends. I just miss bodies walking right. around in space, you right. know, occupying, right. occupying space. So um, when I go to the movies, for instance, I mean, this is the, the movies are an interesting metaphor here, too. Everything's on, on Netflix. You don't have to. It's what they've said was, oh, you'll watch Netflix to the point where you realize, why am I going to the movies? Why am I spending, you know, all that money and all that time and, um, you know, having to find a parking spot and uh, paying a babysitter, blah, 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 to go to the movies. And that sounded a little very logical for the first while. And now it's like, no, I just want to sit in the dark with other strangers. Right. That's what I want. Right. I, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people to be, I'm just going to reiterate what you said because it's so important that at the beginning of this pandemic, we all began to believe, well, this is the new normal. Nobody's ever going to go out again because they're realizing they don't have to. And once this is over, 
we're realizing how we've realized how dangerous it is to be isolated, that we are, in fact, social animals. We're being tricked into thinking that we're not social animals. I mean, I think it I think it's in the best interest of corporations to keep us isolated unless they're in the business of us grouping together. But they want us isolated and needy and lonely and filling that void with products. But uh, I think there's going to be a vast majority of humans who realize, who have an epiphany, like, I feel better when I'm around people. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. It's got to be that way. I mean, I have to, I've never understood things like dance clubs where, you know, 1,500 people, 2,000 people will all be jumping up and down um, to some incomprehensible beat. But I kind of get it now. Um, I still didn't want to, I wouldn't want to go, but right. I, I, I kind of get it. Well, I think that I, get it. I think you and I, and there's a certain breed of human whose heroes were loners. Uh, you know, I know you, <laughs> one of your heroes was uh, Lee Harvey. No, uh, you know, when you think of great minds, they tend to be loners, no, my hero wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald. It was Abraham Zapruder. <laughs> One of the greatest filmmakers in the world. Yes. You know why? His editing, his editing was incredible. Of course, it was under, you know, um, you know, forced gun. He had a gun to his head, but his editing was incredible. Um, so Zapruder was really more of my hero. He got um, it in one shot when you think about it. He did get it in one shot. One take, one take Abe. That's what they used to call him. <laughs> one master shot. You know, that's what I yeah. loved about it. Yeah. Just a, he got yeah, a lot well, of coverage. Know, even Woody Allen, in Woody Allen's book, you'll notice he says, I don't like to do a lot of coverage. <laughs> um, he said, I'm just not that, that kind of filmmaker. And, uh-huh. you know, I, I think he doesn't give Zapruder um, the, 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 the props for being able to do to teach him how to do it. Zapruder taught us all how to do it because it's all... It's basically he was he was the first iPhone guy mm-hmm. um, to take movies on his iPhone. It wasn't an iPhone, but he did it as if it were an iPhone. Right. Very important. He should be taught in film school. That that film should definitely be taught in film school. And he didn't know what he had until he got into the editing bay. He thought he no. had something, but you never you should never leave a set depressed. Wait till it's wait till you see the dailies before you know what you got. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So true. Anyway, we were saying something that we got a little distracted. Well, Woody um, Allen, I'm utterly convinced now that Woody Allen is completely innocent and that Mia Farrow is out of her effing mind. I I, I always thought she was out of her mind. She married Frank Sinatra. Yeah. How crazy is that? Like, just start with that. And then anybody who adopts that many children, um, there's something kind of... um, unhinged about that and i have to say that would probably apply to angelina jolie too as well um you know yeah you adopt a child that's great you adopt two children that's terrific uh, maybe three if you're rich but then then after that what are you doing right right that's a menagerie that's not even a, a family yeah and the soon ye so. story she was abused according to woody allen and this does make sense he marries one of the the girls that Mia Farrow adopted, and according to Soon Yi, 
She was abused by Mia Farrow. She was a second-class citizen that the biological children held sway over the adoptees, and they were kind of like servants. And according to Soon Yi and Woody Allen, Mia Farrow was physically abusive towards these kids, emotionally abusive. And Woody Allen uh, saved Soon Yi from Mia Farrow. And, you know, Soon Yi was off in college when Woody Allen started dating her. So, look, it's not normal, but in many ways he rescued Soon Yi. From the abuse, yeah. That was going I mean, on. I, I, I could, I could live with that interpretation as well. Um, but it's not like what he didn't have his own uh, agenda as well, uh, and his own personal agenda. Uh, but uh, with her, but that's okay. That happens. It's weird, but it happened. How but, great you know, is that book? Enormous. How great is that book? That, it's fantastic because I knew a lot of the stories from other biographies I'd read of him. But um, it, it's written in his voice. So there are jokes peppered all the way through. Mm-hmm. You know, now I've got something to listen to when this whole thing passes. I have a friend named Hart Pomerantz. I don't know if the name means of anything. Of course, Lauren Michaels' old That's right. comedy partner. That's right. So he's a friend of mine. He's a lawyer primarily. He does some funny public speaking, and he's got to be... In his early 80s, his his brother Earl Pomerantz just died, and his brother Earl was responsible for a lot of sitcoms um, in the U.S. Like uh, Green Acres. Over the years. No, I don't think he did Green Acres, but I think he did. Uh, he was involved with Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, okay. I think he was involved with um, uh, with with stuff like that. Anyway, um, so he, he he asked me to come over to his house uh, because he has a tape he wants to play for me. I said, "What's the tape?" He said, well, the tape was made in the late 60s, and it's me, Lorne Michaels, and Woody Allen uh, at Woody Allen's apartment arguing over jokes. Wow. I said, i got to hear that tape. And I was about to go over to his house, but, you know, of course, now you can't do anything, and especially since he's so old, I don't want to, you know, you know risk, risk anything. But eventually, when this whole thing is is lifted. I'm, I'm so anxious to hear that tape. I'm wow. sure it'll be really, really fascinating. Right, right. Nobody's better than Woody Allen. After reading the book... Nobody's better than Woody Allen. He's the best. And, he's the best. And, and it's considered sacrilege to defend him. But after reading the reviews, the cowardice of book critics, what they accused him of doing in the book isn't there. You know, the lookism... It doesn't exist in the book. He's accused of sizing up women by their beauty. I mean, the the, the by the book, by the book. We have to wrap well, it up. Yeah. Um, yeah, he does talk about women and their beauty in the book as if that's a crime. Right. Um, right. But it's done in a it's done in a romantic way. I mean, you know, it's all about Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen was a complete pussy hound, and yet because he was able to wrap it in this. You know, poetic, um, uh, this, this, these poeticisms, somehow he comes across as a romantic and not as, um, as a, as a, and as a, as a serial abuser or, uh, of women. Yeah. Yeah. Motive means a lot. Right. Right. I think, I think Woody has been done in by a crazy woman who brainwashed her kids. 
And yeah, that's, I think so too. And that's what the Connecticut police concluded. But yes, that's right. You know, nobody bothers to read about this, and he, and there's also jealousy of Woody Allen that people can't stand the fact that he's so productive, creative, and he's such a genius. They 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 salivate at the opportunity to to destroy him. And, uh, and I also really find it funny when people say, you know, only every fifth movie is brilliant. <laughs> well, okay, I'll take those off. Yeah, I love you. We're going to wrap it up. Talk to you next week, sir. Yes, sounds good. Okay. Same time, same place, no choice. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, thanks, David. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, You Sad Pathetic Hump.